This is Jocko Podcast number 408 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. I dropped my ghillie blanket and started heading toward the road right after they passed my location. My partner motioned on the radio that he had pulled out on the road and was pulling up behind the vehicle. Once I got to the road, I saw them put their vehicle in reverse and ram my partner's vehicle. Now it was game on and we knew we were in for a fight with kids. Just then, and unbelievably, they put their Jeep into drive and sped directly for me. When they were about 100 yards away, I lifted my rifle and started to pie off to the right to make sure that if I had to engage, I would not be shooting through the vehicle and accidentally hit my partner. I did not want to engage juveniles, but they were speeding up and I thought I might have to. I also knew that if I shot the driver, I then had to find a place where I could jump to safety and not get run over. As I was taking my weapon off safe and getting ready to engage, the driver and the passenger both jumped out of the Jeep and tumbled from the vehicle while it was still in motion. Thank God. My partner was able to grab the female and I was able to snatch the male. We called for backups and the cavalry came so that right there is an excerpt from a new book that is out called borderline defending the home front written by vincent rocco vargas a book that i had the honor of publishing and writing the forward to vince was a border patrol agent he was a member of bore star which is the part of Border Patrol Special Operations. It's their search and rescue unit. And he served at the Border Patrol Special Operations Group and also as a medic on the BORTAC team. And before any of that, he was a ranger by God. And the U.S. Army, the 75th Ranger Regiment, where he fought in both Iraq and Afghanistan. He's a father with seven kids. And now he's also a writer, an actor, a producer, a musician, a business owner. And it's an honor to have him with us here tonight to talk about his experiences and lessons learned. Rocco. Hello. What's up, man? <laughs> Pretty epic run you've been on in life. Yeah, yeah, I keep hearing that. <laughs> it, it, it's it's kind of crazy. Like, as I started, you know, I, I, I read, the, well, I've known you for, I don't know how many years, but maybe six or seven years, something S- like seven that. Seven years at least, yeah. So I've known you, and like, oh, cool, Ranger, oh, cool, uh, oh, Border Patrol for a little bit. You know, you just, you just, you know, hear little things. But man, when I got done wrapping this up and I started to kind of assemble in my head your life, like the 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 pathway of your life, it's been a, it's been a wild <laughs> ride, man. It's been a wild ride. Yeah, and. It's impressive, man. It's impressive everything you've done and what you've been up to. It's it's badass, man. So and now you're going to be a, a best-selling author, which is pretty cool too. <laughs> yeah, I'm shooting for it. Yeah, you got to got to check that one off the list, yep. right? Um, let's let's just jump into this. Start, I guess, start from the beginning um, of your life. And you you say here in the book, uh, my father. This is like literally the beginning of the book. My father, Carlos Vargas, was a former Marine. He came from nothing, living in the Bronx. Uh, 
and then moved to Echo Park in Los Angeles when he was 14. My father made some of what he would call knucklehead choices that ultimately resulted in him joining the military. (laughs) Uh, He turned his life around from a street kid to a jarhead, eventually translating what he learned in the service into a career in the Los Angeles Fire Department. His work ethic and fierce love for his family intimidated, but also inspired me. I had much to live up to, and failure was never an option. Yeah. So your dad, your dad's Puerto Rican, right? Yes. Is. is that right? Yeah. So he's like an old school Bronx Puerto Rican. Yeah, he's Yo. A, yeah, yeah. He's seriously tough dude. Tough dude. He actually, when he moved to LA, I, the, what I'll explain there, because I didn't want to explain too much about like back. I, I don't know. I wasn't sure. I wanted the book to be like a bullet book, right. so I was trying to skimming over life. Mm-hmm. But my father moved to LA uh, at a young age, 14, because they were kind of, one, going running away from the abusive father he had. He was kind of a, a, a my grandfather was a drunk, kind mm-hmm. of abusive man. As my grandmother would try and get away, they keep going further, further west. Eventually, they end up in L.A. And uh, he's in the streets of Echo Park. And, you know, his friends were, were Mexican kids because there was no Puerto Ricans at the time in L.A., right? He, there, was a very, there were very few. It was them, right? His whole family. And uh, he got involved in kind of the gang world. And, and the gangs back then, it wasn't gang banging. It was more like territorial. Mm-hmm. You know, if they got in fights, it was with, you know, belts or, or pipes. And uh, one day he was going to go kind of visit or go on the wrong side of the tracks kind of thing. And, uh, you know, they, they tried to, they almost got jumped. And he pulled out a pipe and he hit a couple dudes with it. Uh, he dropped the pipe and ran. The cops came. He got arrested and he had a choice to uh, join the Marines or go to jail. What year was what year was, was he in the Marine Corps? It was uh, just the ending of the Vietnam era. So he joined, he said, in basic training, they made the announcement that the Vietnam War is over. Yeah. So he received the Vietnam campaign for joining oh. at the time, but he never went to Vietnam. There was a conversation we just had the other day. He uh-huh. goes, you have any... Yeah, man, I just I just missed it. I was like, damn, Dad. I guess, I know how. He, I guess I would know how he feels. He feels, you know, he wanted yeah. to see it. So, yeah, yeah this, that was my dad's era. Yeah, and you always got to be thankful because you never know. You never know. Like yeah. he might have shipped off, and that's that. Yeah, no, I, I, no, Vinny. A couple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember a couple of calls, and he was like, Vinny, can I go to Iraq with you? You, you, you think I can get on a plane? I'm like, what are you talking about, dude? Yeah, he just. Uh, he was always in for the fight, but just a good dad. And then your mom, your mom's Mexican, right? She is. Yeah, she is. She's from, she was born in Canotillo, Texas, which is like a small corner of El Paso, mm-hmm. right before you get into New Mexico for Anthony, New Mexico. And uh, where she was, you know, where she was born in, in, in that little city, it's like everyone kind of stays there. It almost seems like the world has passed it up 20, mm-hmm. 20 years, you know, where when my grandmother passed away, um, the cousins all dug the hole, and when when we buried her, we carried her from from the from the place of the church to the final resting place, the gravesite. You know, we lowered her into the to the hole, and then I was the first one to dig the dig the dirt and put it back. And the family sits there watching the grandkids fill the hole. Mm. And it's just kind of old school tradition thing that like you don't see anymore. I remember hearing the the sand fall to her like it's a tin casket, and I was just like. Jesus, this is fucking crazy. And so, yeah, man, we we, 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 we covered her up with dirt and to a final resting spot next to my grandfather and my uncle who were, who were buried in the same spot. So, yeah, it's just kind of this old school area. Uh, and then at 18, she decided to move to L.A. and try and do something different, get out of the kind of the, the monotony of the, of the city of what, what everyone kind of went to a cannery or they picked fruit or, you know, the, it was the same kind of kind of the Mexican kind of thing. And, and so then your dad ends up in the fire department. 
Yeah, he, he became an LA City firefighter. It was, he was a construction worker for a little while. Uh, it was a heavy rain season, and he went to go file for unemployment, and then he saw the sign that said, you know, hiring LA City firefighters. And my dad was like, well, I'll, let's do it. And so my mom and him stayed up er, uh, stayed up late studying for the test, and, you know, she helped him study for every single test, and he got through it. And he had these gang tattoos, right? So he had a couple, cover a couple of them, and, and uh, they called him Tattoo. That was, like, his whole nickname because back then it wasn't a lot of people with tattoos, <laughs> you know what I mean? So they called him Tattoo, and, yeah, he made it through, and, and I remember the change in our life. I remember going from this, we had a two-bedroom house in, in this small area in, in L.A., kind of like Reseda area, and then uh, I remember we bought this house that was like in a kind of like an urban area that you, it looked, it looked like uh, we, we moved up, right? Yeah. We moved up in the world, <laughs> and we, we now, me, now we had a three-bedroom house, right? And my brother, and we shared room. Before, it was four kids in one room. It was two bunk beds, you know what I mean? <laughs> the boys' bunk bed, the girls' bunk bed. Now it was like me and my brother, we shared a room, and eventually my dad remodeled the house, and we all had our own room, and it's actually the same house I stayed in the whole time I was filming Mayans. Yeah. It was in my room. Damn. Yeah, I, I, my, uh, we were having our fourth kid, and so we needed another room. So I took my son's house, which or my son's room, which was a converted garage. Like we, I converted the garage into a room for him, because we had the two girls living in one room, my wife and I had a room, and then we had this other kid, my son. Yeah. We are like, all right, we need a room for him, so we made that the garage into a room. And then we have a daughter, another daughter coming. So I just cut that room in half. So it was like two prison, <laughs> two, two prison cells. <laughs> like it was, my son could touch both sides. Yeah. Like when he would lay down, he could touch both sides if he put his hands out. So hey, man, you got to kind of do what you got to do. You got to get through. So it. you you remember the days when your dad was working construction? I remember the change of li- lifestyles. Yeah, I remember. You know, we had this small little house, and I remember just little glimpses of it, and then I remember the the kind of the move up. You're like big time. I felt it. I felt the difference. Now, I mean, I remember the struggle from that point on until mm-hmm. my parents started to manage money better or just kind of <laughs> figure it out, I guess. Yeah. But I remember, yeah, man, yeah, I remember the whole change. Yeah, you're gonna be digging out of like debt too, right? Like you you buy a house, like you're in debt. You yeah. you're you just you spent all your money every last dollar and it takes like a couple years to recover from that. Yeah, I remember in high school when I noticed like, oh, we're doing all right. As if, I remember, I remember the change. It's like, oh, we're, I can tell my parents are doing good. You know what I mean? They're both worked, right? My mother was a, she worked as a, like a secretary for the LA Unified School District, you know? So, Check. so it was one of those things where they both parents worked, they were doing their thing. We, we played sports and we kind of were on autopilot at a certain age. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember like, oh man, the parents are doing pretty good with money right now. And were you attracted to trouble at all? No, man, I saw a lot of it. I was, I was always a fighter. I was always willing to fight, but I honestly stayed so involved in sports. My dad had me so involved in sports, there was no excuse for anything. I didn't have time. Mm-hmm. I played year-round sports no matter what. I remember telling my dad like at 12, I'm like, Dad, I'm done. I don't want to play sports. He goes, well, then you're going to come home. You're going you're gonna to clean this. You're going to do this. You're gonna, you know, I'm like, fuck that <laughs> list of shit. I'm going back to sports. And so... You know, my brother kind of got involved in some 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 kind of the street stuff, mm-hmm. the street life. When you grew up in LA in the '90s, it was you were either involved in gangs or you were in some kind of sports. Mm-hmm. And I took the athlete route, and I had a lot of like old timer dudes in my world who were just like keep doing it. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? I felt like I had the blessing of a couple of people that were, were big gang members in the area, just like keep doing it, man. We're proud of you. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh shit, well, keep staying out of trouble, stay out of the bullshit, and, and keep playing sports. And how good were you at sports? good enough I wasn't great like I didn't get you know I was bad at education right I was bad at reading (laughs) so I was gonna go as far as that can take me you know Um, I went to junior college to play baseball because it was the only opportunity I had because I didn't take the I I I failed the PSATs 
I'm telling you, I probably got my name right. It was probably the only <sighs> thing I got. You know what I mean? So once I failed that one, I was like, well, there's no fucking point wasting money on a, the actual SATs. So uh-huh. let's just go to junior college. And junior college had an opportunity where if you did really well in junior college, you can get pro- go to pro anyway. So I was like, was well, a good chance? Let's just try and figure that out. I got in trouble a little bit, and um, I ended up finding myself going to northern to uh, Northern California to Chico mm-hmm. to play some summer ball out there with some friends, and that got me a full ride to Kentucky to a school in Kentucky called Brescia University. Mm-hmm. And uh, I became academic ineligible there and just joined the military. <laughs> <laughs> sort yeah. of be kicked. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I did some, <laughs> tried to independent pro. I tried all kinds of weird stuff and, yeah, the military called So, me. So hold on. So you're, you get to college. You're playing ball in college. Yeah. So you got freaking skills. Yeah. And yet you just academically ineligible. You're just not going to classes I or what? I couldn't read, man. I graduated high school with like a fifth grade reading level. I was dyslexic, but we never, it was no one ever told us that. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? My mom hired a, like a, a reading coach for a while and just couldn't get, couldn't figure it out. Um, reading was, coach was like, hey, ma'am, your son's dumb. I'm sorry. I would not be able to focus long enough to get it done. It was high school time where, like, if you were good at sports and you showed up every day, you'd get a C. You know what I mean? And so, like, I was good at sports. My sister was my twin sister. I have a twin sister, right? We're in the same class together. I just sat there and read baseball books or tried to, like, do whatever I could to kill the time. She did everything. She got a B. I got a C. And she's like, what the fuck? Yeah. Yeah. I was just good enough, you know? They mention your name. You're like, oh, Vince had, you know, this three hits and two stolen bases in the mornings. You know? So, like. You're the man. Yeah. I was good enough to see. People knew that. So then how long was it before you get, well, uh, you're in college. When did, when was September 11th? I was in junior, I was in junior college at Glendale community college at the time. And, uh, I was waking up to get ready for class. And my mom said, I heard her kind of a screech of like Vinny, like scared screech. And I was like, so I came out of my room. I was like, what's up, mom? And I, she's watching the TV just frozen. And the first plane already hit and it's live. And I see the second plane hit. And I was like, what's that? Like what happened? And my head was like it was just a, a plane accident, yeah, right? Yeah. And we're just watching. She goes, "I think we're being attacked." And I was like, "What?" Yeah. It was like the first thought. Like we, it's when you really didn't know what the fuck was going on. Mm-hmm. And the first thought was like someone's attacking us. I'm like, I'm confused as fuck. My dad's an LA City firefighter, right? So he's already at work, and uh, he's like, "Vinny, I don't know if you should go, go to school." I said, uh, but I think I had like a baseball game or something. I was like, I was like, I'm, I'm going to go to school. You know what I mean? And I think when I got to school, I saw everyone else's kind of expressions about it and thoughts. And that's when I really just started seeing how like heavy that was. And that's when I was like, fuck, dude, am I going to have to join the military? And that's what I thought. I thought we were all going to have to just join. Um, but the dream of like baseball was like, we'll keep doing this. We'll see what happens. We'll, keep, we'll see what happens. Um, and I, re- I remember it was like the second day, the day after – America was like super like patriotic and like nice. You know what I mean? You're in oh, LA yeah. and people are like usually not nice about driving. Everyone's like, oh yeah, you can cut in. Like, who gives a fuck? You know what I mean? Like, we're all Americans, you know? And uh, I was down at Ventura Boulevard and uh, we used to just go there to hang out. And um, it was this, like a makeshift fucking parade. Like people with, with flags and honking their horns and everyone's like patriotic and all of a sudden fucking like Oprah's there interviewing people and all this like it was crazy and I was at I remember me and my buddy were dumbass college we spray painted our bodies red white and blue and we're just like I felt it man I felt like the I felt every the energy of like everyone kind of coming together and it was like a really beautiful beautiful moment and I've never been this like gung-ho patriotic person it wasn't something like my dad he's military we love America I never thought anything more than that and that was probably the first time I was like, 
damn, this is heavy. Mm-hmm. It was heavy, man. I remember, I, I'll never forget that day. It's just like, fuck, should I join? And uh, I didn't yet, not yet. So you, so now you get at going to this college in Kentucky. Yeah. And there you don't, you don't, your grades aren't good, I guess. Yeah. How long are you going there for? <laughs> for a year, but I, I failed out of ceramics is what got me, dude. <laughs> what is ceramics? Is that like making pot- clay pottery, pots dude, and stuff? Pottery, yeah. Yo. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I kept bro, the, everything I said about you being awesome. And I know, bro. I, take it all I know. Back, I did, I'm trying not to I tell you everything. Said, this dude, so you just, failed, yeah. Paul, this <laughs> dude <laughs> failed. Potter. You're gonna lose all respect soon. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, dude. Fucking, I kept the transcript because I'm like, fuck, that's gonna be a story one day. I'm sure. But you know, every other grade was like a C, a C, a C. So I was like doing good enough, and then I, I didn't drop out. Of, I didn't drop the class in time, <laughs> and so I was trying to drop the class in time. I overslept one day. I missed the drop deadline. Boom, that affects your grade. Mm-hmm. Didn't even need the fucking class, right? It was just like an extra class, but it put me under a 2.0, which made me ineligible and lose my full ride. Dang. Yeah, dude. Yeah, so I got a job at Texas Roadhouse, and I was like, well, fuck, what's next? And then I had I had a baby, dude. I forgot I had my baby the same, like around the same time, and I was like, fuck, what the fuck am I going to do Who's now? paying for the baby? I mean, the so baby's mom, you, my ex, my, who, who eventually became my ex-wife, but the baby's mom. Uh, she was doing everything. I was asking my mom, like, can you just drop off some diapers? Can you get him some Where formula? was she? Was she in L.A. or L- Kentucky? L.A., yeah. Uh, yeah, so my mom would like drop off some 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 money. And give, yeah, and dude, I was raised by cool parents. And to say cool parents, like I was raised knowing I wanted to be a parent, right? Mm-hmm. Like it was a cool environment, man. We had four of us, right? Kids, and, and we'd play, we'd, we'd com- be competitive with each other. So I never had a doubt in my mind I wanted to be a dad, but like the way it happened was unex- not unexpected so much, but like of when you're 21 years old, you're like, shit, dog, now what? You know, I got no money for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm putting myself in it. I, I didn't need the money for college, but I still took out a loan so I could pay for beers, like dumb shit like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so then I knew, um, I tried to figure out what was next. Um, I, I I applied for some, like, opportunities to go try for some independent pro teams. Those never panned out because mm-hmm. I was, just a, I was a, just a party animal kid. Uh, I got an opportunity to play. It was professional in Germany for like the, I think it was the Rock for Rock Richmond Roosters or something. But they said I couldn't take my daughter at the time, <clears throat> and so I didn't want that. Like that didn't feel right. Uh, I was at Buffalo Wild Wings sitting next to a, a Navy vet who, who would tell me stories about the military, and uh, we were watching uh, the news. And it was that time where that Marine was putting the flag over Saddam's statue mm-hmm. and he, they pulled it down. Mm-hmm. They were interviewing his family, man. And his family was like crying and all happy and proud of him, dude. And I was like, fuck, I don't think my family's ever looked at me like that. You know what Damn. I mean? I've just always been like a, just kind of the, I've always felt like my mom was always like, oh, Vinny, don't get in trouble. Mm-hmm. Oh, Vinny, don't get hurt. Oh, Vinny. You know what I mean? I've always been like, like the, the fear of my mom is like, I'm going <laughs> to fuck something up. You know what I mean? Because I was just a mischievous dude. And uh, that's when I, that's when I kind of knew I was like, all right, everything's fucking not going the right way. My brother said he gave me he's like, maybe you should join the military, help dad, maybe. So I went to the recruiting office and um, I went to the Marines first because I thought I'd, it, my dad would be proud if I joined the Marines. And he was like, fuck no, don't join the Marines. <laughs> I was like, I don't. I think it was his way. He knew the war was happening. He was scared for me. Yeah. He's like, don't join the Marines, dude. And my mom was like, don't join the Navy. I think she had a family member or a cousin or something that joined the uh, Navy and, and was sexually like, molested, raped or whatever. Damn. And so she was like, don't do that. And I was like, 
I'm not going to let that happen, Mom. I'm going to fight. <laughs> but either way, I remember, so those two were out for me. Like, yeah. And I even went to the Navy just to be like, I would, I would do Navy SEALs. But do they even have contracts? Guys, like, no, you can be an underwater welder and we can put in your contract. And I was like, no, nah, that don't sound cool at all. Mm-hmm. Fuck that. So That's th- a good move. You didn't want to listen to that. Yeah. <laughs> he was lying to you. Yeah. Um, so then the, I was actually waiting for my ride to pick me up in the Army recruiter. Um, say, hey, what, what are you doing here? I was like, I was just thinking about joining the military. So like, come to my office. God, you look like a steak to him. Bro. <laughs> <laughs> he sees like a lost 21 year old kid, bro. He's like, yo, yeah. what are you doing here, my yeah. friend? In decent shape, just yeah. sitting there, no ride. He's like, you fucking got you, bro. Yeah. <laughs> Pulled me right in. He said, you know, we got a $20,000 bonus. I was like, oh, bro. I was like, you fucking, I'm down. I was like, what's the hardest thing you have? He said, Army Ranger or Special Forces. And like special force is the only thing I ever heard, right? I knew Army Ranger. I don't know much about any of these. I just knew special forces sounded really dope. And I was like, well, I'd love to do that. So I took the tests and I got a 108 GT score, which put me two points below what was mandatory for SF. And they didn't have a two-point waiver at the time. Later they did. When I was in basic training, I'm like, fuck, dog. But um, so I said, yeah, I'll do Army Ranger. And so they found me an option 40 contract. And uh I had no idea what I was getting into. I just knew like Ranger, cool. And I watched Black Hawk Down. I was like, fuck yeah, this is rad. Let's <laughs> let's check this out. You know. Then I watched Band of Brothers, and I was like, dude, I gotta go. I'm ready, man. So I got excited about it. Uh, how long was it before between signing the dotted line and shipping out? Six months. Okay. So I got two credit cards, maxed them out, just because I was just a <laughs> dumbass. <laughs> like I'm gonna die in Iraq anyway. Yeah. Let's just do this. And I started drinking like a mother, buying everyone drinks at the fucking bars and shit. <laughs> Went home to see my my daughter. Um, and uh, yeah, man, just waited for that ship out date. And how was uh, boot camp and all that? It was cool. Um, never in my life did anything like that. Never expected it. Uh, my dad was a pretty tough, dude, and so none of it intimidated me they couldn't put their hands on me so i was like i don't give a fuck dude mm-hmm. like this is whatever i was kind of older 23 years old so i'm kind of babysitting a lot of these fucking young knuckleheads on how to <laughs> do like don't quit fucking getting me in trouble dude you know what i mean like there was Teach, a lot of teaching them how to max out their credit cards <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of threatening going on in the barracks between several of us older dudes and the young ones and uh yeah it was like a group of older dudes like yeah. one was a you know there was an older dude who was like fucking 32 or something like that and he was a he was a firefighter, Dave Cahill. And uh, I remember the drill sergeant was like, he's like, why'd you join? He goes, because he was from New York. And he's like, because those motherfuckers killed some of my fucking friends. And he goes, what fuck it took you so long? And I was like, damn. damn. <laughs> and we were all like, this motherfucker's rowdy, dude. And he, she, he had comments about all of us that were older, you know what I mean? Like, what the fuck took you so long, you know? And uh, it was an experience, man. It, was, it wasn't as hard as I, I imagined. I actually learned a lot about myself. Didn't know I, I'd be able to run as well as I did. I never was like this distance runner anyways. And it turned into like, oh, I could run pretty good. I got in really good shape. Uh, I started f- filling out like like bigger. I didn't realize like I would be gaining weight in basic training, essentially kind of filling out some muscles. Um, and then I found out that everyone had a ranger contract. The whole fucking platoon had a ranger contract. I was like, oh, fuck. I thought it was just like one. And I got it. You know, like, no, it's all of us. <laughs> and so I started learning, asking those guys questions. And they were telling me, like, yeah, dude, you got to go through this. Then you got to go to airborne. You got to go rip. And they're going to try and make you quit. And I'm like, oh, fuck. No way. Well, fuck. Let's do it. You know, and, you know, air, got to airborne. And that was that was just airborne. It's not, yeah. not that challenging. Just, <laughs> airborne. <laughs> yeah. It sucks to jump out of a plane. But, like, at the same time, like, uh, well, if this is what's going to get to rangers, fine. Uh, and then Rip was cool, man. Rip was a fucking kick in the nuts, but all in all, like I just kept looking for like what's gonna fucking make me quit. Mm-hmm. I don't know, and I didn't want to quit because like I have a daughter, and like I want to see her. Oh, yeah. I want to see her proud of me, and I want. I think of her watching me cross some kind of 
stage and her being real proud of her dad receiving an award or whatever it was. It was just in my vision I had, I carried with me everywhere. And then my dad, I couldn't say it quick because I feel like my dad would be like, what the fuck? Like, you know what I mean? Like, you know? And so, like, those are the two people that really motivated me to, like, to keep going. And, and it just continued throughout my career was those those two and my kids. And, you know, my kids multiplied. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and how long is RIP? RIP's not that long, right? I think it's three weeks. Okay. I think it's only three weeks. And the biggest part of RIP was called coal range. And it's like they take you out into the field. You do some land navigation. And then when you're when – you're, if you pass land navigation at night, they just fuck you up until you fucking try and make you quit. Mm-hmm. And – um it's just over and over and over, and then that's usually where you lose the, the most people. You got your PT test, you got a five-mile run, and then you got, like, just all the smoke sessions in between. But cold range is where you lose a lot of people. And they do the whole thing where, like, pays to be a winner, mm-hmm. you know, and you run a mile, and they fucking they fuck you up. And then if you don't, you're don't, you not first, well, then you fucking keep going. And, I mean, this will last all night. And uh, that's when people quit. And then, you know, you have a poncho, and you're cold as fuck, and yeah. people are, like, afraid to cuddle. So you're like, all right, dude, fuck you. I'll cuddle up, you know. And so <laughs> people just quit, and that's where you, you lose a lot of guys from that. Yeah. It's weird. I always, when I figured this out, when I learned this, that in, well, to go to Ranger Regiment and be a Ranger at Ranger Regiment, you don't have to go to Ranger School. A lot of people don't know that. Yeah, no. You have to go through RIP, which is three weeks long. So you're like a, well, at this point you were 23, but some kids yeah. in Rangers, they're like 18 years old. Oh, and yeah. And they're at Ranger Battalion. Yeah. Like, I had a lot of dudes, man. I had a lot of dudes who showed up and they're 18 year old knuckleheads, but they were willing to fucking endure that suck fest. So we're yep. like, cool. They're, they're, they're one of us now. I think that's the cool thing about Ranger Regiment, too, is that we, we get to raise our, our privates. We get to raise those soldiers and we raise them exactly how we want them. Mm-hmm. And the same thing, I showed up as a 23 year old that's still treated like nobody. Mm-hmm. And they train you to be. The type of ranger that you want, they want you to be. Shoot where I shoot, go where I go, do what I do, you know, and don't fucking question it or else you get fucked up. Yeah. And that's what we, we, we raise dudes to do that. And that's what, what makes Ranger Regiment what it is. Yeah. And <clears throat> Rangers, like most people don't stay in Ranger f- for a long time because it's a tough, like, Spartan life. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to find dudes who've done the full four and been successful. I'm going to say it's hard. I said it's. Those guys, you you give a little bit more of a tilt of the cap to, like, yeah. oh fuck yeah, the dude did his four and he got his ranger tab and he became a team leader. Yeah. Because a lot of dudes that do two and they get kicked out for drinking reasons for uh, RFS released for standards, right? We have a certain standards you have yeah. to meet, and so there's guys that get kicked out in one year, two years, three. It doesn't matter because it's a fucking challenging lifestyle. It's yeah. a challenging lifestyle for families. A lot of guys have drinking issues and fight. You know, it, whatever it is, it's not easy to yeah. to run that pace and still try and be a normal person outside of that with a marriage or or a relationship as well trying to manage your drinking because it's kind of the culture as well in our little in our world so we fight we, f- we fucking we drink and yeah it's madness dude i met a dude one time and he had been at like ranger regiment for like 19 years or something and this is when i was younger but this dude looked like he had nothing else like he was literally in the i was on, i was on an army base and he was in the the like px or whatever and he's wearing like ranger panties a ranger t-shirt yeah. and like running shoes and do like high and tight and he looks like just there's nothing in his life yeah. except for just ranger and i was like yep this yeah. dude's this is a hard dude you know if you yeah. and i ended up talking to him he's like hey, i've been at ranger regiment for 19 years or something crazy like that yeah. and i was like this dude's because you know in the seal teams like dude it's a hard job and then you get like cool stuff and you hang out and you have a lot of autonomy yeah. right rangers like if you're an 18 year old, if you're a 20 year old SEAL, you're you got all kinds of autonomy. You know, you they're like, oh, just make sure you're in shape. Uh, you know, make sure you show up. 
They're not like this. Is what we're like in the in the Rangers. Like show up. We're gonna jump at whatever six o'clock in the morning. Show up at two o'clock in the morning so we can start inspecting and yeah, checking everything. Yeah, dude. They don't play around. Oh, no, no, dude. They well, don't play around. Well, because we're raising knucklehead kids that don't know shit. <laughs> so you have to be like very precise yeah. with everything. But you'll show up on a Monday and be like, all right, we're gonna go for a five mile run. We're gonna swim across the lake. And we're gonna come back and go home. And you're like. What the fuck for? It doesn't matter. We're just yeah. training. Just you know what what I mean? Yeah, it's just what we do. Yeah, respect, dude. Rangers don't play around. Um, so you get through all that stuff. I'm going to jump to the book here real quick. You say, once arriving to my unit, I had learned so much about myself already. I was 23-year-old private first class, and I was becoming a well-rounded professional soldier, more than just a baseball player. Within 45 days of joining Ranger Battalion, I was preparing to deploy to Afghanistan. While in Afghanistan, I was if I wasn't on a mission, eating chow or in the gym, I had nothing to do but think. Fast forward a little bit. While one day, while sitting in a squad room in Afghanistan, a few of us started talking about what we wanted to do after we got out of the army. I mentioned the fire department. Everyone had their normal copper firefighter career aspirations, and no one said anything out of the ordinary until Staff Sergeant Ricardo Barraza, am I saying that right, Barraza, yeah. spoke up and simply said, "Border Patrol." He told us they had special operations units and a huge budget for training. It's the closest thing to being an army ranger, but doing it in the civilian world, he said with a flourish. So this is on your first deployment. Uh, Staff Sergeant Barraza is the first person that makes you think about Border Patrol. How's that first deployment to Afghanistan? I was nervous, man. I didn't know what to fucking expect. I think it was, that's what the fear was, like, what the fuck? What's going to happen? And... What I don't mention in the book is that I just got to battalion when Pat Tillman was killed. So I'm dealing with that as a fucking brand new private and like seeing the chaos of that motherfucker, dude. Dude's coming back fucked up from that. The whole backlash from fucking Pat Tillman. He's in my company. The platoon is second platoon. I'm in first platoon. So like it was so close to us as new guys. We were like, Jesus, fuck, dude. And they're like, hey, get your stuff ready. We're going overseas. What was the, how long did it take for you to start hearing like, that that was a fratricide within five days showing up to battalion we're in formation they're like hey we're gonna be guarding the gates we had our dcus to go back to meet him so we're supposed to be the reach brick to meet that meet that platoon meet mm-hmm. those guys and when that went down it was just like shut it down we're just you guys just pulling security and answering phones and it was like we started hearing what happened and then boom the news and then we had a, we had a uh, formation we're in the rear d right rear detachment and they talked about like Hey, this is what you're going to say to anyone that calls. Here's the, you know, we have a thing. And that's when we all started talking, like, what the fuck went down, dude? And then that's, you know, I had to pick up, um, you know, Pat Tillman's brother. Mm -hmm. And we just kind of started escorting dudes around and and helping get their stuff. And some guys were getting RFS. And just fucking, it was just like, not enough was said because we're just kind of new. We're nobodies. But like, you started hearing everyone else talk, and it was like, this is crazy. I don't know what the fuck. And I, I started learning everything from the news. I was like, these dudes ain't talking to me because I'm nobody. You know what I mean? All they would do is fuck us up because we were new, and I guess they were angry. And uh, when they got back, they, they, and we got fucked up even more. It was crazy. It's crazy. And then we get deployed. And, and no one still talks to us because we're privates. <laughs> like, train, train, shut the fuck up. Let's go. And you're like, oh, this is fucking nuts, dude. Yeah, and you got to be thinking, like, if this can happen to Pat Tillman. Yeah, like who am I? It, it was crazy. Vinny over here getting ready to get <laughs> Vinny. Nobody. Yeah, <laughs> damn. Vinny Big Chin, and uh, yeah, dude. I remember, I remember talking to uh, one of the platoon sergeants, and he's like, "You nervous?" I'm like, "Yeah, yes, sir." And he was like, "Well, don't worry about it. You know, 
90% of the time you're just going over there, you know, you might not see combat, you know, 10% of ever, ever engaged with, uh, he's giving me these numbers. I'm like, okay, this sounds good. And I remember one, one of the first deployments was like fast roping in and fucking there's, there's like, they're getting fire on the helicopter. And you're like, Oh fuck dude. <laughs> what to the fucking odds? Dude? Like, yeah. I saw dudes crawling dude. And I was like, Oh, everyone's getting shot. And, uh, we roped in and it was just like, no dude, people are breaking their ankles on the fast rope. And it's just like, yeah, it's like, oh shit, bro. The fashion was fucking taking to do that. But my thought was like, I don't want to go, dude. Dude's getting fucking hit. <laughs> and, and I'm carrying three Gustav rounds in the back of me. I'm like, don't, don't hit me, bro. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. And so what was your what was your mission on that? Like, what was your kind of standard mission set on that first deployment to Afghanistan? It was is the same as kind of the rest of them, but it wasn't as active as as so I'll I'll explain it in, like our job has always been like kind of raids and like how do you gather that intel is just however we get it. Mm-hmm. And obviously me being a nobody was just like, hey, there's intel in this area. We're going to go try and uh, kill or capture this individual. Same kind of thing like TST targets or whatever the case. Um, and so we go into these missions, but they were they were not as often as they eventually became because intel got better, but as well as how we gathered the intel. You know, my first deployment in t- 2004, the only thing that you would kind of secure from an objective was like an embitter phone. And that was like rare. If you found one, you're like, dope, dude, we got them better. By 2005 in Iraq, there was cell phone towers. Everyone, everyone had a cell phone. So then the missions came like, dude, as soon as you scrub someone's fucking cell phone, you had like 20 other dudes you need to go hit. You know what I mean? So that, that changed. That, the whole off-tempo changed when technology changed for them. It helped us. Yeah. And so 2004, you know, we were just had a, a few missions here and there, more, a lot of training going on, a lot of like getting ready for, for the thing, but you know, just a few missions here and there, but it, it wasn't, wasn't like Iraq. And you guys are doing four month deployments? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, any major like lesson learned about that from that deployment where you're like, dude, I'm never doing that again. <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing was like, I, there was one mission where we went to a high point and, um, I was using just binoculars. I'm a nobody AG guy for the Gustav. I'm like the ABA AG guy, right? So I'm just like staying out of the fucking way. And I remember just like scanning the objective area and I'm like, hey, Sergeant, uh, I think we got dudes on a roof. And he's like, let me see. He had a big ass dip in. He's like, let me see. And he goes, shit, yeah, we did. <laughs> so he calls, I remember he calls on the radio. He calls to the, to, to the we had a fister on the ground, but we also had a fister that was flying with the Spectre gunship. And uh, they see it. They're like, yeah. And they were like, sir, what do you want us to do? He's like, load around. So we, I loaded a fucking round, dude. And I'm Hell like, yeah. fucking hey, we're about to goose all this motherfucker's <laughs> dog. You know what I mean? I've already fired like 15 in practice and training. And so I'm like, this is dope and it's going to be scary. Let's go. I close it. I close it. The venture closed it. And I'm just sitting there like, do we fire? Like, what do we do? You know what I'm saying? And he's going on the radio. And supposedly they called fire. But the radio communication was fucked. Mm-hmm. So then by the time it came back to us, it was like, hold fire, hold fire. And a team started pushing in on them. And we didn't find it until after. I was like, sorry, what happened? He was like, oh, they told us not to fire. Then we have to take it out. And that's, to me, it's like, you would scare us. God, I got to take this fucking round back out and put it right back into my fucking rucksack. <laughs> and then uh, the cool moment was like the PL. was like, there's people kind of approaching from the back, from the rear. It's like one of the houses woke up and people were kind of, and he's like, give me one. And I just jumped up. I was like, let's go. And I started running with him. And then we're lazing in and seeing all these people come out. And eventually the turf came in and kind of calmed it all down. But I was like, fuck, dude. We're really doing this shit, dog. Like, that's like really in the middle of this like fucking foreign ass country. People don't know who the fuck we are. And we're fucking fashion. We're fucking, it was just, that was the first like, damn, dude, I'm actually doing this shit. Yeah. What's crazy to me is like, you've probably been in the army for a year, maybe? Maybe. 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 Yeah. 
So you like boot camp, airborne school, rip, yeah. some training with the with your company, and then boom, you're on deployment. Yeah, I think I learned really how to how to be an A, B, and A, G for the fucking goose off in deployment. Like that was like the moment of really learning because we trained so often. And then same, like I was doing a lot of ready ups and deployment, dude. Just like with a, you know, nothing going on today, let's go. Boom, they put X's on the wall. We're just ready up, ready up. It's like 90% of my skill sets was built in combat there, not in combat, just training. It was like fucking nuts. Yeah, check. And did you like the job? I did, I mm-hmm. did. I think, like in the book I said, uh, a lot of thinking. Mm-hmm. I thought like, well, fuck, if I applied myself, I could have done so many different things. <laughs> I mean, like, not that I hated what I was doing, but I was ready for it to be done. Like, let me do my four years and go out because I'm like now motivated to fucking face the world. Like I could do, I thought I was a baseball player and that's all. I didn't think there was more outside of my life. So when I lost baseball, I was like, I was ready to kind of give up. I was like, fuck all this. I've been playing baseball since I was four years old, year round since seven. Like. It's all I fucking knew. Like mm-hmm. when people struggle transitioning out of the military, I struggle transitioning out of baseball. So when I found the military, <laughs> that's real. <laughs> yeah, dude. It's like, like professional dude, athletes Echo college. Feels it over here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Transitioning out of football for Echo yeah. Charles. Yeah, bro. dude. Because you're like, what the fuck am I? You know. And then when I got to the military, I found like, oh, I'm kind of good at this too. That's when I was like, all right, this is cool. But shit, if I could be good at this, what else could I be good at? So like, yeah, I was sitting in my room thinking like, fuck, what, what could I have done? What, what else could I? What could I do? Mm-hmm. And so that's what, like, the conversation brought when he said uh, Border Patrol. I was like, what the fuck is he talking about? I've never heard of these. Mo- I've heard of them, but I, I didn't know it was even a thing mm-hmm. that anyone would want. Uh, I'm going to fast forward a little bit yeah. in the book. Book is, obviously, I'm just reading highlights. Just get the book. So much details and stories. And it's just a freaking great book. Um, on December 16th, t- 2004, I lost a close, close friend whom I had spent a significant amount of time with in the pipeline on the way to Ranger Battalion. Devin Pacuero died while participating in a live fire exercise. Yeah. So this is like another reality check, you know? Yeah, I came back from that deployment. And um, so Devin was with me in basic training Mm -hmm. and then airborne. Airborne was so like laid back that we thought our PT was not gonna be good enough for ranger selection yeah. for a rip. Yeah. So we were like intentionally fucking around so they would get, make us do push-ups. And we'd be like, ranger, ranger. Like they were, we were pissing people off. But for us it was like, fuck it, get smoked all day. Let's get ready for ranger, you know? We got to rip and they gave us a weekend before the PT test on the Monday. And uh, we went out to Columbus like idiots, you know, and we're drinking beers and we're bullshitting. And we're all talking to, like, I was talking to my, my baby's mom. He was talking to his girl. And one of our knuckleheads from base training, he goes, I hear him tell a girl, yeah, yeah, we're army ranges, you know? And I was like, who the fuck is he talking to? And another dude turned around and goes, oh, really? What company? He said, we're Delta Company. He goes, we don't have a Delta company. Dude. And boom, the fight broke out, dude. Yeah. And I'm like, I got to go. And boom, trying to pull this dude out of there. But they had my card on, on tab. Like, all kinds of shit went wrong. So oh, we damn. ran. The fucking, you know, the MPs were fucking chasing. We jumped into the back of a truck, and we just lay there like, hope the fucking God they don't get us. That Monday morning, we didn't realize this, but Devin's like, dog. And Devin Pagaro, right? And he's like, dog, I can't find my ID card. I was like, what? And he goes, I think we lost. I think I lost it that on the on the during the fight. I was like, what the fuck, bro? <laughs> they call him to the front of the formation, Damn. and uh, he goes, I lost my I lost my ID card. He goes, yeah, okay, you're recycled. Boom, they kicked him out of the course, <sighs> and I was like, fuck me, dude. 
So I didn't know if we were going to see him ever again. That was my boy, you know what I mean? So I come back from this deployment, and I fucking run into him at the chow. I'm like, Devin. He goes, yeah, dude, I fucking made it. I was like, holy oh, so shit. He got recycled again because he failed the fucking five-miler, and then the next one he finally made it. Boom, he's in range of town with us, right? He's in Charlie Company. And so we're trying to connect again about like, dude, let's. I'm like, I want you to meet my daughter. She's here now. You know what I mean? I got married. Like, let's like let's let's have it. He was supposed to come over for dinner, um, but you know, I had my live fire. Alpha Company did their live fire, and then his next day with Charlie Company doing their live fire. The next day he was supposed to come over for dinner. So that night of their live fire, they gave us a call. You know, they notified all of us that someone was killed during training. But in the call, they said Figueroa, and I was like Figueroa from Charlie Company. I was like, I don't. I don't know who that is. I'll figure it out in the morning. I remember they woke me up, and I was like, my wife at the time, she's like, hey, they're calling about someone, uh, an incident. I was like, oh. And I was like, I don't know the Figueroa. Okay. And I got to, when I got to, um, when I got to Alpha Company, my buddy, uh, Solomon Kim, he, he comes up to me. He's like, bro, did you hear? I was like, yeah, Figueroa. I don't know who that was. He goes, no, dude, it was Devin. And I was like, no, dude. He said it was Figueroa. I was like, no, dude, it was Devin. And fuck, we hugged it out. It was like, what the fuck happened? And so people started to tell us what was going on. And that was the first time, like, as a, as a man, as a grown man, like, my emotions, I, I wasn't sure how to handle that. You know what I mean? I was raised, obviously, by a tough dude that crying would be weak in his world, you know? And as I was getting home from the day and trying to still piece it together, as I was putting the keys into the door, I remember it kind of, like, shaking, and I, it all kind of overwhelmed me, and, and I just busted out crying, like, holy fuck. And I told my wife, like, you know, that my friend was supposed to come over for dinner tomorrow. Um, he was the one who was killed. And it was just like a shock to us. Like, Jesus, fuck. How did he get killed? What happened? So a lot of people got RFS for that, right? They got released for standards for this. Um, you know, we're doing a, it's like a paralleled live shoot. And so you you go clear and you go clear and you continue, right? There's a big gap between the, the two buildings. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you only use one building. And you have these targets that every time you engage were kind of falling over and so you reset them and i guess the range safety officer wasn't paying attention or the, or the officer whoever it was wasn't paying attention to as they kept resetting they kept shifting and it got to Oof. a point where it reset in a spot where when it shot it engaged and went through the wall through the target through the wall and hit him in the throat while he's pulling security in the other room and so they they provided all the medical they possibly could um on the in the van uh, on the way to the hospital, they said they felt the release of his hands, and that's when he died on the way there. Yeah, and that one was a that one was heavy for me because I was like, you know, I've lost friends into gang violence, you know, and I was, and it's kind of like when you grow up in LA, it's it's okay, but that one was like, damn, he didn't die in combat; he died training for it. Like he wanted it, and it fucking sucked, man. That one, that one hurt. <sighs> So, you go through that, and but you're still in a workup, and that's yeah. the thing, everybody. Six months later, we're gone. You're still doing your job, and you go to Iraq, yeah. the second one. So, what year is this? That's 2005 now. 2005, you were going to Iraq. Where were you in Iraq? Mosul. Okay. Yeah, we did the whole Mosul thing. We um, That was uh, one of our most successful deployments as a battalion. You show up there with like the, the one dude in the middle of the circle that you want to get, and then everyone else is kind of like, who mm -hmm. can lead you to him? Um, that was Mosul 2005, and, and we 
we captured the, the top dog. And it was like kind of a weird how it worked. So the Rangers would go on a mission that day, and we're like TST targets, right? It's a time-sensitive target missions, uh, waiting for certain certain intel to drop, and boom, we're on, we're on it. So all of our kit was right by our, by our uh, this is when we first started using strikers. And so all of our kit was by the strikers, and we're just sitting there doing our thing, getting ready, hashing it out, getting ready for it. Boom, we get a call, we're gone. Uh, and you could do one mission, you could do six missions a day. It doesn't matter. It was just kind of this crazy, crazy thing. But the days were off, we were, we were QRF. And we're QRF for Delta dudes, right, the CAG dudes. And so it was kind of like we were switching days. And then there was times where, like, hey, we had a heavy day last night. Can you guys do do TST today? And then we'll just pick up. Yeah, like, yeah, whatever. And so as we started getting closer and closer to this dude, you know, they're, they're wanting the mission. They want the big one. You know what I mean? So I remember one day they gave us a day off. Like, hey, you guys are back on QRF. We're going to – this was good intel. We're probably going to try and catch this dude. And as we're all kind of trying to get this dude, by chance one day we had dudes lay up in the house, and we were going to pick him up. As we're going to pick him up, this dude shows up to the house next door. And so, boom, we hit the house. I remember – we hit the house, boom, going in. I walk right by, like we're, someone snatched this dude already. They grabbed him up, you know, put him on his knees and started cuffing him, putting putting the sandbag or the, we, we used something different at that one point. And I remember going right past him, like, that's a big ass motherfucker. And kept going. <laughs> and room clear, boom. And then right, you start hearing the radio traffic, like, hey, we caught the fat guy. And we were like, fuck, homie, we got him. And then phones went off. And then more intel gathered. And I mean, that night, I think we did six missions. It was like boom, 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 because just shit started popping off, right? Like everyone was like, I guess they were in panic mode, so they started messing each other, and then we were able to pull all that data, and boom. And you're you're a straight up assaulter. Yeah, I'm a saw gunner at this time. I'm a saw gunner on a team. Oh, you're a saw gunner yeah. and and just getting after. Yeah, it. yeah, dude. <laughs> saw gunner like it was the best job in the world, bro. Because like everybody wants you in the room quick. You yeah, know, it's the like, team. Yeah. was like, go. I'm like, let's go. And uh, yeah, man, it was a good time. Uh, Mosul was pretty pretty busy for us. We had a a lot of engagements. We had um, you know. The truck in front of us took an ID. At one point, we had a hand grenade hit and hit a couple of my dudes uh, on first squad while we were kind of like, oh, shit. We ran over there and seeing the, the chaos of that madness. Um, we had one of our little birds on a mission got, got engaged on, and, and, and uh, the pilot, luckily, the co-pilot helped him pull it back up and got out of there. Like, so we had a lot of, like, a little interesting, you know, just combat shit, man, war shit. And it was a, it was a good experience. It was a, There was definitely that, – I tell people, like, that's when I, I kind of – mended my relationship with God, you know, as I, as I grew up, I was kind of, wasn't sure. I, I was raised Catholic and then kind of converted to Christianity when I was in Kentucky. And then from there I was kind of like, ah, oh, man, my life is going to go to shit. So you start blaming God, you know what I mean? Like I lost my scholarship, you know, I can't, I can't read my, my kid, all this thing. So I started getting angry with God. And then I was there, I was like, yo, dude, I want to be in my kids' lives, man. And my, my wife was pregnant at the time. I was like, I want to see her be born and, and I want to be a dad. And like, get me out of this, dude. Now I'll, I'll fuck whatever. You know what I mean? Like, whatever. I actually, I promised I'd wear a suit to church. <laughs> I still haven't done this shit, dog. But, um, yeah, man. I, <laughs> you might want to straighten that out. I know, Sunday, I know, bro. I know. Every time I say that, I, like, I, I get, I got to get my suit in the cleaners. But, <laughs> um, yeah, it was like the moment where there was enough action happening, enough shit was going down, enough dudes were earning their purple heart where I was like, man, it's a numbers game now, dude. Mm-hmm. And, um, I started getting trying to be right with God, and, and before every mission, I was kind of have my, my peace. We we talked and and we do our mission, and so that was like my favorite deployment because the most experience. It was just really we, we had a lot of action going on at the time. Yeah. Um, fast forward a little bit here. You say in April two thousand five, after returning from a deployment in Iraq, I was preparing to be sent to Ranger School. The day before we left, we played a football game with the platoon. 
Barraza's team versus mine. Because of my com- competitive nature, I wanted to win so damn bad, but, Ra- but Barraza, Barraza's competitive nature matched mine, and his team won. After I was walking off pissed, he stopped me. Come here, he said in his deep, cocky tone. I hesitated in my frustration. Vargas, come here, he repeated. What's up, Sergeant? He snagged a ranger tab off his cover, handed it to me, and said, come back with your shit or don't come back at all. We hugged and I walked it off, still fuming, but also shocked by the gesture. He cut off his own tab from his cover and gave it to me. This wasn't something I'd ever seen anyone do. It was powerful. I didn't want to let this man down, just I'd, like I'd never wanted to let my father down. That's freaking legit. Like someone giving you their ranger tab before you even go to ranger school? That's when they, they used to sew it on. So he had to cut it, rip it off. Just the gesture alone was like, they call it a drive-on tab in Ranger Battalion. And uh, I didn't know about this, never heard of it. You know, it was just drive-on tab is like, you look at that motherfucker and you remember why you want this so bad and you fucking come back with it or don't come back at all. Mm-hmm. And in Ranger Battalion, if you don't pass Ranger School, you're gone anyway. So it's like, get the fuck out of here then, you know? And um, So that's actually a thing, a drive-on Ranger tab? Drive on you t- give drive your on tab t- to someone else? I don't know if it's necessarily giving it, but I know there's versions of that, and there's sometimes you have one, people sew it into their hat, it's like they look at it, right? It's a drive-on tab, it's like motivates you to, you want that. It's almost like, yeah. I guess someone would do with the Trident or something, mm-hmm. I don't know, but... I, it wasn't the. It was the first time I've ever heard of it. But by the time I got my Ranger tab, I've done it to someone as well because I kind of continue that tradition. But I, I've heard it's not uncommon for it. But for me, I've never seen that shit. And then for it to be that guy, yeah. Barraza for me was like, it was like the leader that when I showed up to Ranger Town, I thought everyone was an athlete. You know what I mean? And then I showed up and I was like, fuck, they're not athletes. They're just dudes that are willing to do the job. Um, and so that kind of was like, man, I thought it was gonna be like fucking badass Rambo dudes and fuck, they could all fight, they could all fucking run, they could all play sports. And no, it wasn't the case. Um, he was though, he was an athlete. He was a big, bad motherfucker. He was highly respected. And he was the dude that I looked at, I was like, yeah, I wanna be like that. That's the dude. And uh, so for him to, to, to take his own tab off his hat and give it to me um, was pretty special, but I fucking wanted to beat his ass so goddamn bad, dude. And I was fucking mad that he won again. <laughs> yeah, that's a. Uh, and you've got more about uh, about Barraza in here. So yeah. I'm obviously not reading the whole book, but um, it's freaking legit. And that, that definitely was a powerful section. Ranger School? Any major challenges at Ranger School? Yeah, one, but. It, but um, for the most part, you know, I was pretty, pretty lucky, you know. Um, I was a distinguished honor graduate of the fucking school, so I never got really in trouble. Uh, the one time they gave everyone major nose, I was taking a piss, and so they missed me. You know what I mean? Like weird circumstances. I show up to fucking mountains phase. It's my same platoon sergeant from Afghanistan who told me those statistics. And he goes, hey, he got he got our fest for her for some shit. So he's like, hey, Vargas, what the fuck? This guy's a stud. This kid's a stud. You know what I mean? So like, all of a sudden, everyone's like, hey, you told me about your deployments, man. He said, I'm like, okay, that's cool. So like, I by chance, I ran into different things that kind of like, I guess kind of helped helped me through the way and just luck and shit, you know. Um, I was older, so I, I could manage myself really well. I, I learned to fucking just manage the suck. Uh, mountains phase, I, I fell pretty hard and uh, I, I severed a I did a brachial plexus nerve damage, so the arm, the right arm, was dead. And so I wasn't gonna say shit. I got through fucking Florida phase, and, and you know I took a swim in the fucking in the swamp <laughs> with one arm and struggled for a little bit. Had some Ranger buddies help me out, you know, but um. No, man, I got through it, 
you know, Lord willing, and as well as uh, I graduated the same day, the anniversary date to Devin's death, and that was kind of the motivation for just trying to go straight through. Um, <clears throat> going to the book, I, I graduated from Ranger School right on time, December 16th, and I was the Distinguished Honor graduate. The downside was that I had severed my nerve, as you just said. Staff Sergeant Barraza was killed in Iraq from wounds he sustained on a mission. Yeah. He and Sergeant Dale Brem died while clearing a building in Ramadi, Iraq, when they came under enemy fire. We lost two of the most influential and well-respected individuals in our battalion, and I was angry about it. Staff Sergeant Barraza's death hit me hard, perhaps more so because I wasn't there in country with him when it happened. And that's because you're of your shoulder, yeah. so you didn't get to go on deployment. Um, I believed he was a better man than me. I would have gladly traded places with him. Would he have died if I had been there? Like most men and women in the military, I had survivor's guilt. If those bullets had hit me instead, maybe Staff Sergeant Barraza would still be alive. When his body was flown home, I was one of the soldiers detailed to work his funeral. That was one of the hardest things I ever had to do, but it was an honor I treasure to this day. Men like Barraza were heroes, and the fact that they were killed solidified my decision to leave the army. He was a badass dude. Mm -hmm. Always mad that I was upset with him, and I, that was the last conversation we had. I was, I was frustrated, you know, and I never got a chance to tell him how how much of an impact he's made in my life, how influential as a as a leader he was. And um, I'm no superhero. I don't know if I would I was even going to be in the same room as him during that time, but the should have could have would have um, ate me alive, mm -hmm. and it. He wanted to get out and he wanted to go do other things and so did Dale and uh, I felt like fuck this number game is starting to hit really close to home and so uh, I wanted to kind of get out as well and so I was ready to leave. Mm -hmm. But you still had another deployment to do right? <laughs> yeah. How's that psychologically when you're on deployment and you don't like kind of want to be there? Yeah that was hard that was I, I my wife asked me before when we first met like you ever smoke cigarettes I'm like no, I was like, well, yeah, I smoked five in my last deployment because every time there was a mission, I was like, thank God, because I kept thinking like, oh, it's my last mission. It's it's no different than Dale and 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 Rick, how they were waiting to get out and they were gonna come home and get out of the military, and I'm sitting here doing the same thing. I was getting out three months after this deployment, so I'm like, get through this fucking deployment and start packing your shit. You know what I mean? And so every mission, I was like. Motherfucker, and I'm a team leader. I'm a team leader, and sometimes acting squad leader because we had this, we had our squad leader got injured, and so we're just managing this team. And every deploy, every mission, I'm like, "Fuck, dude! Like, please!" And that's like the worst way. It's the worst. It's the worst because like I don't want to be like that. I want to be like fucking excited about this shit. Mm -hmm. But every every time we went out, I was like nervous, and I hated that feeling. And I knew I was like, "It's time, dude! Shut it down!" Because were, my mind was too wrapped up. And dude, the first the first mission coming back from Rick and Dale's death was five dudes on roof waiting for us and they fucking actually engaged on us, right? And it was just like, and I had fucking two, I think three new guys, 17 years, like 18 years old, sorry, 18, 19 year old dudes. And I'm like, fuck. And I'm telling them like, be ready, be ready, be ready. We're the main, we're the main effort. And then they went to go breach the door. 
the the uh, the gate and they start engaging us in in the in the alleyway and as much as I was comfortable with it, it was like, oh yeah, they're firing us. Right, fuck, boom, aim the guns, let's go, boom, boom, boom. And our, our gun team's firing up there, my, my saw gunner's firing up there. And we're just kind of organizing traffic here and trying to see what's going out the back end. And uh, the whole time, like, motherfucker, dude. <laughs> like, this is like the one thing I don't need, but like, let's figure it out, you know what I mean? And, you know, we were able to engage on some dudes, we were able to take out that building, we dropped some bombs on it, this and that. Then you come back, I'm like, fuck, give me that cigarette. Boom, smoke a cigarette, I'm like coughing. <laughs> You know what I mean? But I'm like, it was just like I needed something that I can just say like, all right, that's out of the way. You know what I mean? And when that deployment fucking ended, I knew I was like, fuck this. Yeah, I'm getting the fuck out of it. Yeah, I never had that experience, but I was always worried about guys that were nervous, guys that were like scared, because then all of a sudden, sometimes that affects the way they act. Yeah, and it and in my opinion. If you're more aggressive, you're gonna have better chance of survival, and yeah. you're gonna help the team more. Like if you're scared, you're nervous, it's gonna you're gonna hesitate. You're not gonna want to do something, and it can really fuck things up bad if you're that guy. And like I said, luckily for me, like I never had to feel like that. Yeah. But I can't honestly, if I try and think about that, what that must be like to be like, I don't want to be doing this, because it's one thing to be like, oh, I don't want to be cold or I don't want to be yeah. freaking tired. I want to go to sleep and I want to be warm. But it's another thing to be like. I don't want to die, and I'm going towards a building with bad guys in it that yeah. want to kill me. That's got to be that's got to be rough on the no, freaking it, psyche. Bro. Yeah, dude. And I'm like, I, I I'm all about like doing my job right. And I have these fucking three kids yeah. that I'm like I'm responsible for. So I couldn't be a fucking bitch about it. I had to yeah. like that was the hardest thing. I was like, these fucks depend on me. You yeah. know what I mean? And so like the whole time like. I don't even think I called home the whole deployment because then like my grandfather died, my uncle died, and it's like, let's just get through this shit. Like let's focus here, let's get done. And once that was done, I was like, I'm out. So you get out. Um, you say two options in your head: firefighter or border patrol. You applied for thirty jobs. Yeah, and th- well, those were just random jobs. Random like, just jobs. Anything. Anything. I was like an Indeed, or I think at the time it was some other thing. <laughs> but like, yeah, just like, yeah, that works. That works. That works. You. Uh, Look like it looks like you're gonna get picked up for Tucson Fire Department. Yeah. Which would have been, you know, Fucking obviously a money. big badass fire department. Awesome. And right as you're thinking you're gonna get picked up, they go on a hiring freeze. Yeah. And meanwhile, you got how many kids you got now? Two kids? I had three at the time. So three kids, you got bills to pay. Yeah, dude. I mean yeah. hey everybody, just if you don't know, if you just get out of the army after what was it, four year stint? Four years. If you get out of the army after four years, you don't get anything. Yep. You, there's no retirement. Mm-mm. I guess you can still go to the VA if you want to wait for a long time to get like your <laughs> your broken arm looked at or something. Yeah. But you're out, dude. And and that's got to be well. That's why you say in the book like you just you were just like I need a freaking job. Yeah, that's why I played. Yeah, I, I was like, dude, I gotta pay these bills. I ended up going to full to school full time and worked full time just to cover my fucking bills because you get comfortable living at it. I was the E five jump pay and NCO pay in the special operations, right? So you got paid pretty decent. And then you get it, and you're like, "Oh fuck, we got to somehow cover that big gap of money that not a re- one job is not going to cover." Yeah, yeah so I, w- I got a job at the prison pretty fast, and then I was going to school full time to, to for firefighting, just to get my my fire one and two, and my EMT and all that shit, and just so I can survive. Um, you end up eventually at a small department in Coolidge, Arizona. You get hired there. And uh, you say, soon after joining, I was called to fight a fire that occurred on the tour bus of a musician called Kenna. Yeah. I've never heard of Kenna. Echo? 
They were they they're, they're, they're small, but okay. I remember they were on e, they're on MTV because I went home right away and Googled it. I was like, who the <laughs> fuck is this dude? You know what I mean? Uh, you say I was the lead on the hose, but as I was fighting the fire, I couldn't help but feel disappointment. I had spent the last four years of my life doing some of the craziest stuff imaginable, trying to fill that void by fighting fires. It wasn't working for me. So you got that off to the first one, huh? Bro, it was, see, it was the first one where I was actually laying on the hose. The first one we went to, the house was just fully engulfed, and I just watched it. I remember my father coming home smelling like smoke. Mm. And I'm like, damn, dope, right? You know what I mean? I mean, I used to love when I hugged him and I could smell it. I was like, that's fucking badass, dude. Yeah. You know? And then the movie Backdraft came out, and then you're like, dude, oh, this is fire, snap, bro. I forgot yeah, about that. Yeah. Backdraft. So point, then you're like, yeah. this is dope career. Uh, and so it was the first time I was finally done with all the training, and I went into this like this crazy ass little small fire department. And I'm gonna lead on the hose, and you know this thing is fucking engulfed, and I'm hitting it, and it's hot in there, and I'm just spraying, and I'm like, yeah, fuck that. This is for me. <laughs> and it wasn't just wasn't scary, wasn't intimidating, wasn't. It was the first fire call out of like. Everything's EMS at this time, so it's the kind of the, the things have shifted in the fire world. And I was, my mind wasn't. I wanted excitement. I wanted fear. I wanted, I wanted something more, something more. And I remember getting out of, out of the tour bus. The fire's done. It was a battery that just leaked and caused the fire. Whatever the fuck. Uh, I remember taking off my gear and I actually left it there. I told the chief, it's like, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm done. Damn. Thank you. And my wife at the time was like, you just wasted two years of schooling <laughs> for firefighting. I was like, yeah, yeah, but. Nah, my heart's not in this shit. I'm out. Dang. Yeah. She's like, uh, cool, what's for dinner? <laughs> Who's paying for groceries? Well, I was working at the, at the I was working at the prison stuff. Oh, okay. And so, so it was like a volunteer thing, thing and I was trying to transition into Oh, it. that was a volunteer firefighting? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, cool. Well, yeah, that's yeah. cool. So no, no, I didn't I, yeah. I kept the, the family stuff food. <laughs> uh so then you then now you decide, and I'm fast forward, you decide now it's time to go border patrol. Um, you got to go through the testing pro- process, the application process, a written portion, oral exam, physical exam, background check, lie detector test. How's the lie detector test? I didn't have to do it. How'd you get around I that? I had a top secret clearance. Oh, nice. I still held my TS clearance with yeah. SCI. And so they were like, hey, you know, we saw you had a little drug history. I'm like, yeah, that's, that was a high school, just kidding. You know, mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you have the TS clearance, we're just not going to give you the the, the light detectors. I was like, oh good, <laughs> oh goody, yeah man. That was the one. I've heard some good stories about that lie detector test. Dude. Apparently, that thing is good to go. Although I got two stories. One, one of my friends went to the agency, yeah. and one of them went to the FBI. And the one that went to the agency was a guy that kind of like you. You have friends that like lie sometimes, yeah. And actually, it's kind of habitual, and they kind of lie a lot. But everyone kind of knows it, so it's all. It's like, dude, it's just like, oh, just it's just Fred, dude. He just lies. He was one of those guys. Yeah. He would just lie like about random shit. Like mm. he'd say, you know, you'd go out and he'd be like, "Oh, I got that girl's number." And you he didn't get any girl's <laughs> number. He didn't talk to a girl, but he'd be like, "Yo, so he's like always telling you like these yeah. lies, but they're just little lies and it's all good. We all get it." And then I had another friend that was like kind of a wild man, but it was like pretty honest dude. And so the liar went to the agency and he's like he comes back and he's like uh, I said, did you have to do the lie detector test? And he's like, yeah, I flatlined it. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, I just flatlined the whole thing. He's like, anything they asked me, it didn't, it didn't, affect, it didn't affect me. And so, A, that could have been a lie. Yeah. Right? He could have been lying <laughs> yeah. about that, right? <laughs> so we don't know. But also, if you just lie all the time, maybe your heart rate's just fine and yeah. your sweat's just fine and it's just no factor. The other dude that did the FBI, he, 
I was like, oh, did you do the lie detector? He goes, bro, that thing, like he couldn't lie about anything. <laughs> he said it was going off the rails. Like anytime they asked him anything remotely suspicious, that thing was <laughs> He goes, I just had to just come clean on everything. I was like, yeah, cool. So you didn't have to take it. Good for you, lucky you. Um, dude, I have another friend that failed like a lie detector to test for a police department. And they were like, have you ever been with a prostitute? And he was like, no. And like, but in his mind, he had like, gone on a date with a girl and she was like, I'm only gonna go with you if you buy me dinner. And he was like, okay, and he that's, bought her dinner. Yeah. And, it, and that's they, what happens. Yeah. People yeah. overthink everything yeah. and they start digging into stuff like, well, is that considered that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, the Border Patrol lie detector is, is known for being hard. I've known some really, really good dudes. He's like, one kid told me, he goes, yeah, dude, I stole uh, uh, some, some candy from my mom when I was like seven. I'm like, you fucking kidding me? They, they pinged you for that one? You know what I mean? Like, I don't know, but like, I think they ask a question and you start digging deep for all this fucking weird shit and Bro, then they're like, yeah. There's a TV show where they put just normal people on lie detector tests and I, I can't see how that's good. Like, they're asking the husband. The husband and the wife are there. They're both on lie detectors tests. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> And they ask the you know like the wife will be like, do you ever think about other men? I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> this dude doesn't want to know this. Yeah. This dude does not want to know oh, this. Man. This is a lose lose situation. Yeah. Who's signing up for this? It's so. crazy that they still use the lie detector test when like you know it can't be admitted in court. All these things like you mm -hmm. know like I guess it's a valid question and answer thing, but like. Man, I feel like we lose a lot of really good dudes who are just kind of knuckleheads. Yeah, you know what I mean? yeah, yeah, for sure. And it should be like, yeah. Like, hey, if you did something stupid, you'd be like, yeah, I did this, it was really stupid. And I guess maybe some of the stupid things that you do might be disqualifying. So yeah. maybe you're in a position <laughs> where you kind of got to lie about them. But yeah, it's, yeah. So anyways, you didn't have to take it. Thank no, God. thank God. Because then you made it to the Border Patrol. Uh, <laughs> and then the whole process takes like two years again, just for people that are listening to this that might be interested in Border Patrol. The whole process took, it took two a long time. Yeah, to it, get in there. Finally, um, you go to the academy. Yeah. And the academy is... A really good curriculum you talk about it in yeah. here um, the, the whole thing is in the federal law enforcement training center in Artesia Arizona, uh, New Mexico yeah yeah let's see 3,500 acres it's massive That's yeah a, it's a it's a good nice training facility. facility is it all is that just Border Patrol or is it everybody no, I think they like have, other? it's pretty much um, a lot of custom stuff so you have ice you have I saw some marshals there you have different different agencies you even have some some um, federal uh, native mm -hmm. law enforcement training there but for the most part you got border patrol got it got it um, and while you're out there you you got to learn all kinds of stuff like I mean it's crazy you got a list of stuff in here radios and yeah, radiation insane. detection and freight train treks and fraudulent fraudulent documentation processing detention physical techniques uh, Defensive tactics, less than lethal training, just it's firearms, obviously, tactics, communications, critical thinking, risk management, interdictions, active threat res, and you talk about all this stuff in here, I'm just going through it. Yeah. Tactical light, low light operations, basic ATV familiarization, Spanish language training. Uh, and then you go on to say that like the places, the way that they train you guys is very hands-on, yeah. dynamic, uh, lots of scenario-based training. It's and again, you got a huge section in here about this stuff, but um, you got this part that says, I remember my first day in basic training when the drill sergeant yelled at me, tuck that chin in. That was all it took. I was no longer a gray man. For those of you who aren't watching on YouTube, we could say that you've been well endowed in the chin department. <laughs> <laughs> Once a drill sergeant calls you out, you're a forever target. Additionally, I had two full sleeves of random tattoos that I've been hiding, which was 
uh, very common for the special operations community. I knew they would discovered once we put on our PT gear also, whether I liked it or not, I just looked like a former military guy. When we were directly told to raise our hands if we had prior military background, I raised my hand as instructed as I did not want to risk an integrity violation. When one of the training cadre asked me about my military service, I did not volunteer much, just that I was an infantryman in the army. Sure enough, my worst fears were realized. The cadre pulled me out to the front of the formation, divided us into two different sections. There were 60 trainees in total, making 30 trainees in each section. Suddenly, I was in charge of 29 new friends. So. This is like your academy experience. Yeah, the you academy. get put in charge, of course. Um, yeah, you don't want to be in, like, you want to show up to these things and just be a gray man. And it's like, they ask who's military. And then you're like, fuck, okay. Yeah. And then, what'd you do? You, what'd you do? Like, one, guy's, one guy was a cook. They was like, all right, you cook, you're going to go take over that. And then you go over here. And uh, yeah, dude, so now I'm in charge of all these fucking dudes. And I'm scared as fuck for my own self. I'm like, I got to worry about these fucking dudes. How long was the school in total? Uh, I think I spent six months total, and that included my. I did the Spanish portion. I don't speak fluent Spanish mm-hmm. at all, so mm-hmm. I had to do that too. But it was pretty long. It was, it was pretty long. Uh, paramilitary environment. Yeah. You know what I mean? They did the whole thing. It talked about in the book how they do their version of a shark attack, which for the average civilian is probably pretty intimidating. Mm-hmm. Uh, trying to get us to. <laughs> you're like, oh, fuck. But uh, I was a drill sergeant already at the time, right? I've already been, been a drill sergeant. So oh, because like, you were in the Army Reserves, drill yeah, sergeant. Yeah. That's right. So I watched the whole thing, and I was like, I was pretty cool. But uh, yeah, it's paramilitary environment and crazy amount of training. PT was tough. The, the cadre there was pretty. It was, it was solid, solid crew, and the instructors were great at instructing. So you were there, almost like college. It was almost like like law enforcement college. You'd show up, you do your PT, and then you go to your classes and you study and learn. And you have tests and so on and so forth. And so the crazy part about it was like weekends, like you were off, and so you're like, oh, so what do you do? I was like, well, you just drink really, and so it kind of turns into this. Like, you either study or you drink, and, you know, you either fall into one or the other, and, you know, sometimes I fell into both, and it was just a fucking mess, and I barely got out of that motherfucker alive, dude. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it was cool. I, I liked, there was a, one of the cool parts about it is, is some of the scenario-based training, they would hire, you know, some real authentic, like, Hispanics, right? Like, these are... They spoke fluent Spanish. They portrayed as, like, an illegal immigrant, and they would make it challenging to just interview right to ask them questions you pull them over and they'd be they'd either fucking run on you or they would talk shit to you and you'd have to try and manage the scenario you do it you, you'd have to investigate the scenario and ask people you know and so it was pretty cool it was yeah. a uh, i did you know i was a psyoper for a while too and and the the training for that was very similar where they had a full like city and it wasn't no different there at, at Fletzy. they had a full like kind of the environment was real and, and it made it it made it good it made it more realistic huh. you didn't speak spanish growing up yeah, no. And so you get thrown in, what is it, a three-month course to yeah. learn it? Yeah. Dude, I went to college, and I had to take a language, and I took Spanish, and I had a SEAL buddy who was Mexican, and we were in, and so he grew up speaking Spanish, and I got an A in the class, because it was like reading and like the grammar, and yeah. I was an English major, so like the grammar, and and he got like a B, right? Yeah. Maybe even, no, he didn't get a C, but you know, he would be so mad, you know, cause he could speak Spanish. But like, I can't understand one single word that yeah. like a, a Mexican person says to me. Like even when I was getting an A in the class, like right in the class, if I went to a Mexican restaurant and ordered some food, like, and they, if I ordered something in Spanish, and I, I'm sure they're messing with me too, like gringo shows up and trying to throw some Espanol at us. Like they, I'm like, yo, all right, bro, you got me. You got me, dude. Yeah, I'm just, I, I order food really well until they ask a question. Then you're like, yeah, just bean and cheese burrito, please. That's all. Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> like, like I try and like put up a front that I got this. And then as soon as they ask some question, like, 
you know, flour or corn in Spanish. I'm like, shit, I can't remember that one. <laughs> but, <laughs> you, know, yeah. you know Vic? Victor? Yeah, I know yeah, a lot like, of Vic's, like, yeah. he, uh, well, he worked construction mm. and, like, had a construction oh, company. Oh, yeah, yeah, Vic. And he, yeah. he, he's, you know, a Mexican dude, and he didn't speak Spanish, and he, like, went full bore studying and training because he said when he would go onto a construction site and, like, want to talk to the Mexican dudes and have to speak English to him, he said he just felt, like, just total <laughs> yeah, disrespect. They just look at him like, bro, what is wrong with you? My whole life is yep. that, dude. I talk about a part in the book where it says, like, you know, in some friends, some friend groups, I'm the beaner, the white friend groups, right? And then <laughs> to my Mexican friends, I'm the white guy. You know what I mean? And you're like, fuck, I don't fit in anywhere, dude. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I'm the coconut to them, and yeah. the other guy's, I'm the beaner. And it's just this crazy world of, like, it was no different being in the border patrol. Yeah. You know, they see your last name, they're like, Vargas, que pasó? Yeah. And I'm like, I don't fucking know, bro. Yeah. Okay, like, I, I learned enough to work. But the crazy part was, like, the military, the Ranger Battalion sent me to go do Pashtu. So I did nine uh -huh. months of Pashtu. Damn. Right? I did six months in the concurrent training for the next three, right? Mm -hmm. And so I could actually hold my own in Pashtu when I was in Afghanistan because you used it so fucking much. And... I talked to someone about that, like some intellectual person. They said, I believe it's the languages use two different sides of your brain. So, so that's why Spanish just never, I don't fucking know Spanish still. My parents spoke Spanish to each other. Damn. I can, yeah, I just was, I was around it my whole life. I still can't grasp it as well as others, right? My wife, she can understand Spanish, but it's Puerto Rican Spanish is slightly different, right? It's like super fast as fuck, right? So I'm like, I don't fucking know shit. There's way more attitude. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, a lot more, yeah, a lot more anger. Um, Hostility, son. Hostility. <laughs> we go to Puerto Rico and people speak to me in Spanish, and I'm like, hey, what the fuck? Is he saying? I don't know shit, dude. But the Spanish became, you know, you, you know enough to work the job. You know enough mm -hmm. to interview. You know enough. But you, you if you don't have fluent Spanish, it, it can be challenging at times because... You know, there's conversations you really need to understand that's happening. You know what I mean? The discussions yeah. that go on between people. And, and uh, yeah, it made the job challenging, man. And Did your parents uh, purposely not, not teach you Spanish? Yeah, it's kind of common for, like, you know, the, the first generation, second generation to, yeah. to try and try and assimilate to, to people, you I, know. I had a buddy in the SEAL teams, and he, his dad, his dad kind of barely spoke English. Yeah. And his dad would not speak Spanish to him yeah, he because won. he wanted his son to speak English. Yeah, and it's the and, same. Yeah, My mom and dad were trying to teach my brother both, and he became a late speaker. And it scared them. They're like, well, fuck, hey, that's too much. Let's just keep English, and then we'll teach him Spanish. And eventually they go from speaking Spanish to each other to by the time I'm 16, I don't even hear them speak Spanish until they're speaking to someone else. Mm -hmm. Our household became like an American, just, just English. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And so... Uh, yeah, man, I still to this day wish I spoke Spanish and me and my wife have Duolingo and shit. You know, we're trying, bro, but like, it's just tough, man. Wait, does she speak Spanish? No, she doesn't. She speaks Spanish to her mom. She can't, but she doesn't have the confidence to speak in a conversation to, right. to a random stranger. Right, right. Um, all right, fast forward through a bunch of stuff here. And again, get the book for all, all the good details and information here. But uh, just before I left the Academy, Border Patrol agent Robert Rosas. Rosas? Rosas. Rosas. Rosas was murdered on July 23rd, 2009 while performing his duties in a remote border area near Campo, California. Agent Rosas was responding to suspicious activity in a notorious, in an area notorious for alien and drug smuggling when he was shot and killed by unidentified assailants. assailants. This was the first line of duty death I'd experienced in my border patrol career and I hadn't even started as an agent yet. It remains one of the most vivid memories of my time at the academy. It was a rude awakening to the potential hazards of the job. Reading the information of the agent's murder was chilling. He was shot and killed with his own service pistol. 
I imagined the struggle and fight that happened and eventually led to his murder and it frustrated me. I hated hearing about it, but inspired me to take my training even more seriously and challenge myself to be the best prepared agent ever to take to the field to defend our nation's borders. He got like a rude awakenings in both, you know, with Pat Tillman and and Agent Rosas here yeah. getting killed. Like that's yeah. When we heard about the details, we were like, "Fuck!" And you you haven't I haven't done the job yet. I'm just practicing the job, you know. And and then to hear that, it gets even more intimidating. Like, well, why is he alone? Well, like, well, because he had to be because there's so fucking few of us on the border. You know what I mean? And he just went to go cover his area and go check a bug that went off and. And um, when he did that, he got pretty much, like, ambushed. Mm-hmm. And uh, whether he was killed with a service pistol or not, I, I still don't know the full details of those the rumors that were told. But, like, it's just fucking terrifying. To, to It's so opposite of what you do in the military, mm-hmm. of, like, having a group of dudes with you. You know what I mean? Everyone's got guns and ready for the fight. Mm-hmm. Now you're just alone. And the... The approach for a border patrol agent is not aggressive by nature. It's just, it's more of a passive kind of interdiction. Most people come across or don't have the intentions to fight. They have the intentions to come across illegally so they can pursue whether it may be work or whatnot. And so we don't go to a, a known area or sensor that goes off with our guns drawn and walk in slowly. Mm-hmm. Like, even if it's late at night, you don't do that. Because that's that's not the posture. It's it's it would be it would be almost too intimidating. Like, what are you doing that for? Like, it would look like, what's wrong with you, dude? It's just probably illegal. You know what I mean? You just stop and say, hey, part it. You know. So you come out with it. You get your pistol and you get your your flashlight. And you're just kind of like looking around, and then you're confirming if it, if it's real or not. Like, oh yeah, hey, yeah, I do got I got footsteps, mm-hmm. and then you call for backup. You know what I mean? So that's what that's the, kind of the process. And so uh, I imagine he was going out there doing that, and but before he even call for backup, you know, got jumped. So that's how you graduate. That's what happens. Uh, you end up getting stationed at Eagle Pass North Station yeah. in the Del Rio sector. Does like different AOs have different reputations? Yeah, absolutely. So absolutely. is Eagle Pass like a, a the, hot AO? No, at the time it wasn't. At okay. the time it was considered to be very mild. It was just known for like fast traffic. I mean, because from where the border is to the street, the main highway, and some areas, it would take 10 minutes. It would take like no time. They get just boots on the ground, boom, boom, they're gone. You know what I mean? And then there's other areas that are you. If they pass that street and continue moving forward, most of the objective that that area was to get past the checkpoint and then get picked up. And so that would be probably more like a seven, eight mile walk. And then if they decide to miss that, they can even keep going charge to San Antonio, which is impossible. But they all think it's fucking close as fuck, right? And so it's like twenty miles of walking, and then like fuck, I'm not in San Antonio yet. And like no, bro, you got to fuck another, you know, fifty miles. So. It's really interesting, the traffic there, but it wasn't, it was like you'd have, I don't know, a good day you'd catch 10 to 15. You're like, damn, that's a good, we're busy. That's what we'd say, like, that's busy. Mm-hmm. Now, like, Del Rio sector is the busiest sector in the nation, and it's not uncommon for it. What, the other day, I think they had 9,000 come over in a day? Whew. Yeah. Yeah, so it's times have changed. And damn, again, that's horrifying. policies have changed. And just real quick to get yeah. into that was that, the policy at the time, Obama was the president, in my area was called Operation Streamline. And so anyone who entered illegally into America went to jail immediately for whether it was six days, 30 days for their first time, right? The second time would be close to a year. 
and then so on. So it keep gaining gaining time, right? And so it was it was a way to deter and prevent people from just like thinking they could just come across and just get dropped off, right? Because before then, people would come across, you you process them, and then you just drop them back off into Mexico or deport them back to their country of origin. So in this time, it was like, nah, now you're going to jail. Fuck you, kind of thing, right? And that made people like, well, don't go there. Well, let's just go towards Arizona because Arizona, you're just taking a trip back and forth. They'll just drop you off and you, you have three attempts in Arizona before they even give a shit. Oh, and so it was different depending on where you every, crossed? Yeah, every sector kind of has a different policy, each state too as well. So it just depends on where that is. In our area at the time, I believe it was from Big Ben all the way down to Laredo was all streamlined, Operation Streamlined. So like no matter what, you came across, you're getting, you're getting put into to, to jail. Mm-hmm. And then Arizona, you'd have guys that entered three, four, five, six times, and there was no jail time. It was just expedited removal. So you basically, if you're in that situation, you just keep going until you make it across. Right, exactly. Well, in that, yeah, in that scenario, it's like, well, why cross here? Go over there. Yeah. And so then you'd see a massive influx in that, that direction. It's just their communication is like top notch. It's like it's crazy to say, but mm-hmm. that's really what it was. As soon as they know, like, hey, don't come here. You're going to go to jail. Okay, where else? Check. Uh, Back to the book here. Once you arrive at your duty station, you must complete two years of training before you can be considered a journeyman. A journeyman is a level of competency one can reach, and the Border Patrol recognizes journeyman status by considering that person for a permanent position. Until you reach journeyman status, you can be released from the agency for anything that doesn't represent them in a good light. In those two years, you go through several levels of field training, which is basically what most people would call OJT, on-the-job training. You're also simultaneously participating in computer-based training and testing to ensure you are still proficient in all the subjects you learned at the academy. So this is the situation that you're in right now, uh, or at this point in the book. You're not even a full-time employee when you make it through the academy. You're a full-time, but you're not considered a permanent position. Okay. So meaning you can get fired. Yeah. It's it's the two years of them just saying, let's just see how he does. You know what I mean? If you turn out to be a complete turd, they could just re- release you. <laughs> you know. And so our job is, as soon as you become a permanent position, now you know like this job is legit. Now you're a permanent federal position. You can apply for any federal position at that point and laterally over. So this is, the, this is what you want. This is status you want. But you got to get there. And you, you can't just be a complete shithead. Uh, fast forward a little bit. <clears throat> I had been working the line for less than a week when things heated up. The line refers to the term holding the line, a common title for the border boundary and what the job of a border patrol agent entails. While our FTO was driving us back to the station to wrap up our day, we saw a group of what looked like to be runners straight from the sign you see on the San Diego border highways. This is a familiar sign seen with borders on the border indicating the potential of, of border crossers, a big yellow diamond-shaped sign with silhouettes depicting a family of three. Three individuals flashed past us and hopped the short fence to try and get away. My heart was pounding. I was confused yet excited. A huge deluge of thoughts and emotions went through my mind. Here we go, I said to myself. I had just landed the job I had been fighting for so long to attain. I had been training for months, and now for the first time in my new career, I was about to apprehend a group of people crossing the border illegally. The adrenaline screamed through my veins. We jumped out of the vehicle and gave chase. We easily hopped the short fence that the runners had crossed. I teamed up with another agent and went one way, and my other two partners, who were both trainees, went another. Bad luck, I picked the wrong way. However, the other team approached the runners with so much energy that the three individuals gave up quickly. As I walked up to support my fellow agents, I noticed that the three people apprehended were a 40-year-old male, 40-year-old female, and a female child around eight years old. I don't know why, but this moment 
hit me like a ton of bricks. For some reason or another, I looked at the adult female and thought of my grandmother. And I looked at the little girl and thought of my mother. As I stood there over the three illegals and helped with the field interview, the moment came and became bittersweet for me. I am half Mexican and half Puerto Rican. My grandmother on my mother's side was born in Chihuahua, Mexico and crossed the border illegally when she was 18 years old. The story that was told to me and I believe to be true was that her sister, Francisca, was born in the United States and thus an American citizen, had died at a young age due to an illness. As far as my mother can remember, my grandmother's name was Francisca as well. To make a long story short, my grandmother stole the identity of her sister in order to become an American citizen. My mother was raised in a small town near El Paso and the Mexican border. I think you can I think that you can now understand how, knowing this story about my heritage, I have always been conflicted regarding illegal immigration and border security. I'm extremely proud to be an American of Mexican descent, and I will continue to uphold the same values and beliefs that my grandmother had in her desire to become an American. But there I was, a third generation Mexican American whose grandmother crossed in the United States illegally, who was about to apprehend some individuals doing essentially the same thing for the same reason to have a chance at a better life. The feeling was surreal, and my entire time as a Border Patrol agent, I wrestled with doing my duty and my empathy for the people we apprehended. That's a, a huge part of the kind of underlying theme of the book, you know, yeah. that you've got going on in your head. Yeah. Well, I've just, I don't know, I'm, I'm empathetic, man. I get it. I get why people would want to come to America. This place is fucking dope. You know what I mean? It's dope. The opportunities you can get, mm-hmm. you know, the, the hard, how hard you work and the opportunities you can present for yourself. Yep. So like in that first apprehension, I'm just like, fuck, this is crazy. Because I know my grandmother came here illegally. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I know she stole the identity of her sister just so she can be here in America. And I don't, it's not lost on me how important that was for her. You know what I mean? And how important it was for her, her kids to be American citizens and for them to have the same opportunities. Mm-hmm. And that for me was like, she wanted it so bad. She would steal the identity of her sister. And she was so patriotic about it. Like her kids joined the military. My uncle served, my, my, my grandfather served. Like they were a patriotic family. And for them to have so much love and respect for the United States of America, like who was I to turn my back on that same dream mm-hmm. and to not want to continue to uphold that. But yeah. damn, that shit's wild to see it. Yeah, I think you do a great job here. You break this down um, a little bit further in the book. You say, consider border security in the context of your own personal home. Here are a few questions to frame the discussion. Do you care who enters your personal home? Why? What actions or investments do you make to ensure you can control who and what enters your personal home? Do you believe that you have the right to determine who enters and stays in your personal home? When someone comes to your home, where do you expect them to go? What do you expect them to do? And it's commonly accepted and in most states codified into law that if someone attempts to enter your home without your permission, you have, do you have a right to see them as a threat and prevent their entry? So these are like questions that... Pertains to the border yeah, as well. Yeah, pertains to the border. Yeah. Like, you got to see it that way, right? You got to see this situation as this is our home and we should have the right to know who exactly is coming into our home and how long we want them to stay and how we determine who's allowed to come into our home, you know? 
And if someone is forcing their way into our home, how do we deem that a threat? And how, how do you handle that threat? Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's this interesting thing where when you have this conversation with most people, like it's an emotionally investing conversation. It, it completely, it's so divisive. Mm-hmm. People are either one way or the other because they feel like they have to be. They feel like they have to be because I feel most people are forced to feel one or the other extreme because those are the agendas that are being pushed. Those are the ideas that are publicly an- announced. Mm-hmm. Their lack of information of the subject doesn't matter. It's just the fact that they have to choose one side or the other, right? Yeah. And when you start to really understand this, it's not so cut and dry. Yeah. You have Homeland Security, which is established after 9-11. You have immigration, which has always been part of our country. And you can't be the one guy that says, close the border, that's not fair. Like, close the border, no one can come in. Well, that's not America, right? Our, our country is, we have dignity, right? That's not America. So you can't say that. And then you can't the other way say, well, we'll open the border and let everyone in. Well, then you don't have a fucking country. This country that we're all so fruitful in, we're all so, uh, uh, the opportunities we've all presented ourselves, we can't say that either. So there's a middle space here, but both of these have to be met. You have to have a strong immigration policy that allows people to enter our country, that allows it to continue to be this country of immigrants, and, and they have to thrive and, and bring value to this country. But in that same immigration side, they have to also want the future of America to be fruitful, right? They can't sit here and say, I want to take everything that America has, but then I want to leave. Like, no, you have to invest into this country because you want this opportunity for your kids too. You have to maintain this. And then the other side of security is like, no, but we also have to know who the fuck is coming in here and who we can say no to because of the fact of, of our own risk, our own safety of our families and our kids. And so find the balance of that, but you can't shut it off so much that we don't even allow good people to come and prosper because this is what America stands on. And so the conversation is actually more in the middle than we think. I think what we're doing is fighting both arguments like open the border, close the border, like wait, 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 there's more there. It's actually both. You know, we need to open the border to the right, right people, and we have to see who's coming in. And then we also have to close the border to the people that don't, that don't deserve to be here. And so it's this middle answer that we're all going to agree on, right? Everyone's going to say, do you, do you want to secure the border? Everyone's going to say yes. Okay, but what you see is security, and what you see is security, and what I see security, it could be starkly different. And so we have to find out what that answer is instead of just speaking in just surface-level communication. Mm-hmm. And that's why I wrote the book. is like, well, first, I believe we need to understand what the career field of Border Patrol is and what it entails for you to start really understanding and breaking down this seven-layer cake of information. Yeah, there's so much, in, so much knowledge that's not common knowledge. Right. And yet everyone has their opinion <laughs> right <laughs> you know what i mean yeah. i just saw one the other day a meme echo charles yep it was like well i'm done being an expert on ukraine russia war i've now moved on to being an expert <laughs> into the israeli gaza war so you true know, palestinian war it's like and everyone's an expert about it now because right. it's been in the news and they went and read two articles and right. now they know everything then it's the same you know that's what i found as i read the book i was like there's a lot of things that people don't know about yeah. there's a lot of things going on that need to be considered you know and the, the other question like with your with your house, like how many guests can you have in your house? Like yeah. at a certain point, you're like, yeah, full capacity. Hey man, the party's over. Like right. I can't, no one else. We're out of like the septic <laughs> tank won't hold any more <laughs> activity, you know? Yeah. So you got to consider that as well. Right. For and, resources, you yeah. know, and, and the resources of people that want to come here and bust their ass and work. Yeah. And we, we need those people. Yeah. Um, so if you shut down the border completely and there's no one coming in, we're, we're going to be, we're, we're going to have people that, we're gonna need people to do jobs that yeah. they're not there. Right. We don't have the people to do the job. So a lot to consider, man. That's for sure. Uh, 
Fast forward a little bit. Law and immigration enforcement agencies operate in the United States to ensure that legal immigration and trade are facilitated. Illegal immigration is prevented and mitigated at the border and immigration enforcement takes place inside the United States. These agencies include Customs and Border Protection, which is the Border Patrol Air and Marine Office of the Field Operations, and Immigration and Customs Enforcement, which is ICE. Um, I don't think people can, di- they, they don't know how to oh, differentiate sure. it, right? Sure. So they'll call us border control, and you're like, okay, that's the lack of knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. They call it border control. They see guys in blue uniforms and think that's border patrol. Some guy hits me up and she goes, they fucking harassed me at the POE. I'm like, border patrol doesn't work to POE, mm-hmm. right? Not They don't. There might make some, some extreme circumstance, but that's customs, okay? So don't blame the border patrol for that, right? That's that's ignorant, right? Then they're like, well, why are they housing them this way? Well, like, well, we don't house them. We, we actually have a small facility for very few because we don't expect a thousand people to come into. So who houses most, most of the time that you'll see the pictures and everyone's arguing, it's not Border Patrol, that's ICE, right? And like, so people don't know the difference between mm-hmm. each of these organizations, so they blame it all on the Border Patrol because they have the scope on them, right? For some reason, like, the news focuses on the easy target, right? But like, the best target you have is the border patrol. Like they are the valuable tool and asset on the border. They stop more drugs and they 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 help more people on the border than any other organization. It's the best humanitarian mission that's happening currently, and it's also the best apprehension of drugs inter, drug interdiction across the nation. But they get the shitty end of the argument all the time. They get blamed for it, mm-hmm. and so it's the weirdest. It's the weirdest thing. Uh, yeah, they're like the highest visibility, I guess, and and yeah. even the name, right? Yeah. When you think of like, oh, there's someone comes across the border, that's border patrol. Yeah. You don't think like, what is it? Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Yeah. Like everyone kind of knows ICE, but I don't know if they, they don't know what ICE does. It's just easier yeah. to just say Border Patrol. <laughs> yeah. Everybody's well, that's just what it Border is. Patrol. Right, right. That's all it is. Uh, then you, you go on here to talk about the just some of the basics of like the concept of citizenship and what's the difference between birth and naturalization and right of soil. Yeah. And like you know, that explains it. Um, yeah, that whole part is my goal is to explain to people yeah, for sure. how to become a citizen or how people even become citizens through birth. And it was just like I felt like this book is like there's a lot of layers to this book intentionally because my goal is like if this someone picks up this book to read my story of border patrol, they'll learn the career, but they'll also now learn how the fuck immigration even is a thing in, in America, and they'll also learn a little bit of history. Like they're gonna learn a lot from the book because like I feel like if you're gonna pick it up, you might as well learn as much as you fucking possibly can, yeah. and that's a big one. People don't know how to become a citizen or how like why is if, if a Mexican pregnant woman comes across and she gives birth to that baby, that baby's considered a U.S. citizen, right? There's arguments to that, right? But that's what it is in policy in place. That's what it is. Yeah, the the way you've woven in knowledge to the stories, like this is what a book should be. A book should be like, I'm getting cool stories, I'm following a thread of like the arc of a good story, and I know you're a writer anyway, so that's why you did it, but then it's also, you're getting information. So this is like even a, even like a, someone like you, that didn't want to read growing up, but <laughs> yeah. like you would be interested in this because there's a cool story to it, yeah. but then you're getting the information as well. So you talk through all that stuff, legal immigration, how that process works, illegal Im- immigration, which, you know, there's two different types of that, right? You got people that are coming across, running across the border down here in Tijuana, and then you've got people that come here on a tourist visa and they never leave, yes. right? Yeah. Um, the term immigrant applies to anyone who intends to abandon residency in their native country and permanently immigrate to the United States. You've got like, teaching the normal person what these things are so at least we can raise our level of discussion a little bit and have a little bit more of a of a 
whatever intelligent conversation about it and consider more than what you've heard in like three talking points on mainstream media yeah. which is going to leave you with like uh, just some basically an extreme idea right. of one way or the other either yeah. close the border or open the border yeah, that's that, like the two options it's the crazy thing like what i get in most interviews is so how would you fix it and it's like Mm-hmm. There's not a one answer to this. This is like layers of shit that we really yep. have to focus on. That's not one thing because like that's the simplest question you can ask me because that's how much the lack of information is about Border Patrol immigration and the policies and everything else is that, well, what's the answer? Well, it's it's more than just an answer. There's not a one plus one equals two answers. It's not how this works, right? This is like a recipe of a cake and you either fuck this up or fix it. You know what I mean? And like a little too much of anything can fuck things up on a, on a massive scale. This is... This is being having intelligent conversations about it, but also educating other countries on how our immigration works, mm-hmm. right? And explain to them, like, this is how it actually works. And also, let's remember, most of these people are probably being manipulated by, by smuggling, smuggling, you know, operations, right? That's a thing. That's a very big thing. So how about we teach them what the right thing is, right? We don't have counter operations on ex- education. We should, right? We, how, how about, why are they fleeing that country? How can us, as a, as a diplomatic approach to, like, how do we help that country be better, be more successful, yeah. right? A lot of things we can do instead of like close or open the border. That's that's like such a minute thing. It's like like it's so surface level. The the wall, the building a bigger wall does help in some areas because it helps funnel traffic spe- specific ways. Mm-hmm. It's just like it's any kind of like tactical operation, yeah. right? But the problem is like there is no one answer. There's nothing that's going to be like this fixes it. No, because then you have to talk about who's here in the country illegally, right? Who <laughs> who's had kids here that are illegally, and those kids are now here in the country, and those kids are now 15 years old and have no other idea that they're illegal. There's a lot of levels to this that no one wants to address. They just want to do the close the border, open the border, and that's why like part of this whole book. The intention of it is like, if this is just a start to educating people, I think there's a lot more conversation need to be had, but a lot more books that need to be be written about this concept. And this is just one. Here's the border patrol side of it. Yeah. Um. So so this time you're working at Eagle Pass, and that's pretty much like your mission day to day is you're going out and looking for people that are crossing. Yeah. And um, going through the the pr- procedures to process them once they've yeah. been caught. Yep. Um, you go into a big section here about border patrol culture. And uh, pretty cool. And culture is such a huge part of any organization that you're going to be in. And I thought that this was cool because you're given an idea of what it's like. Um, you start off with one is none and two is one, which is the reverse of what I learned in the military, which is two is one and one is none. You say one is none first, but hey, it's all good. Border Patrol is going to do a little bit yeah. differently. Yeah, one is none and two is one. Yeah. Yeah, and it's the reason is because of batteries, really. It's like yeah. the, the first thing is like if you have one flashlight, you're fucked because in the middle of a 20-mile walk, <laughs> and like the thing shuts off, you're like, okay, now what? Yeah. 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 Uh, you talk about the terrain being that, that lends to the culture inside the Border Patrol because the terrain you got to deal with it all the time. Yeah. Uh, the community who lives in the on the border. You've got like, you say this. It's not uncommon for an oil rigger or a politician to become a part-time drug smuggler. The corruption is potentially everywhere, right? Yeah. That's like wildness. Oh, it's crazy. Yeah, and you, I forget if I call it out or not, but you break down like financially what someone's going to be making yeah. in whatever career they're in, and then how much they're going to make if they do a little bit of smuggling on the side. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, and it's like some people look at that and they go, you know what? Yeah. I would like a new car yeah, over the, the next average, few months. I think the average income on a border and a border town was somewhere around for like the average person was somewhere around twenty five, thirty five K. Mm-hmm. That's not that's not a lot, man. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Even the law enforcement, some of those border those border town law enforcement officers are, are making thirty five to forty five, sixty five maybe. Border agents come out the gate swinging at sixty five. You know yeah. what I mean? So we make a good amount of money compared to comparable to any kind of border border like a mm-hmm. job. Yep. But like you're surrounded by you're surrounded. Uh, you'll go to a bar, and at night, and here's your border patrol in one corner. There's definitely drug smugglers, mm-hmm. you know, hanging out in another corner. And, you know, you got the oil riggers over here. You got, it's like the craziest thing. And like, it's like, all right, uh, well, we're just gonna hang out for that drink, and then tomorrow we'll be back at it again. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like this cat and mouse game of it all. But you know who's fucking shady as fuck. You, mm-hmm. it's like part of your job to understand that. But where else are you gonna hang out? <laughs> you live on the border, dude. You gotta go to the same. You gotta have drinks with your boys. You gotta go to dinner. And so you're just intermingled with this wild world of it, man. Yeah. yeah. Damn. Uh, cut and sign. Cut so you guys sign. do. You guys do a lot of tracking. That's mainly our job. That's why Bortac and Borstar, or Bortac specifically, when Borstar agents attached to them, uh, get called on a lot of like uh, trafficking. Uh, uh, excuse me, tracking calls. A lot of uh, escape convict kind of calls because. Our job day in and day out is tracking. That's what it is. So we're cutting sign all day long. As soon as you see footprints, you get tracking. You start you start walking it. And that's how we catch people. Like, that's the job. And their job is to try and, you know, screw that up, right? Whether they wear things on their feet or whatever the case is. But, yeah, we cut sign day in and day out. That's the job of a board mm-hmm. trade is tracking. How good did you get at it? Good, but not great. I had dudes that who could fucking almost do a full sprint and catch sign on concrete. And you're like, yeah. shut the fuck up. And then boom, oh shit, you yeah. found it again. It's yeah. like, it's crazy. Like the guys who've been doing it for 15 years can do a slow jog and, and, and see everything. Bro, I was. Wait, wait, uh, real quick. What is it? Cut sign? Cut what do you call sign. It? Yeah, it's what, what we mean? call it. It's called cutting sign. And uh, sign is the imprint of a foot right mm-hmm. on the ground. So uh, we're looking for sign. And so we do a lot of cutting, which means is we're in our vehicle and we're driving really slow with a flash at an angle or just looking at the ground and we're cutting. We're making a, 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 a just, a, it's like a, they call it a cut. I don't know. Oblique light. Yeah. Just kind of, kind of walk. Just so in every border, there's the wall or a border, right? The border itself. And then there's usually some kind of dirt path. Mm. And that dirt path is dragged daily, multiple times a day. And that's just to clean it, to get right. a clean slate, and then to turn around and start driving it and see if your footprints are on it. Like a golf course kind of a scenario. Kind of. Or the sand. Or yeah, whatever. exactly. Yeah. And so once you see the footprints, it's like, boom, it's on it. And yeah. So that's cutting sign for us. We just look for oh, the sign of footprints. Gotcha. Then you'll be like, oh, shit, I got a group of five, six, depending on the different patterns oh, of the shoes. Okay. And then the way you, you talk to your boy up ahead, you go, hey, I got sign of five. I got a, a running W. I got a shock, like Nike yeah, shock. Yeah you, I, yeah, you got all the different designs you give them, and then they're looking for that same sign up ahead and hopefully five miles away or whatever. Oh, yeah, and then yeah. you're like, boom, now you just jumped them five miles closer. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. that's, it. that's how it goes. Okay, all right. It's dope. Yeah. The uh, hunting and like shooting elk and tracking elk. Like I've been out tracking elk, and I was with my buddy, John Dudley and our guide and like dude I'm not kidding we would be no sign for like 20 yards and all of a sudden like Dudley would like on it or got got one and there would be I'm not kidding through like the bushes like through there would be one one speck of blood that is literally smaller than a pinhead smaller than a pinhead uh, it's unbelievable echoes looking at me like that doesn't make sense. I'm telling you, you're on a trail and you can kind of like the direction, you're like, you can tell which way the thing is moving, right? You can yeah. tell that the elk, you found a, you know, you found a sign here and then you find sign somewhere else. So you've got like a direction that they're 
likely heading in. And then all of a sudden, like, got one. And it'd be the tiniest, tiniest speck of blood. It is impressive. And then, like, guides will be, oh, here's, like, you can tell he's limping or you can tell he's yeah. tired or you can tell this. So, yeah, it's pretty badass how good guys it's, can get. You can do it for 20 miles and when you catch someone at 20 miles, That's you're like, feel good, fuck, Because yes, <laughs> you're like, hope I'm not following some old yeah. ass shit, dog. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. Yeah, there's guys that can tell you, like, hey, they walked backwards. This is good traffic. You're like, how the fuck? What were they? Heel dig, oh, you know, a toe dig or a heel yeah. this or that. Mm-hmm. And then you can see when people wear carpet, right? It's just like, oh, this is a good sign. They're wearing carpet. And you're like, how? It's like, well, just the imprint's slightly different. You're like, Gee, these motherfuckers are good. They put carpet on their feet to like mess oh they up do the all kinds of different yeah. stuff yeah yeah carpet's a very common one you know the the, the smuggling organizations they, they 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 offer them like hey we can give you carpet for 20 more dollars you know what I mean? and so they outline their feet they wear the carpet and it's hard to see that imprint yeah mm-hmm. damn uh you talk about the duty bag tricky bag yeah. which is where you carry all your gear you talk about carrying a slingshot and you no, it's not common. I did it. It's yeah, not yeah, common. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was talking about you carried a slingshot. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the missions in Mosul with uh, Sergeant Barraza, uh, we were we were on an alley and the sniper's trying to take out the lights as we go and he kind of did a kind of a curve where the sniper couldn't hit the light and it was it was the older nods, right? So it whited out our nods mm-hmm. pretty good. So we are like, fuck, we got to fucking do something. I threw a rock by chance and fucking hit it and we were like laughing like, <laughs> fuck yeah, right? Yeah, baseball. So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like one good strike and we still. Um, we went back to the, to the room. We were kind of AR and the whole thing and we were thinking about things that we can do because we also had dogs that would approach us at night and kind of mm-hmm. compromise us and so the guys started talking about bringing um, BB guns or uh, pellet guns and I thought about a slingshot because I've had one since I, like when I was a kid so they fucking all started carrying so I brought one with me in the border patrol dude mm-hmm. and yeah man I fucking used that one a couple times <laughs> <laughs> uh, buddy system you talk about that obviously landmarks you know just how you guys are navigating everyone knows the landmarks yeah. in the area uh, group group is the term that you all use for the group of people that are yeah. uh, coming in. GPS GPS is just part of your part of your gig, uh, and then people just being patriotic people that yeah. are they're part of the border patrol. It's like the one big biggest bond everyone has. Yeah, man, they know the mission. The mission is to protect America, right? And and I think that's look at most of the border patrol is Hispanics, right? And that's the crazy part too, because it's like. People would think, like, oh, why would you turn your back on your people? Like, no, it's not that. It's like they're protecting their country. They believe in America, right? And it is genuinely probably the most patriotic law enforcement in America. Just their job day in a doubt is to protect our soil. Uh, going back to the book here, to emphasize the sheer variety of what you can encounter on any given day working as a Border Patrol agent is breathtaking. It can, it can, inclu- it can include routine patrol operations, tracking, and hunting smugglers, capturing and processing large groups of undocumented persons, participating in car chases to apprehend fleeing suspects, and much more. The point is that while holding the line might sound like something static, every day is dynamic. So you got all kinds of stuff going yeah. on. Um, just, just freaking mayhem all the time. A little more specificity here. The Border Patrol's main job is to apprehend persons who cross our borders illegally while ICE is responsible for everything else that happens to that person once he or she is allowed to stay in the United States or is deported to their country of origin. ICE houses these illegal immigrants in holding facilities, sometimes for months on end, as immigration judges have overwhelming caseloads. In the majority of cases, those holding facilities are jails. Immigration judges are typically backed up for about six months or more. During this time of holding, the apprehended persons will receive food, medical treatment, and housing while they await their hearing. Depending on the area of illegal crossing, the immigration judge can make a determination 
of deportation or a longer jail sentence. Sometimes during this process, a judge can allow entry into the country if the court can find evidence of the need for political asylum due to a country of origin hardships. And I mean, right now, like in San Diego, they put they put people in hotel rooms, and they're doing that. Where is that? New York, right? Yeah, it's New York. It's it's, it's gone crazy. It's crazy. I, we you know we're not. This is uh we don't have anything in our repertoire as a country to house these many individuals. That's even like remotely like yeah. humane, right? You know, like for the average dude back in the day when I was in, you know, um, just a regular dude, 20, 30, 40 years old coming across, they put him, they used to put him in private prisons. Mm-hmm. And the private prisons, the crazy part about that is they're private prison with guys who are in there for real shit, real mm-hmm. prison shit, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And so, you know, you got the, the they call them the paisas in the prison, they're labeled as paisas, right? Which is like a, a Mexican national, but Anyone from any demographic down South America, they'd house with paisas, and then anyone from America who was like a Mexican who was who was who was in prison would be you know Usureño or Norteño, right? So they're different. But the paisas ran the prisons pretty pretty strong because there's the vast numbers of them could like overwhelm any any. So they weren't a prison gang, but they had to kind of come together in the prisons. And all of those dudes are there for either smuggling or or illegal entry. Mm-hmm. It was wild, dude. And that's when I was working at the prison. I saw that before I even joined the Border Patrol. I was like, this is fucking crazy. What are, what's up with all these Mexican dudes? You know what I mean? And you learn why they're in there. And, yeah, they're just waiting for an immigration judge to make a determination on their case. Mm-hmm. And, and like, what are you talking about? Uh, 9,000 a day just at Eagle Pass right now? Like, that's insane. Yeah, it's not every day, but just recently it was. That's yeah. what happened. Yeah, no. So they have – yeah, in Eagle Pass recently they, they built a – processing center so part of the border patrol job right someone comes in illegally whether it's illegally just because they wanted to work and got caught or seeking asylum illegally they still entered illegally right they still have to be put through the process and once we do is we we process them in the processing we roll their fingerprints we identify the country of origin we identify their their what their identification is right so we have this data on them and then from there, like, okay, the package is done. They're either seeking asylum or they're a family unit or whatever the case is. That's what the packet will be done for, like the legal documentation. Then it's like we put them back into housing until ICE picks them up. ICE will pick them up and then take them wherever ICE does. It's none of our business. I don't even fucking know what it is. But what's happening, I know, is that ICE is giving them an NTAs, notice to appears, right? Mm-hmm. And that is that means here's your time to come back and talk to an immigration judge about your case, and he'll make a determination on it. But until then, you're in America. We found an address that you claimed as family or friends, and they're going to be bringing you in or whatever, and so go. What happened recently is like these 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 government organiz- these non government organizations, these nonprofits have been giving them money, um, phones, and plane tickets to go wherever they need to, and just kind of go and exist into America and until their immigration process, or they don't, or they never show up again. Mm-hmm. There's a good percentage that don't ever show up again, and that's just been proven. And so that's what's happening now. We have no system in place for this massive influx. Why? I don't know. That's above my pay grade. Um, well, because it'd be freaking hard, and it would take like a massive amount of effort to yeah. get. Can you imagine trying to process this many people? Like that's it's so the process center alone in Eagle Pass is I forget what they call it. Either way, it processes about fifteen hundred people a day. It, it can at mm-hmm. max capacity can process fifteen hundred people a day. Um, and it call, and it has about five contracting companies that are working that together. There's some for the kids, some for just security, some for food, right? Whatever it is, there's just a lot of personnel working that location. Mm-hmm. And I think there's multiple here in San Diego. I'll, I'll f- look into that. But that one costs us $24 million a day. 
it's a day. It's got to be. It's a day or a month, but I'm almost positive it's a day. Mm. It's something crazy. It's something to the point where I was like, I'm sorry, what? Yeah. Uh, and so then I started trying to do the math. Like, well, what if we just deported him? Right. Mm-hmm. It, it was just. It, I don't understand. Yeah. I don't understand what's going on, man. Yeah. It, I, it, one thing is we talk about like all these different, all these different approaches that you'd have to take to get this under some kind of control. Right. Like one of them is you got to let people know that this isn't a good move for you. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because the whole idea of of people that want to come here hearing that like, hey, now's the time. Right. You know, now's the time. Like it's a go. Hey, uh, Echo Charles here in San Diego. Mm-hmm used to be really, really hard to get a concealed carry permit yeah. in San Diego County. Like, it was damn near impossible. And there was some kind of uh, 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 legal thing that happened. And it wasn't even like a legal call. It was like just the pressure turned. And all of a sudden, it got really easy. And now, now like, a lot of people have concealed carry. Because you can just go and get it pretty relatively easy compared to what it used to be. Yeah. Well, bef- when it was really hard, people wouldn't even try. They wouldn't even try because yeah. it wasn't going to happen. And as soon as it got easy, everyone's just like, oh, cool, it's easy now. Let- I'm going down there to the sheriff's. I'm going to get my concealed carry. No factor. So I think that kind of thing has happened with America right now where people are like, like in other countries, oh, yeah, if you go to America right now, you can get through and you yeah. can get in and you can get it. Yeah. You can get in. Now's the time. And just that right there and then you see it on the news like if if I was a foreign national I wanted to come to America and I'm watching the news and I'd be like wait a second run across there if I get caught they're gonna put me in a hotel and give me a phone and give me a notice to appear wait hey am I am I translating this correctly you're telling me you're gonna let me go in America and ask me to come back six months later to a court that's what that's what's gonna happen cool I'm in I'm going now's the time to go it's exactly it's, and now it's, it's totally overwhelming. Thing. It's the weirdest thing because, so what was really weird was during Title 42, Title 42 was an executive order that was implemented during the COVID time, right? Because they were like, well, let's just shut the border down so then people can't bring more COVID into America. Mm-hmm. So we're going to implement this this executive order that that Mexico at the time was in agreement. like we could just send them right back to Mexico. Mm-hmm. And at some point, it stopped. At some point, we started letting them in. Like late when it's mm-hmm. when it, it, I think it was like only like four months ago it transitioned back to 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 Title Eight right to the fifteen twenty three whatever fifteen twenty five or something. And what does that one say? Thirteen twenty thirteen twenty five. That is, if you enter in into uh, America outside of a port of entry, you know you're here illegally and you will be pressing charges or whatnot, right? Mm-hmm. So it's whatever the, whatever it is. So right now it's they're coming across, they're getting charged with thirteen twenty five. That's what it is. Uh, but does that mean they have to get put into prison here? No, it's just that's that's the problem. There's no because there's not enough prisons. Yeah, there's no. So all we're doing is processing them the way we do. If you have a, a history of record of, of negative record, right, some kind of background history, uh, sex offender, whatever, they'll send them back to the country. That's that's going to happen. If you don't have anything on record, whether well, you're going to be welcomed in for for a notice to uh, NTA. And the process will go as such. The problem is that is because everyone is claiming political asylum. So mm-hmm. the same thing. The conversation yep. goes, claim political asylum. Yep. And it's up to them to determine if it is or not. Mm-hmm. And that's going to take a long fucking time. And so they know the loophole, right? And they, I guess there's like uh, people that 
give them the scripts of this is what you but have to say. Actually, absolutely. And it's like, here's the script. Absolutely. I am claiming political asylum. I'm a blah, 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 blah. And they have right. a little script to say and they say it and it's like, okay. Yeah. You know, it's not the determination of either ICE or the Border Patrol right. to say, yeah, well, that sounds like a good right. Nope, it's, you're not yeah, allowed. Yeah. You, you get told, yep, no. Nope. Yeah, that's not the Border Patrol's job to yeah. investigate that. It's like, okay, that's what you say. Here's the asylum package. I'll put you in this pile over here. Boom. Yeah, and that's what happens. <sighs> this is jacked. It's wild, dude. Yeah. It's a wild, it's wild time. Um, Then you have three groups that you talk about in here with that they get processed as Mexican other than Mexican and exotic, yeah, right? So Mexican, obviously someone's Mexican. Um, other than Mexican, obviously that's someone that's not Mexican, but that, and that's like El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala. But then you get into this exotic category, considers anyone from places like Asia, the Middle East, and Europe. So now we have like uh, people that are coming in, and when, when you start coming in here from these further away places, well now there's more things to be concerned about. Yeah, absolutely. Because why the hell are you coming here all the way from the Middle East? Right. What's up, bro? Yeah, and using the <laughs> using the Mexican border yeah. to do it, right? So we and how are you making that happen? Right. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of money that gets involved to do that. How right? much does it cost to uh, smuggle someone across the border? It just depends on what organization is is managing it. I mean, it could be five thousand dollars, it could be ten thousand dollars. Just depends. It's it, it all depends. It just kind of fluctuates. Like right now, they're doing something like they're giving them a wristband. It's kind of like three tries. Yeah, you get three tries to make it. You know, the first try, second try, third try. Oh, oh, you're saying the smugglers have that? Yeah, it's like a hierarchy of like got attempts. It. Like you got three attempts with this amount of money. Like getting your Starbucks card punched. <laughs> like first right. try, like oh, you're back right. again. Cool, right. we'll punch it. Yeah. you get three tries. It's a weird. I I don't know the exact number uh, on how much it costs, but they're spending a lot more money than they ever have just to save for that. Mm. Now, this, the caveat to that that I'll say is. It is extremely expensive to do it the legal way as well. Mm-hmm. Hiring a, a, a lawyer who does immigration, right, who helps you process your paperwork the right way and the time it takes, is a long time. And I think that's, a, it's not an excuse, but it is a reason why people say, you know what, why wait as long as it's gonna take me, I can just do this now. Mm-hmm. And that's that's something that needs to be addressed on our side as well, of a kind of a streamlined approach for people that are deserving of that streamlined approach. But that's the big reason I've seen a friend of mine whose wife was from the UK. It took her 12 years to get a citizenship. From the UK, female. Where, where did he live? Where did they live? In uh, South Carolina. My wife is a Brit, and it was like every meeting that she had when we were in San Diego would like take months to schedule, and then we moved to Virginia, and she had like a meeting like two weeks later. And no way. Because they're just overwhelmed here. Yeah. And in Virginia, there's no one coming across the border like <laughs> to Virginia, yeah. right? So it's it was just a lot easier once you got there. Yeah. But uh, How much did it cost you guys? I don't remember. It wasn't crazy. I mean, because I mean, I was whatever an O one at the time. Yeah. But it wasn't some crazy amount of money. I think it was like in the hundreds of dollars. Like we really? didn't get a lawyer. Just, or just pro- like that. you just process. I mean, paperwork. she was my wife, yeah. so maybe that makes it. We were in the military. Yeah. So maybe that makes it easier. Yeah. But it wasn't. I don't remember the expense being any sort of barrier at all. So right. it was probably like a hundred bucks. A couple hundred bucks. You yeah. Know? Yeah. I mean, we got married at the courthouse for fifty bucks. So <laughs> you know, that's how we're rolling back in the day. Um. Cool. Here you say, while Border Patrol agents face many dangers when apprehending undocumented uh, immigrants, those dangers increase in intensity when it comes to tracking, finding, and arresting drug smugglers. Border Patrol agents must sort undocumented immigrants from drug smugglers. This is one of the most important things we do because drug smugglers are often armed, and if cornered, they might try and take out Border Patrol agents when we try and apprehend them. So this is a whole other gig. 
Yeah, it's the part of uh, it's probably the most exciting thing you do as a regular border patrol agent is apprehending dope, but it's also the one that carries probably the most threat level, right? Mm-hmm. Um, people who transport dope for for a good amount oh, of reasons, sure. right? They have they carry they carry firearms, or they know that they're going to go to jail for a long time. So if someone puts up a fight, it's going to be those guys, uh, and so you know when there's dope, it's like oh shit, you're you're in for a potential fight. Mm-hmm. Um, there's very little, uh, very little times that you see an actual engagement on the border, and there's a reason for that, right? Because as much as there's a threat, um, they would be hard pressed to pull that trigger because the repercussions of causing any kind of violence on the border, they still have to face the the cartel. The cartel keeps a balance, as crazy as that is. They will keep a balance because as we secure our borders the best we possibly can. They're still getting enough across. You know what I mean? This is just the name of the game. Uh, and so when their side uh, decides to engage on one of us and maybe injures one of us or creates an, creates enough buzz that it's a national news, the influx of agents that we bring just to protect, I mean, every special operations unit in the Border Patrol gets activated, our MRTs, everyone, and now that border is shut the fuck down. Oh, yeah. So then you fucked with money. Mm-hmm. from the cartel and they're like well fuck you right and so they don't fuck with us they fuck with the people who f- stirred the pot mm-hmm. and so it is not uncommon for them to show a sign of like well don't worry we killed them <laughs> you know and you're like jesus what a fucking game Damn, this is the, the wildest game ever right but mm-hmm. but knowing that there is guys who go off the hinges right there's guys who 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 still carry and mm-hmm. so it's a fear that we have is someone who's carrying a, uh, the a hundred pound bundle might potentially be willing to fight. And so you just know that your pucker factor is up there. You're like, okay, this this might get real. What about like 14-year-old boys? Oh, they do it all the time. Because to me, that's like a free, you yeah, know, so very free hall pass, right? Right, exactly. It's very common for, for them to use 14, 15, 16-year-old boys uh, to smuggle dope. And those guys don't give a shit. They'll run their dope, and if they get caught, they get caught, and they roll their, they roll their fingers for you. Like mm-hmm. that's they how he's up. Yeah, there's like, uh, there's, uh, they ask, like, can I get my burrito, my my drink? <laughs> they know the process, and you're like, this motherfucker rolls their fingers, sits there and waits. They get sent back to Mexico to go do it again. Yep. Yeah, that's very common. Texas started a law, though, if they got caught over, I think it was four times, and they were at 16, we could start charging as adults. So that started changing things mm-hmm. because, like, obviously this motherfucker is just smuggling dope. And so there's things that are putting into play to try and mitigate that. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, for the most part, they use them young dudes. I talk about it in there as well. Like, yeah, the yeah. juveniles get, get used. Yeah, that was the opening thing that I read was, like, you're good. That was a couple of younger, you know, 14, 15-year-old yeah, kids yeah. that you're about to have to take a shot at. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was a, that was a – that was an intimidating moment where I was like, this is fucking crazy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you got in here. I mean, you got the, the freaking crazy story about here. You jump in and save a dude that's drowning in the in in the river, in the Rio Grande. Yeah. I mean, and it's kind of crazy. You're like, uh, <laughs> you're like, hey, I'm a strong swimmer. You're telling your senior guy there. Yeah. You're like, hey, uh, I- I'm a good swimmer. I can get him. He's like, it's up to you, man. And boom, you go for it. Uh, and then it's kind of it's weird. I won't read the whole thing, but like, you eventually get washed up or you say, as I got closer, I could see the panic in the man's face. This guy's drowning in the Rio Grande. Each time that I saw his head drop a little water, I was worried that he wouldn't come back up. The current was pushing us down river as much as I was gaining on his location. I was about four feet from him when we both washed up in a shallow part of the river. He stood up with the water now just above his knees and I could see he was grateful to be alive. I stood up not sure what to do next. It was an awkward moment with me being in my boxers and a green undershirt with his with a shirt cuff around my wrist because you'd ripped off your shirt and ripped yeah. it. We were in the middle of the river and it was shallow all the way to the Mexican side. I looked at him and he looked at me almost as if we both didn't know what the next move was. 
I knew there was nothing I could do, so I started turning back to the American side. He gave me a sheepish look and then headed back to Mexico. I swam back to the U.S. side of the river and was met by a group of agents who had been watching the entire event. Some thought I was the biggest idiot for risking my life. Some commended me on the attempt. I was just grateful I didn't watch that man die without trying to rescue him. Yeah. When I was in the academy, man, um, we had this crazy fucking swim instructor. He was a board tacker back when board tack was going down to Columbia doing some fucking dope ass shit, right? This dude is like old school, post-traumatic stress, fucking psycho ass motherfucker, right? <laughs> and he'd be like, he'd be like, come here, get over here. And he was like fucking intense, like scary dude, right? And I was like, this dude's wild, bro. He showed us this video. He's like, watch. And as we're like, we're, we're, we're watching these two guys drown. They attempted to come across and they started to drown. And one jumped in to try and save the other. And then they both started to drown. And then they're doing this thing where they're pulling each other under because they're panicking. <laughs> And I'm watching, and anytime we, any of us are like, we're trying to look away, he'd say like, watch, keep watching. You know, and he's like, wants like, pay attention, motherfucker. Like, he wanted us to feel the gravity of this fucking shit. Mm-hmm. And I felt it, dude. I watched those two drown, and I was like, Jesus, fuck. A lot of people who come across the Rio Grande River don't understand the dangers of it. A lot of them don't know how to fucking swim. They weren't raised with a swimming pool, you know what I mean? It wasn't common, and they'd still make the attempt to come across no matter what. Some of them have things like floaties or whatever the case, and some don't. Some think it's shallow, and when they take one step, boom, they're sucked under, right? They're, they're fucking pulled under. And so in that moment, man, I told my, it's like, I don't, I've always known, like, I don't, I'm willing to fucking risk my life to save people, you know what I mean? Even if it's an illegal, I, I just, my heart couldn't sit there and just watch. And so when I saw this shit happening, I was like, get the fuck out of here. Like, this is my first, like, 30 days on the job, dog, you know what I mean? And I told the, I told my seniors, like, I, I dude, I, I gotta go, dude. So when I ripped my shirt off so fast, the cuff came fucking. So I had my fucking little green cuff. It was a <laughs> tattoo. It was a tattoo thing. I had to wear long sleeves. So I had this green cuff, my fucking underwear, um, my my shirt, and I just jumped in this bitch. And I handed her my gun, like, dude, hold this. And uh, yeah, we both got washed up, and we just looked at each other, and I was like, this, what the fuck, dog? <laughs> Didn't even get to rescue the dude. You know what I mean? Like we just stood there. But uh, the rumors from that for the next few years was like. Bro, I can't believe you jumped in to save a doper. Yeah. I can't believe you did this. This, all, like, it just turned into this rumor mill of like shit. And it was funny, but I had to tell them all like, no man, we both got washed up on the flat. And they're like, it was the weirdest moment ever, dude. Yeah. And I just saw one of the supervisors. She goes, oh, I remember that. I should have let you fucking drown. Because <laughs> it was just like she was like, you dumbass, you new guy. But I, I felt I, I did, I did the right thing. Yep. Um, you know, it just turned out the way it was. Yeah. Uh, Going back to the book here, gotaways is a term we use when we track a group as long as we can and the trail ends at a point where we assume they have been loaded into a truck or a vehicle. We determine this by tracking the footprints to a road at which point the sign ceases without crossing the road. This is a sign that the group is loaded and we would then report the group as gotaways. Yeah, often, yeah. happens often. That's pretty normal. Yeah, man, as, 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 as shitty as that sounds, even at top performance you're gonna find you're gonna have gotaways mm-hmm. you're gonna be hey i got a sign at three at the bottom boom boom boom. we track and we see the same sign go up to the top and then right there at the road like fuck they were picked up at a location where like no cameras there nothing mm-hmm. it's 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 common frustrating fuck yeah it's frustrating because you don't know who the fuck that was yeah. that for me is like the tactical mind of mine who the fuck was that yeah. who was that was it the next dude who's gonna do some kind of terrorist act, you know act on America? Mm-hmm. Was it the next dude carrying some fucking biological fucking warfare? I don't fucking know, dude. Mm-hmm. And that frustrates the fuck out of me. Uh, speaking of Spanish, <laughs> you got this in here. I walked over to this guy and asked him as calmly as I could, "Como me llamo?" He didn't reply. I was using the motivation to ask t- 
tell make method that I learned in the military. I got a little louder. Como me amo. Again, nothing. The man just confused look on his face. Now I was getting pissed. The dude was stonewalling me. I have one job to do, and it's to ask the guy what his name was. Como me amo. I screamed as loud as I could. My partner ran over and asked, bro, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> he doesn't know your name. It was only then that I realized I was asking him, what's my name? <laughs> <laughs> you can imagine the good nature abuse I got from my fellow agents even today. I still get calls about this. Fuck, so, dude. That was pretty good. Yeah, shit was embarrassing as fuck, dude. <laughs> What's fuck? Just screaming. Uh, the dude kept trying to look for my name tag, too. He kept looking. He's like trying to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> fuck, dude. Yeah, dude, it always... You know, people would, you know, they, they would teach us in Iraq, like, how to say all these different things. Yeah. And, you know, get down and show me your hands and all this stuff. And, like... 95% of the time, people were just like, they have no idea that you're even trying to speak your <laughs> yes. language because you're just a big white dude, or at least me, I'm a big white dude, like saying whatever. And they think I'm saying something in English that yeah. they don't know, <laughs> even though I'm supposed to be saying, like, show me your hands, and yeah. they're just looking at you like, oh, yeah. It took me, it didn't take me very long to figure out that. I was not a linguist, and this wasn't gonna, you know, <laughs> we're gonna figure this out another way. Uh, for Border Patrol agents, dope is the name of the game. Catching dope was like a stalking, it's like stalking a prize deer and taking a hero shot once you're close enough to do so. Trouble was, at that time, everyone in my unit had had their photo taken with seized dope but me. Anytime I was involved in a dope bust, I was always part of a group effort and I never really had that feeling that I was instrumental in the outcome. That might not make complete sense to all of you reading this, but for me, that photo was a rite of passage. Yeah. And this is the story that I actually started the podcast with. Yeah. That's where, that was your first uh, big drug bust that you actually felt like, yo, this is this is mine. Yeah, yeah. And you got that picture that they've always put in the news, right? <laughs> they always put that in the news. They do, but uh, we have a ton of them. We just don't post them and stuff. But yeah, it's something that, you know, the you get commended by your but you know your brothers and sisters who work with you they're like hey good job on that one you know like an 800 pound bus is pretty cool for us like it's a significant one you know and so yeah we chase that it's kind of those dudes those kids they had pot yeah right but yeah yeah and how do you feel about that now like pot now, now it's weird right legal. yeah it's the weirdest fucking thing yeah I, it's one like i'm not removed from that and you know i sit there and be like well that's fucking weird as shit now yeah. like like they're just carrying a you know thousand pounds of fucking weed it's just weed. Do they do that now? And like, there's no, you don't get in trouble for smuggling weed across the border. No, you still do. You still, I just, I don't know the rules of it yeah. completely, but yeah. you're still not allowed to transport dope that way. <laughs> it's still illegal. It's weird yeah. that you can go down to the store, like down the street from where we are right now, and just buy pot. Yeah. You know, yeah, when someone's yeah. getting rolled up coming across the border, like, yeah, has the whole world gone crazy? <laughs> yeah, it's fucking weird, right? And the other, the other part is like, I know that drug smuggling has slowed down a lot for, for marijuana. But, you know, obviously the influx of meth and, and fentanyl and all those other shit, cocaine still. Yeah. Um, fast forward a little bit here. You say, I want to highlight the death of Brian Terry in the line of duty. I have to tell a story in a way that sheds light on the true nature of events. What follows is the story I've been able to compile over almost seven years of research during my career. Agent Terry's death occurred during Operation Huckleberry, which was intended to disrupt local rip crews. Yeah. Rip crew is a term used for a group that steals drugs from other and other contraband. These groups have been popping up more recently over the years in effort to steal the dope loads that come across the borders or goods from unsuspecting illegal immigrant groups. These small pocket gangs have found the vulnerabilities 
in the uninhabited deserts along the border. And so basically this group that he's working with gets an intel report about a certain area yeah. where there was a lot of these rip crews had had a high possibility of working. He says the original you say the original plan was to have an interdiction team and full early warning teams on both sides of this valley north and south of the X and for the operation to last a month. After two weeks of long days and longer nights, the teams became exhausted. They thought it was best to cut some manpower to give the teams more adequate work-to-rest ratios. And I'm gonna fast forward a little bit. The unfortunate yeah. thing about this decision to reduce manpower, because that's what they ended up doing, like, hey, this is, you know, yeah. guys are it's getting It's just tired. smoking everybody. Um, is that it proved to be a costly and the most devastating way. On December 15th, 2010, a RIP crew had approached the designated objective location that Bortac was focused on. This is exactly the situation this operation was developed for. As the as the four RIP crew criminals advanced closer to Bortac, Bortac was able to determine that the RIP crew was heavily armed. The Bortac team identified themselves and engaged with less than lethal force. Mm. It is important to understand that up until this point, the Bortac SOP or ROE was to initiate with less than lethal force and escalate to force if necessary. As the Bortac team engaged, the RIP crews returned fire. From what I was told, it didn't take long for Bortac to transition to lethal, lethal force and initial after the initial engagement. But in the chaos of the volley of fire, Brian Terry was hit. Agent Terry was struck in the pelvis by a round fired by one of the suspects armed with an AK-47. He was flown to the hospital where he succumbed early the next morning. Brian Terry's loss was the first line of duty death in Bortac history. Agent Terry was a U.S. Marine Corps veteran and had served with the U.S. Border Patrol for three and a half years. He had previously served as a police officer in Lincoln Park, Michigan. He left behind his parents, one brother, two sisters, five nieces, and one nephew. I need to relate these stories in order to make the dangers of guarding America's borders real for you by telling you about a person, not a statistic. It's important to show how the Border Patrol has had to evolve and come up with better SOPs to enable agents to do their job proactively, even aggressively when needed, without putting themselves at extreme risk. A final reason and an intensely personal one to tell Brian Terry's story is to explain how his death influenced my career trajectory, leading me to apply for Borstar and eventually serve alongside Bortac. These were major career decisions that were hugely influenced by the death of a single agent. Yeah. So this is the introduction here of Bortac and uh, Borstar. What do you got? The special operations of the Border Patrol has evolved into this fucking incredible fighting force and protective force, but as well as medical force. I was uh, on the fence of whether I wanted to go Bortac when I first joined because I I did the Ranger thing. And part of me was like, you know, losing my friends. I've always questioned like, man, what if I was a medic? What if I was a medic? I could have helped. Or, you know, for some reason, that was always in the back of my head. My father was an EMT. I've always, I, I did EMT when I got out of high school. Uh, when I was left the border patrol, I went back to EMT again. And so I kind of always had this medical foundation. Um, and thinking like that, I, I just felt like, well, maybe I'll just be a good medic. Maybe I'll give you a good shooting medic for the, for the tactical teams. And, and at the time, Bortec and Borstar weren't really fully integrated. It was kind of a, it was kind of still in the air. There was a lot of animosity between both groups. Mm-hmm. Um, the Brian Terry incident is just an example. They didn't have a medic on hand with them. It wasn't their SOP. 
right? For them, it was like, oh, just wait and we'll call you when we need you kind of concept. And even if medic was there, just to be straight, it was one of those shots that was just gonna, it wasn't, you could, he was gonna, he was gonna die from the, from the incident anyways. But it always made me like, why the fuck not have a medic, you know? And so when, when I read that, I was activated. I was a drill sergeant. Got, I got activated for the military for a year. And I read it about it. And I started calling my friends about it. I'm like, dude, what the fuck? Uh, where was the medic? You know, I kept asking that. And they were like, they didn't have a medic uh, assigned to him. It just wasn't a thing. And so that was like, well, fuck that. I want to be a medic. I'm going to Borstar. I'm going to be, a, I'm going to be the best fucking shooting, shooting medic I could possibly be. And that's really what pushed me to become a Borstar agent was that, Maybe I can implement things or help trust. I'd help Bortec hopefully trust their medics to be to be on on target right, with them. Right. And it was weird to me that Bortec didn't didn't think like we did in the military. Like military had years and years of proving why we do what we do. Why not fucking take their translate, put a medic on? Yeah, that's on. like crazy. It's weird as fuck. And then you know what they do? They'd be like, "Hey, we're gonna teach them just blood, you know, stop the bleeding shit." And so, but yeah, but all these boar attackers don't want to be medics. Like, it's like, okay, cool, I did the course. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, I have my med pack, but like, no one really gives a fuck about medical until you fucking need medical. Mm-hmm. And so. When I was going through Borstar selection, I remember a guy, so just by through a cousin of mine, told a friend, and then they got to him and goes, hey, uh, you a ranger? And I was like, I, I, I was, sir. They're like, we can use you. It's like, I know, sir. <laughs> like, I'm trying, you know? I gotta get through this fucking selection. And he's like, all right, um, keep going. I'm like, I'm going, you know? And so I knew that, they already knew that there was a ranger going through Borstar. And I knew that there was a potential future in really helping, hopefully, Bridge that gap, and just so everybody knows, so Bortac and we have friends that are on Bortac, but Bortac, like, what's the, what's the mission yeah. of Bortac? They're they like they're assaulters. They're gonna yeah. hit targets. They're gonna right. do warrants. They're, they're the get SWAT in. team of the Border Patrol, right. and we, you know, I was attached to them as a medic. But what they did was any kind of so if the U.S. Marshals had a warrant, you know, they don't have the manpower. We we would be the manpower, right? The Bortec would take that mission. Uh, any kind of like escape convicts that had a potential of heading towards any border, Bortec would get activated for that. Um, when they're just sitting there looking for new missions, it's usually to disrupt uh, drug trafficking organizations. And so we'd gather intel and do operations to disrupt. And so they're just the the, the tactical fighting force of the border. They're, they're, they have sniper qualification guys. They have dog teams, bite teams. They have everything you can fucking think of that a special operations tier one element would have. Mm-hmm. And they are the tier one element of the border patrol. And then Borstar Star is, is a, trauma search and rescue. Yeah, search, right? trauma, and rescue. Essentially what a Borstar agent is, is a civilian version of a pararescue jumper. We do long line rescues, we do swift water rescues, we do, we, we're shooter, we're proficient in shooting, not as much as a Borst tacker would be, but we, we do care our, we do care for our shooting proficiencies as well. Um, we do medical interventions. Uh, we're all EMTs, sometimes uh, we're EMT with, uh, with the capability of uh, intubation, right? So airways, because we're usually two hours from definitive care. And so we have a high level of medical proficiency as well as we have austere medics, paramedics, and so on and so forth. And so we are the kind of the best medical practitioners on the border you can think of. Uh, if there's a car accident, 
civilians, doesn't matter. We engage. We, we work. If uh, we're out there and we hear there's a, a group that got scattered and we're nervous about the heat, potentially um, them dying because of the heat exposure, we're out there doing search and rescue. If we get a 911 call of, a, of an illegal immigrant that gets lost, we're the ones who, who do the triangulate that location and we go find them. Uh, there, there's a long list of what we do. I've, uh, in the book, I talk about yeah. Swift rescues. You know, I've, I've done it all as a medic. And eventually, you know, that's what we do. So there's BORTAC is your tactical team. BORSTAR is your medical team. Originally, BORSTAR was it was implemented to help for the issues that you see with illegal immigration as well as agents in the field. And then they slowly kind of came together and created like a really strong um, tactical team with a medic attached. Like right. now medics are attached with them and that is the SOP and it'll continue yeah, to stay that way. As it should be. I don't want to detour this too bad, but it's sort of a detour in your life. You you mentioned it real quickly. So you were activated as a reservist to go be a drill sergeant in the yeah. Army during yeah. this whole thing Yeah, for a year. For a year. Where were you a drill for, sergeant? Fort Sill. And this was boot camp? Yeah, I pushed fucking, uh, I pushed five cycles in one year. Uh, one of those cycles, the first cycle was called WTC, Warrior Transition Center. It was people who got out of the military and wanted to come back and finish. Mm-hmm. And so they did like a, uh, like a dumbed down version of basic training. Right. A lot of them like 30, 40 year old dudes who yeah. are just like, I just need my five years and I get my retirement. You yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> so I do be their drill sergeant. And some of those guys are still my friends to this day. Now they're like, hey, you were my <laughs> drill sergeant. I'm like, oh, fuck. But uh, yeah, then I pushed troops for, for it was uh, first of the 415th. Um, and those are normal division. Yeah. recruits that come in. Yeah. Like you, you, if someone joins the army, you can go to Fort Sill and that's where you're going through boot camp. Yeah. It's not all in Benning. I no, no. Benning is all infantry. Got Benning it. is all, now it's not all infantry. There's other MOSs, but it's specific to infantry. Got it. Fort Sill is is mixed MOSs, and sometimes you're gonna get you know, like I had every MOS mm-hmm. you can think of besides infantry. No, it was I don't I don't think I had a combat arms person. I think I had all you know 42 hours or whatever. Right. Just a, men and women. It was like fully integrated. It was fucking. Oh, nuts. it's integrated. Yes, it was. Men it was, and women together in boot camp. Yeah, dude. How was that? It was tough. We had a lot of cameras in every different area because these dudes, they just, they're stupid fucking kids. Yeah. You know what I mean? They're all, they, yeah. It's, it's just mayhem. It's fucking nuts. My whole platoon at one time was all women and it was like, you had to have a female drill sergeant with you at all times because just, just protect yourself mm-hmm. from, from just shit. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, dude. It was, it was crazy. It was cool though. I actually really loved being how a drill long, sergeant. How long was a cycle? How what? long was a boot camp? Mm, what was it? Was it, was it eight weeks or nine weeks? I think it was because mm-hmm. it's not OSIT, right? OSIT was like the full. Um, basic training and AIT. It wasn't that. It was just they were just basic, just training, basic boom, training. And they shoot off to the AIT. And so I believe it was nine weeks or eight weeks. Did you just like? It seems like in that situation you just see everything. People breaking down. People freaking yeah. out. People I, trying to kill yeah. themselves. People yeah. trying to like just mayhem. Yeah, I had, I had a kid in another company while I was there doing CQ jump off the second floor and uh, take his own life. <sighs> we had a bus of soldiers who who rolled over because the drill sergeant at the time of driving was just reckless and rolled it over and, and just hurt permanently hurt several kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had some really good kids who went out there and did good shit, right? It was just everything. It was, it was cool because being a father, this was being a dad, right? Yeah. You're showing up to these young knuckleheads. I taught a kid how to shave and he never had a dad. I had a girl who, when she graduated, she said, drill sergeant, I look up to you like you were like a dad to me. I'm like, fuck, what a crazy experience. So it was a beautiful experience, but it was so like compartmentalized in my world. It's like, cool, get back to work. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, that's wild. It's just a wild, like I said, you barely mention it in the book. It's literally like one line or maybe two sentences in the book. Yeah. Like by this time I was, you know, in Fort Sill and I was working as a drill, a drill sergeant. I was like, damn, that's a whole, that's a whole thing, man. Being a drill sergeant. Yeah. Like I, I always have an interest in people that worked at Bud's, like Bud's instructors because yeah. I never did it. 
and I never really even paid attention to it, dude. Like honestly, like my I, I went through it and like that was it. I was done with buds and I just was in the teams. I never really thought about it again. But then I when I got out and I started like paying attention and talking to my buddies that worked it, like it's you learn a lot about human beings. Yeah. yeah. And what's going through their little heads. Yeah. When so shit gets so wild. like when I sat and wrote this book, I was like, All right, is this gonna be my life story? Yeah. No. This is just one part because yeah. I have I, I want to write that story. Yeah, I want to no, write my leadership book, and a lot of it is focused on being an NCO in Ranger Town and a drill sergeant and the the, the dichotomy, to use one of the words, that, that you've made fucking massive. <laughs> <laughs> is like what an interesting difference between those two, but as well as the values that both of them I learned from. Mm-hmm. And so I definitely want to write my leadership book eventually, but like I decided to compartmentalize my life. So that I have more stories to tell, but I give yeah, them no. give them more credit when you know, give more time. Well, that's what's funny is as you read this book, it's like one lot. Actually, I don't. I think you have like no lines about Ranger School. It's just like on this day I graduated. <laughs> I'm like, dude, you know, like Ranger School is a big deal, man. Yeah. That's one of the hardest schools in the U.S. military. Yeah. That's a thing that people you know wear with a badge of honor is yeah. having a Ranger tab. Yeah, and like you're like I graduated on this date, you know. Oh, and by the way, one of your deployments to to Iraq is like you just said it was your best deployment. It's highly kinetic. Guys got wounded. In the in the book, you don't you just say I got back from a deployment. Yeah, you don't even talk about it. So yeah. you got a lot of material left in you, bro. Yeah, the intention was to give the, all the folks I can to the border patrol. Yeah, and, and also to hopefully not like look how cool I am. Well, that's a, another cool thing is honestly like even though I'm into like hearing about Ranger School and whatever and your deployments, this book is about border patrol and. There's a whole this is a this is worthy of its own book. You know what I mean? Like I'm glad it's like this Let's face it. There's a lot of books about mil. I mean we've covered hundreds of books on this podcast going back to freaking you know the 1800s And you know all from a soldier's perspective I don't, I've never, I don't need, is there another book that's first not, person not account like of Border Patrol? Not like this. There's so, a few like independent people just, you know, self-published mm-hmm. stuff, but like there's nothing like this. Yeah. So this, this is really nailing an area that people just don't know much about. So especially the special operations, the first time really, yeah, re- yeah. really highlighting that. You say this, my mind was made up. It was clear to me that the medics need to be part of potentially all potentially dangerous missions that border patrol and agents undertook or border patrol agents undertook I want to be part of that solution and help rectify the situation I knew that Bortac agents and Borstar agents didn't often didn't always appreciate each other I also knew there would be a bridge there there would need to be a bridge to bring the two together all the evidence and experience that I had suggested that Bortac agents were reluctant to fully embrace Borstar agents as important players in the tactical world of Bortac. I also knew they were absolutely incorrect. I thought that I could provide that bridge by taking my experience of being an Army Ranger infantryman with a wealth of knowledge of combat operations and tactics and transitioning that skill set into becoming a trusted tactical medic in the Border Patrol. That was my new mission. But first, I had to apply for Borstar and pass their rigorous selection process. The seven of us headed to the selection site in San Diego, California. We were going to a small island called Coronado. Most might be familiar with this place, some more than others. As it is the location of Naval Special Warfare Command where Navy SEALs go through their training, we moved into the same barracks as the SEAL candidates going through BUDS. 
Looking back on that aspect of our training years later, it's a bit of a blur. What I do remember was getting on a bus and heading to a place called Glorieta Bay. Once there, we checked our gear and waited for everyone to get there. It was the calm before the storm. I remember getting our number identifier. That was the participant number based on alphabetic sequence. My number was 83. Once we received our numbers, they took us back to the SEAL barracks and all hell broke loose. The cadre was dumping our gear, looking for contraband. They found so much stuff that I couldn't help but believe they planted it just to make us pay. This cadre was worse than a new army drill sergeant who had just graduated from the academy. They smoked us for hours and hours as if they didn't give a damn that we had a PT PT test the next day. Once the smoke job was done, they gave us so many impossible tasks that I knew we were in for a long night. From cleaning the barracks to lining up our gear bags to delegating fire guards to assigning bunks. It was meant to kill any time we were thought we might get for sleep. This was a common thing to do in selections. If you don't introduce real-time stressors, you have to create them by taking away common comforts like phones, families, sleep, food, basically all those items we've grown accustomed to having easy access. But of all the stressors, lack of sleep was the crippler that could make the strongest man question everything. It was maybe 0300 when we decided to bed down and deal with the consequences in the morning. The room was trashed, the tasks unfinished, and I was making every effort to be a gray man for as long as I could. Getting through this next day meant everything. I needed to get through the PT test, swim, litter carry the next day. After that, it was all about having the intestinal fortitude to keep pushing. I closed my eyes and tried to be ready for what was to come. It didn't take long. At four in the morning, we heard, wake up. The instructor cadre came crashing in with a vengeance. I woke up to what felt like deja vu. I jumped off my bunk to get dressed, but before that, I was so disoriented that I grabbed the guy next to me and yelled at him, what course is this? He yelled back, four-star selection. Now is all making sense. I had been to so many courses in my career, especially ones with rude awakenings in the military barracks, that I was confused as to what course I had just time-traveled to. <laughs> I told you that lack of sleep was a stressor, and I was living it. Um, you go through, so you know, you go through awesome details in the book of what this selection's like. Really f- tough selection. Uh, you have a PT test the next morning. Third of the class freaking yeah. fails it. Uh, next night, similar thing. They got something called Rescue Randy, which is like litter carrying. Yeah. Like in the, in SEAL training, you're carrying boats on your head. Right. This, you guys are carrying a litter Litters. around with yeah. a freaking dummy on it. Um, funny part of all this, funny in retrospect, not so much while it was happening, was that while we were getting dusted off by our cadre, so was the next Bud's training class. It was one big pissing contest between cadres of opposing forces. I realized how this was a huge disadvantage for our class. The cadre just wouldn't just copy what the Bud's instructors were doing. They would try and top them, all to make our lives as miserable as possible. I can see that going down all oh, day. Oh, it was fucking nuts. <laughs> I was looking at like, this is fucked, dude. Yeah. Uh, fast forward a little bit. I have never been in a situation in my military career that would have made me quit. The hardest thing I had done before joining the military was Hell Week in football. Hell Week was a week-long physical fitness and football simulated exercise that would push most high school kids to the brink of quitting. During Army basic training and beyond, I had never let the idea of quitting cross my mind. Even when when pushed to my limits, I had always continued to push forward and find a way to power through. That is until day seven of Borstar selection. My knee was starting to swell. It was painful to bend and agonizing to run on, but it was still working. As I started to fall out of the morning PT session, run on a beach, the cadre started to punish everyone for my lack of ability to keep up. 
they would yell, say thank you to 83, and how does 83, how does it feel 83 to know you are the weakest link? Those words on any other day of training would fall upon deaf ears, but on that day, at that moment, it was the excuse that I needed just to stop the pain. Yeah, I was feeling defeated, and for the first time in my life, I contemplated quitting. It was an emotionally painful thought. I kept wondering what my kids would think of me. What would my father, how would my father react to me? What would he say? Or would he say that I wasn't tough enough? How would it feel to face everyone back in my unit who up until then believed in me? A cadre instructor named McCardell was in my ear the whole time. He was playing good cop, bad cop, and was going all psycho on me. As bad cop, he yelled things like, quit 83, you aren't good enough. Go home 83, we don't want you. Then he switched to the nice guy persona and said things like, it's okay, 83. You don't want to permanently hurt yourself. It'll ruin your future. The van's there, man. Just quit. It's cool. I admit that I was about to quit. My eyes were watering. I was breaking down. And the voice in my head said, fuck, I might actually quit. I can't tell you what it was, God or ego. But just as fast as this desire to quit penetrated my brain, the anger followed. Without breaking stride, I turned to McCardell and said, with all due respect, sir, you can keep yelling all you want, but I won't quit. I was able to close the gap and get back with the group, and thank God the run ended. Yeah. I was like, You were danger close, bro. bro. Dude, I felt like I was embarrassed. Like, I've never been Mm. in that position, dude, where I was embarrassed because they're all getting fucked up, dude. I see them getting just... You know, they're in the sand getting fucked up and they're doing, you know, they're making sugar cookies, all the things you can think of. And they're like, catch up to him, 83. If you don't catch up, we're going to keep fucking him up, you know, and you just feel like shit. And I'm like, dude, is, maybe I'm just old. Maybe I'm just old. You yeah. know, and I'm looking for everything because I'm like, and the one thing I was like, I can't quit and then show up and two days later, my knee's fine. You know, what I, mean? I couldn't, I, I kept thinking, like, dude, do I need, what ended up happening, I told myself, like, let the motherfucking break. Like, the, if the knee fucking gives up, Hell that's yeah. the best excuse. Because then I'm like, yeah, I need surgery. Just <laughs> die. Yeah, like, just let it fucking just fall die. off. Let's go. So I just kept going, and <laughs> thank God, man. I need, I needed I needed that run to end because I was fucking breaking down, dude. Fuck, I felt, man, I've never felt like that. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting, too. Like, I've heard people talk about buds and that there's, like, look, there's 10% of the class, they're not going to quit. Like, you can literally kill them. Yeah. And they're just like, whatever die, kill me then and then there's like 10% of the class they're gonna quit no matter what like they're just not yeah. for it. maybe 20% maybe even 30% and then there's like people that are on that border you yeah. know they're like they're thinking about it yeah and then depending on what happens next they're making a determination on like what their whole life yes. is like get back in the water like I mean I saw that you're know, like all right get back in the water and you see someone just like that was gonna stay with us Hey, get back in the water, and you see the guy just turn around, and walk yeah. away. I have one of my best, one of my best friends, like they're doing the same thing, cold water treatment, right? Like just cold as fuck. Get back in, get, go in the car, warm up, get back in. About four times, the fourth one, he's like, "No, I'm not doing it." I'm, not. I'm like, "Bro, we gotta go. Dude. Let's go." Like, like I had to, like, if 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 I didn't, but same way around. Yeah. If, if if something didn't tickle me, like I would have done, I've been gone. I would have been back to border patrol. But yeah, dude, there's a, those weird moments where you watch them just break, and you're like, "Fuck." Yeah, you say in, in Ranger Indoctrination Program, we ran a hard five miles fast and furious. We knew the route, so when, so I knew when we were getting close to the end, we started to slow down near the finish line. We turned around and went for another mile. 
So like you had a five mile run and you guys were on the five mile run and you start to slow down at the end and then you just, nope, we're gonna keep going. And you said guys were dropping like flies. Yeah. It was the most effective way to break someone in selection process. I told myself to never get excited or expect any kind of relief in any selection from that day forward. And here we were many years later and I got just excited as because you guys were doing this wheel of misfortune. The wheel which, of misfortune. I don't know if they got that from SEAL training. Did you guys do that? Yeah, we had wheel yeah. of misfortune. Yeah. And like there's, it's like wheel of fortune echo and like one little tiny sliver says easy day on it and all the other ones are just like hellacious <laughs> just, just exercises. exercises yeah. And they actually had a weight on that. Like we couldn't, you could not hit easy day right. like ever for us. <laughs> but you guys spun it and uh, it says easy day. It, it lands on it easy, landed day. easy day, which you're like, no way. And we're like, and my students <laughs> like, yes, like, fuck yeah, we got to fuck. It was the first day we were dry. We never went into the sand. And I was like, dude, we're going to finally have decent dry boots in the morning. Yeah. Fuck no, and dude. Then, <laughs> then the instructor's like, you want an easy day? I got your easy day. Follow me. And that dude right there. And you said, I knew it was about to get medieval. <laughs> <laughs> that dude right there is Aaron Rodgers. Aaron, no, sorry, Alan Rodgers. Not Aaron Rodgers, not the quarterback. Rogers was, I we became friends because I became a cadre instructor later, mm -hmm. right? During that, I looked at him like, who is this fucking dude? What's his background? Because he was like every special operations dude I've ever seen, like the fucking stud. Mm -hmm. He did this thing where he'd uncuff his sleeves slowly mm -hmm. and he'd take his top off. <laughs> and when he did that, you're like, fuck, here we go. Yeah. We got the fuck <laughs> up. And when we rolled Easy Day, he put the, the, the back of his truck down, the, 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 the tailgate, and he started warming up by doing box jump on the top of that thing. And this dude's probably Damn. a 250 pound monster. He looked like a, like, dude, he looked like a fucking, like a superhero. Mm -hmm. And he's doing these box jumps and he's saying, under his breath, easy day. Easy day. Yeah. And he's jumping on this truck and the truck going yeah. bottoming out, right? Yeah. You're like, God damn it, dude. And I'm like getting emotional, dog. Like, oh, fuck, we're about to fucking, damn it, man. This is the day. I got excited and I fucking forgot my own rule. And he fucked us up, dude. He yeah. fucked us up so bad. And uh, <laughs> I later talked to him about it. And I was like, why didn't you join the SEALs or something? Dude, he goes, I don't know, man. I, tr I was training for it and I just never did it. And I'm like, God, he would have been a scary dude, bro. But it made that selection that much more respectable for me, but also like memorable. Like, man, it wouldn't have been as great if it wasn't for that dude being there and just yeah. completely fucking us up every day. I had a guy. We, we mustered out for like first phase, got out there for a conditioning run. Called a conditioning run, and it, so it's not timed. It's not a timed run, so conditioning run, you're like, oh, we're gonna get in shape now. But there's this warrant officer, and he won't, and we're like staying in, a, in ranks, right? And he comes out and he's smoking a cigarette. Like cigarettes in his mouth, just like his cool like Marlboro Man shit going down. And he, he comes out and he's like, bring it in, gents. So he, he didn't wanna yell at us, right? Yeah. He's like, gents, I'm 42 years old. I smoke two packs of cigarettes a day. I've been doing that for 23 years. We're gonna go on a run. All I'm asking is that you keep up with me. And I was like, like same thing. I was like, oh, dude, we're we're, we're this is gonna be a fucking disaster, dude. <laughs> this is gonna be a disaster. And sure enough, it was. Uh, any other ch big challenges or uh, going through that? That again, you you detail it in the book. Yeah. Get the book. Get the book, people. Um, but what were any other thing that you want to highlight? No, the, the selection was like. So good, and I was so happy to, to when I graduated. It was like I don't even have like an army ranger tattoo, but I thought like man, I need a boar star tattoo. <laughs> That's how much it, like at the age of my age at the time. Were you thirty one? 
I think I was somewhere around there. Yeah. I, don't, I don't even know where I was. I think yeah. I was like 31, yeah. yeah. And I was just like, God, this was this was tough. Yeah. And I respected it, and I was super proud of it. And it felt just as good as graduating from ranger school to getting through RIP. Okay. It was, I, I, I highly recommend, like, that is no fucking joke. <laughs> if you think you're coming out of the military special operations, you're going to show up and it's going to be a cakewalk, fuck no. <laughs> it was tough. Uh, fast forward a little bit. My very first day on the job as Borstar agent, was dedicated to finding a group of scattered migrants in the night. Smilo and I, this is one of your, your uh, partners, Smilo and I were riding together in our new special operations uniforms. It felt just as good as putting on the tan Ranger Bray or the tan beret and Ranger Battalion. We were pumped because just like combat medics in the US military, we could save lives. We were digging deep into a ranch, cutting and cutting a drag road. We noticed some footprints that looked clean and very recent. We knew from the time frame that this could be the part of the group that had scattered earlier that night, and this is previous in the book. We parked the truck and proceeded on foot in the direction of travel. What we discovered was that this group of people was asleep during the middle of the day just trying to get out of the heat. That day, the temperature was in the high 90s. It is completely possible that some of them could have died from heat exhaustion if we hadn't spotted them. We started pulling them out of the bushes and lining them up. And this is what you're doing, man. Now you've got a whole new skill set yeah. that you're you're uh, using out out there on the job. And you know this is what this is what you end up doing. Yeah, right? this yeah. Is your Borstar, new job. Borstar's job when not doing any kind of rescue is to find where groups have been scattered and try and rescue them before the the temperatures get them. Uh, and so, like, what we do is we, we show up to work. We already have our all of our certifications. We're already EMTs, everything else. And we look at all the intel. And if, say a group got scattered at two in the morning, you already know by seven o'clock uh, in in the morning when the sun's coming up, it's starting to get hot, and you got to start trying to find these people. And so we go try and round them up. And sometimes you're fortunate enough to, to save them. And sometimes uh, you know you're un- unfortunate. You're just a little too late. And that's the sad part about it. Just Del Rio sector last year, uh, they lost I think it was 247 uh, illegal migrants who were attempting to come across and got scattered at night and during the day you know the heat exposure or drownings so that's just a lot of death on the border man and that's that's exactly the border patrol the border star agent's job is to do everything they can to mitigate that yeah and and you mentioned this earlier um that you also do search and rescue for anybody, anybody. like not just migrants but anybody that any emergency situations going down and then you got a whole section in here about some of those rescues you're a huge there's a situation that you talk about in the book where you rescue like Eight people that are yeah, swift water yeah, it's like swift rock. So you got all kinds of stuff going on in here. Um, again, get the book, get those, get those stories, learn those lessons, and then you finally you get assigned as a medic with Bortac, yeah. right? Um, and this is kind of what your goal was, as yeah. I, as you stated earlier. I read that little section, but so here you are on Bortac. I'm gonna go to the book here. One day as we were going through a lengthy pre-mission briefing, when it was my time to talk about the emergency medical plan for operations, I recommended attaching a Borstar medic to the team directly on the X, which is a term we use for the objective location. One of the BORTAC agents replied, it's not safe to have a medic with us just in case there's contact. Contact on the border isn't likely, but it's definitely possible. It's definitely possible. Contact in the tactical word isn't literal terms such as touch and feel, it's referred to troops in contact. I stood up out of frustration that had been building inside me for the past few months. I asked how many guys on the team have combat experience. The room was quiet. One Bortac agent raised his hands, raised his hand. I had more combat experience as a trigger puller than the whole team. I wasn't trying to be a smart ass, but I had to get it through their thick Bortac brains that I was an asset, not a liability. They all knew my background and I didn't have to explain my point of view any further. 
they finally supported my recommendation and placed me on the X with the rest of the team. Yeah. It was very odd for them to hear that a medic wanted to be on the X with them because it wasn't their SOP. They just Mm -hmm. were raised to to think that's odd. And for me, it was like, I wasn't trying to be a dick or anything, but I was like, dude, why the fuck wouldn't you want me on the X? One, because I can shoot. Two, like, I'm your medic. Like, put me in the fucking game, dog. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a couple guys who weren't even military. So they were just board tackers with no military experience. So they didn't even understand the the teamwork between medics and, and shooters, right? And so his... That guy who mentioned it, his just disconnect from the from how it should be mm-hmm. uh, was just what, how he was raised into the team. Yeah. And so he didn't know. And so eventually they all started to get more comfortable like, oh, dude, I think this is probably the best way we should be running. Yeah. And it worked out. Like yeah. Del Rio started using a lot of us. It was me and Smilo really helped integrate the Del Rio sector. Yeah, freaking legit. And it's just cool that you were able to come in and slowly change their minds yeah. and let them see a, a much better way of doing things. Uh, you got this section here. In 2007, the U.S. Border Patrol joined two joined together two units: the border their Border Patrol Tactical Unit (BORTAC) and the Border Patrol Search Trauma and Rescue Unit (BORSTAR) to form the U.S. Border Patrol's Special Operations Group, headquartered in El Paso, Texas. Um, and then you go into this section here. By this time in 2013, I was training to try out for BORTAC. Unfortunately, it was a rough time in my life. I was going through a difficult divorce, and to add to it. I became the custodial parent for my four kids. Nonetheless, I was able to maintain enough focus to be good at my job and be good at my job enough to still try and find a way to get to SOG. And then you end up, um, I spent a better year, better part of two years running the Borstar selection process and training at the mobile response teams across, uh, across the border. So. You end up being an instructor. Yeah, I became for, I became uh, the Borst, uh, one of the Borstar uh, selection instructors. I helped uh, integrate the tactical medicine program into Bortac. I helped. I just helped grow that whole tactical medicine side of it. Um, what 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 happened was you teach tactical medicine, but you don't understand tactics. You kind of miss a part of it. And so I started teaching a lot of the Borstar guys. Anyone who came through selection during my time, they were taught tactical medicine and entering clearing rooms. The SOPs what Bortac uses so that when they did become a Borstar agent, Bortac would be more comfortable using them as a medic because actually they know the SOPs. They understand patrolling. Yeah. They understand all the things that you should know as a TAC med medic. And so that's what I implemented. I know things have changed slightly since then, but still the TAC medic program has continued to grow and continue to integrate. But yeah, so because I was a custodial uh, father for my four kids, uh, I had to take on a training side of training role or else I couldn't do the fucking 24-hour call out and stuff because how was I going to find someone to watch the kids? Uh, And so eventually I just stayed the medic for a while. Eventually I I ended up meeting someone and, and, and she ended up helping me with the kids and that's when I eventually got attached to Bortec as their medic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you ran the selection that you went through, is that yeah. the one you're talking about? Yeah. And how often would that selection go down? It was once a year. Okay. Yeah, once a year, yeah, so we would. we would. And would you do it in Coronado? Is that no, the normal place? No, we did, I think they did two classes in Coronado and eventually just funding what, what made sense, we ended up moving it to White Sands, New Mexico. Okay. And so since SOG is in El Paso, White Sands was just a drive and so we started using that facility as our, as our training location. Yeah. And so for the next three that I ran, we're all in White Sands. Isn't it weird to be in Coronado getting your ass handed to you? Bro, like, I, I never wanted anything to do with fucking seals, <laughs> homie. You know what I mean? All of a sudden, I'm sitting there watching these kids, dude, getting their ass kicked, and I'm like, oh, and I see, you know, we're all chained up in the beach because we see them getting chained yeah. up on the beach and getting hit by waves, and then they go, you guys get in there, and you're like, you fuckers, dude. You know, so now we're getting chained up in the fucking... It was, um, it was cool, though, man. It yeah. kind of, again, it... It kind of checked the box for me of like, this is a legit selection, and I'm proud to have been through it. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, 
you also bring in Matt Larson, who's the guy that kind of the, the father of uh, combatives, Army, Army combatives modern program. combatives program. Yeah. Uh, I always like this podcast come out, and I'll hear from him. Like he'll hit me up, or, yeah. and. I got to get him on the podcast. He's my uh, boy, man, and yeah. he's a great dude. And oh, we, for sure. he's been a mentor of mine for a long time. He's someone I could bounce ideas off. He's very intelligent. But you know, he, you know, I, be, I was a combat instructor in the army, and he was the godfather for that for mm-hmm. us. And so when I got to actually become friends with him, it was dope. And so what we did was we created a modern army combatives program for the special operations group. Um, eventually, the border patrol and the special operations group didn't move forward with the program, but we were able to teach four classes, five classes, no injuries. Teach guys how to fucking manage themselves. Teach them how to how when to use actually like jujitsu and not to use it you know what I mean really focused on uh, weapons retention is really the focus and yeah. like creating distance and then be- being able to punch out right hey when you t- when when uh, the officer got killed and they engaged they started by engaging with less than lethal yeah what were they using uh, I think they had the POS systems it was just kind of like a it's like a pepper ball system but as well as we have the 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 I think it's called the FM three hundred four, something like that, which is kind of like a hard uh, plastic, uh, you know, projectile. Yeah. Uh, it, it just wasn't in their SOPs to start with. Like it was, yeah, just, yeah. That, that'd be crazy for them in that point in that time. Yeah. It was really fucking far fetched. They're like, why would we need to engage lethally? But what happened in the time is like those rip crews were not just fucking. Those were like gang bangers. You know what I mean? That were like trying right. like, hey, we can make a quick buck by stealing their dope and fucking using it for ourselves yeah. to sell. And so those dudes were, were like, they had no other job but to fucking make sure they got the dope to the fucking group. Mm-hmm. And so their intentions were definitely they were worse than any car, any kind of drug smuggler because drug smugglers would just drop yeah. the dope and run. Mm-hmm. These dudes were like, we need this fucking dope. And so it became a fucking uh, you know a deadly engagement. Um. So you, you mentioned that you were getting into BORTAC. Um, you say this, if I was going to jump on a BORTAC team as a medic, I would only be willing to work for Chris Voss. Chris Voss was a dual tabber, BORSTAR and BORTAC. He had extensive background as a combat experience ranger and many years on the teams. So this is the guy that sort of, you work together. Yeah. You meet him. You know, ranger, ranger kind yep. of thing. We met, we just became friends. Out. Yeah, we just, <laughs> dude, we, we, we broke out. <laughs> exactly. And uh, we became good, pretty good buds. I wasn't sure if I wanted to get attached to a tactical team at all because I'm like, I'm just, I want to be a good medic. But I don't know where my, my life was. That was kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. I talked to Voss. I said, if I was going to join a team, I'd join a ranger. Right? You're the dude I would follow. And he said, we'd love to have you as a medic. So, just to be clear, I never was a, I never became a boar attacker. I talked about it on the thing. I never had the time to try out because my life just with the divorce and the kids, it got, it got a little crazy. But I, the next best thing was what I, what I got is what I wanted. I was attached to one of the number one boar attack teams in the nation, the SOG, which is our, our tier one element compared to in what you would identify them as a tier one element. I was their medic. And that was like, for me, like I fucking got to where I wanted yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. Legit, um, and it's cool. You talk about going to the kill house with these guys for the first time, bro. And you're like, yeah, hell yeah, dude. Like, I haven't shot live rounds in a fucking in a, in a training environment in so long. Like it was probably like four years or something like that, three years. And so like I had no idea what I was going to be able to do. And then yeah, by chance the dude in front of me his his web went cold and he got he had a malfunction. I stepped across, boom, to engage the target, and boom, kept flowing into the room. And the the you know the range safety officer on top was like later was like. What's your background? <laughs> I was like, oh, I was a ranger. He goes, yeah, thought so. And it was, it was cool. It was kind of like the, all right, you're good. Yeah. You're on the team. You yeah. know what I mean? And it felt Dude, good. That's like years ago when I went to the concealed uh, carry school. Did you go to that school? Yeah. And like, of course, I just sat there, you know, took the notes or whatever. It's like a two-day thing. First day is classroom. Second day, you go to the range. Yeah. So I went to the range, and the guy comes up to me. He like looks at my target. He's like, what? 
what's your background? I was like, I was in the team. So he's like, check. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Cause everyone else looks like shocked. You know, <laughs> I'm freaking drilling this thing. Um, this is, I'm going to fast forward a little bit. Yeah. Um, we get to New York state here. Two inmates, Richard Matt and David sweat, both incarcerated for murder were discovered missing during an early morning bed check in prison. Matt was serving 25 years to life and Sweat was serving life without parole. The two prisoners had dug a tunnel out of the prison with tools obtained from a prison employee. So this is what's going on. There's high alert. There's a bunch of false alarms. Um, and again, this this story is like, it. this story I think is what you open the book yeah. with. Yeah, you open yeah. the book with the beginning of this story and so now you've kind of built this story arc yeah. where we gotta like, we're now we're gonna get some payoff and stuff. Uh, and so you guys show up there, they fly, like you mentioned earlier, if there's tracking that needs to be done, yeah. Bortak's gonna get the call, you're attached to Bortak, you're the medic, so you're going on these operations, you guys go up to New York, and this is like what everybody dreams about, right? right. This is yeah. like, this is the, this is the shit. Yeah, we've dude. been this, training for so long now, yeah. and you're like, oh man, when, when are we gonna get one? You yeah. know what I mean? And we just got back from a training mission, uh, that was with you know several three letter agencies, and we 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 showed ourselves to be fucking dope, right? Mm-hmm. We we kicked ass in that engagement, and we we're like, oh man, and I felt good as a team. I felt like the team. I understood the team. The team understood me. We had our SOPs down. I'm clearing rooms, second dude, third dude. Didn't fucking yeah. matter. I'm just I'm the dude, right? And so it was dope. We got back, and I'm um, I'm preparing for my daughter's birthday. Mm-hmm. I haven't been to her birthday in fucking forever, right? Because that's kind of our world. Is like you're just gone, 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 yeah. gone. And uh, yeah, dude, I saw the news and I was like, oh shit, maybe they'll call us. Maybe not, it's been a few days. Boom, get the call from Voss. It's like, hey, pack it up, we're going. You guys roll up there and like start running ops, man. Like you guys run out, and again, there's details on the book, get the book, but you guys take boats out to like a little island. There's a cabin out there, you guys hit this cabin. Freaking dry hole. Dry hole. What's cool about this up, like next day or a couple days later, you're out in helicopters, you're yep. going to hit another target. This one was like a school, a big school where they you know, thought these guys were hiding. Also a dry hole. And then uh, in the book here you say it was frustrating. At times it felt like we were on their tail and at others they seemed to be, at other times they seemed to be long gone. We tracked for several more days looking for signs of where these two inmates might have been. We searched many abandoned structures, but by the end of the week, I felt like we might not catch these guys. We were running long hours and days for almost a week before we were even given a night off. I was bummed because it was a Friday and my daughter's birthday was on Saturday and I was stuck in New York. I asked Chris Voss how he felt about me going home for the weekend to catch my daughter's birthday and then head back on Monday. He was completely comfortable and I got the idea approved. So, you know, you're like, doesn't seem like this shit's going down. Yeah. Or you're going to catch this guy. Well, they told um, me that we were going to redeploy on Sunday. I was like, look, if for some reason we're, yeah. we're not, I'll come back. Right. I, I just got it. Right. Like, I want to catch this. Yeah. You know? And, you know, like everybody that is in any kind of service, you've missed so many freaking birthdays. And here you were, you had everything set up and she's anticipating. It's just like, a, just like you got to do what you got to do. So you decide you're going to fly home. So I'll go to the book here. I flew home Saturday to enjoy my daughter's birthday. I watched the news and started to set up the bouncy castle when I saw on the report that Richard Matt had, was killed by U.S. Border Patrol agents. I looked at, over at my father and asked him to turn up the volume. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. My team was scheduled to come back a few days after me, but they were called in because of some new intelligence. They had walked in on Matt's final position. 
and one of the members of my team was able to engage the threat as Matt elevated his shotgun on him. My father asked if I was okay as tears trickled down my face. I had to explain to him that I was on that mission the night before and I'd come home for the party. You end up getting a phone call. You find out Chris Voss was the person who had made the engagement and I was hurt that I couldn't be there for him. This was the first time in my career that I had chosen my family over work. I was extremely conflicted. I chose to be with my daughter for her birthday and not with my team for the mission. I left them without a designated Borstar medic and I was at my daughter's party with my heart torn by whether or not it was the right decision. After the party was over and the friends and family left, I was left alone with my thoughts. I have lived a life dedicated to serving a greater purpose. I believed in the mission and the men, even though I knew how much my kids have missed during my life when I was away on missions and how much I had missed theirs. The mission and my path had started to blur. The whole ordeal had left me confused. The last thing my team deserved was a half-invested medic. My priorities had changed, and I decided it was best to resign and shift gears in life. It was time to put this chapter behind me and start a new career. That was a heavy one for me. Yeah, that's like, that's kind of, I mean, what about like just the logistics side? Of your now, however far ranking you are, you have retirement at least somewhere in the future. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's. Yeah. I walked away from like everything. Everything. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, that's. It was tough. It was. Um, it you, was like I never thought it would happen. Mm-hmm. And then when it happened, I said, I fucking knew this would happen. You know what I mean? Did you have any uh, idea what you'd be doing next? Had you, because you know, you 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 end up in a totally different career. Had you, no, broached that at all? No, it was like I I did have a couple businesses that were doing decent, and uh, I didn't know where they were going to go, mm-hmm. but I knew it wasn't what I wanted either. I just knew I I needed it. I needed something different. I I needed to do something that would put me more in my kids' lives than it was, and I was just tired of like. I wasn't tired of it, but I just knew I needed to, I needed, they needed me. And, mm-hmm. and, and that to me is more important than anything. Right. And it wasn't for so long. I never thought, I thought like, well, I'm putting, I'm paying the bills. So that's the most important thing a dad can do. And at that time, they've already gone through one divorce. They were going through now their second divorce that they're seeing. And it's just dad trying to figure it out. And I felt it was, I had to do my duty as a father to just give them more of me. And so it was just, and, and not be a half-assed medic for a team. Yeah. It just fucking wasn't fair for anyone. So how, how many kids did you have at this point? I had four. That was my original four for my first marriage. And, yeah. and, and look, that's not the end of the book at all. Um, there, it, there's, the, the, the stories continue. Um, there's a bunch of information you go through, like history. Yeah. Uh, it's stuff that you really, not, number one, it's interesting, but number two, if you're going to have an opinion about this stuff, have an educated opinion, know not just what the theories are, but like what people that have lived it go through. So from that perspective, uh, it's just a great book. And and you do talk about like thoughts and ideas on how to prove, improve yeah. safety and security. So you, it, it really, get the book if, you know, get the book. Um, and, and really, I mean, I think just to give a little bit of the book, an idea of the book, I'm just gonna go to the forward, written by me. Uh, 
Borderline gives us a look into border security and border patrol through the eyes of a dedicated professional. He not only explains daily border patrol life and culture, but also shares his approach and attitude while on duty. Similar to specialized military schools, the border patrol has a dynamic, challenging training curriculum that teaches agents to survey the border lands and then track, apprehend, and process migrants who have crossed illegally. This requires that agents learn how to care for children, for scared children traveling alone, and in the same night, perhaps even at the same time, contend with dangerous criminals looking to smuggle, steal, exploit, and kill. This dichotomy of being combative while remaining empathetic often puts agents' lives at risk. The harsh environment of the arid desert, the desperation of people seeking a new life, and the cruelty of smugglers and criminals make for a grim and bleak environment, one with many moral dilemmas. Vince has seen all aspects of this convoluted chaos. The perspective he gives in this book is insightful and informative, and it should be mandatory reading for anyone that wants to understand the border challenge we confront as a country. So that'll give you an overall look that's part of the forward that I wrote um, for the book. So fantastic job on the book, man. It's like I said, it's a great read, not only from a storyline, not only from the what you learn, but just the whole arc of the whole thing is awesome. I appreciate it. Um, so let's get to you, though. <laughs> you Let's talk about after you leave the Border Control. So you got some business. What are the business you got going on? Uh, I have veteran. Uh, that's just It's just T-shirts, right? No, it's I'm just... talking about when you got out. Like so, what's your oh. next move when you get out? Where are you getting a paycheck from? Oh, we had uh, I had Article Fifteen Clothing with with Matt JT, right? We, mm-hmm. we were growing that. We had Let Singers Whiskey, uh, and those were, and then we had a Drinking Bros podcast, and so those three were kind of paying me. Um, and then slowly, I started transitioning into we we produced a movie called Range Fifteen. Mm-hmm. You saw the documentary. You came yeah. to the premiere for the yeah, documentary. Yeah, I came. That's where I met you for yeah, the first yeah, time, right? Yeah, that's yep. That, yep. So you came to the premiere for for the. It's called Not a War Story. It's a documentary that shows kind of what we did. It was like, you know, six veterans raised enough money to do a film, and we used a lot of the community to help film film that, right? Mm-hmm. We used them as zombies or whatnot. It was kind of a, kind of a cool, crazy story, yeah. yeah? And, and I think it was kind of beautiful. But that doing that film is what inspired me to kind of like, okay, I want to pursue acting. I want to write, and I want to act. But how, dude? Does this come out of left field or like? No, man. So I, I tell you where it fits into my life. I grew up in L.A. and uh, it's not uncommon to see an actor. You know, I worked at, you know, I worked at fucking Champ Sports and sold hats to fucking Mark Wahlberg and shit mm-hmm. like that. And so you see actors and all that. The world, you, you have friends who their dad's a producer of this or whatever the case. And so it was not uncommon to be in my world when I was in junior college for me to kind of get good grades. I did theater classes. So I did like a improv comedy and you know like an improv class and, and other and other classes and I knew that I had a natural knack for it. I wasn't embarrassed. I was, mm-hmm. it was completely comfortable doing it. And my acting coach at the time, the teacher was like, "Hey, I think you should look further into pursuing this." I'm like, eh, "Baseball is more important." You know what I mean? She wasn't like, "Pottery's not your game." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so you know, uh, as I started doing the YouTube videos with my boys, I was like, "Damn." how do I pursue the real thing? Like, I don't want to do YouTube forever. I want to fucking do the real thing. So when we produced the movie, I knew. I, I looked at Nick Palmashano, the owner of Ranger Up at the time, and I said, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my fucking life. Mm-hmm. And after we were done filming that, um, I produced a short film about post-traumatic stress based off a poem I wrote. 
And then that introduced me to another actor veteran uh, that is in Hollywood. And he said, come out and do some improv comedy with us called Dads in Parks, right? And this is a YouTube series that we did. Mm-hmm. And so I helped with that. I helped write a couple episodes and, and we ended up getting another contract with AMC to do more. And that was so we can be the preview before the preview. So we would do these jokes about films or whatever the case. Mm-hmm. And while I was in LA filming those, uh, I had a buddy say, hey, Mayans is still like auditioning. I was like, well, how the fuck do I do that? You know and so Mayans had it started yet? No, they just started auditioning for the oh, first okay. pilot. Okay. And I was like, well, I feel like I look the part. I feel like I can hold myself in acting pretty decent. Um, how do I get an audition? You're and like, do they have to speak Spanish? <laughs> <laughs> that was a question they asked me. I'm like, yo, I don't know. <laughs> so I, I hit up my buddy, uh, Steve Howie who was a pretty big actor at the time, and, and we became friends just through the Range 15 movie, and just he came out and supported us. And I said, hey, man, I don't know what's the next step here, but you know, I have a reel. I have an acting reel. I have a resume. I have some headshots. Um, I would love to audition for this mind. He goes, dude, you'd be perfect for it. And you know, by chance, I know the casting director. Let me send you from headshots and just see if she's interested. He sent my headshot. Boom, we got an email. Audition the next day. Damn. And we're there for spring break. Me and my wife are like, we're like, we're like, we're doing Disneyland. We're doing, you know, we're doing all that. And I was like, uh, because you, getting an audition like that, like that is, is like crazy. right? It, it's almost impossible. It's it like everything lined up right for that even to happen. Yeah, man. Yeah, it's it's almost impossible. The the why it happened the way it did was they're so deep into their casting and they're about to start filming in like a week and a half. They're still missing two people. Mm-hmm. It's everyone's the same dude. They have they've seen everyone else, and I think they were looking for something that was just different. And then I showed up, mm-hmm. and I showed up like a dumbass. I brought my wife to the fucking audition because I don't know any better. I'm just like, hey, babe, let's go check this out, right? And then John Berthold later he's just like, you brought her to your fucking audition. I was like, I, I didn't know any better, dog. I just like sit down, babe. Let me go knock this out, you know. And so we did the first audition. Uh, the casting director, Wendy O'Brien, she gave me a big old hug and a kiss and on the cheek and was like, that was great. And I'm like, she What did you have to do in the audition? Did you read lines or yeah, something? Yeah, you read lines, right? They mm-hmm. just gave me like one character and it was probably like four different lines, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I memorized them off book just because off the off the, what my friend Steve told me. He mm-hmm. said, dude, just do it off book. Just memorize it. Mm-hmm. I'm like, cool, and, and I was terrified because I don't memorize shit very well. So I, I Dude, rec- you can barely read. <laughs> yeah, I can barely read, yeah, exactly, dude. So I, 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 I read it, I, I recorded it, I had my wife check it, I was like, are these the yeah. right words? She goes, yes, I'm like, cool, and I, I listened to it all night. Mm-hmm. So by the morning, I was like, ready. Mm-hmm. And then I had to like act it, too, you know, so. Do you she, remember the lines right now? No, but I have the tape. Oh, I'll send it to you, dude, if you want to. Yeah, I'll send, send it to you. Echo, we'll post that up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, dude. Put so, you on, put you on, <laughs> on, on trial out here. <laughs> it, it, was, it was funny. So then I got done with it. Like I said, she kissed me she kissed me on the cheek, very friendly. And I was like, I don't know if she's just really friendly or she really liked it. I don't know. So we flew home back to El Paso where we're living. That's where I, I left the Border Patrol in El Paso. I was still, mm-hmm. still living there. And right before I landed, we already got an email saying they want to see a second a second run and they want to see two different characters now the same guy and then a, a funny one mm-hmm. i think i had like 700 bucks in my account at the time i already walked i walked away from like my uh, my businesses and it's just me trying to figure it out um i bought that like 400 dollars ticket or something like that i knew it took a lot out of the account and we went there i had my dad drive me as a dad driving you know and i can't afford an uber dad. yeah yeah dad <laughs> get your ass over here <laughs> So he drove me, and he was all excited about it. He's like, Vinny, maybe they have a role for me. I'm like, calm down, dude. <laughs> like, can I get the job first? <laughs> you know my father's cut man, Carlos, right? This well-known cut man in boxing. And so he's just always into everything. Hell yeah. And so uh, 
he, we get there, and I took my dad to the next audition. <laughs> then there's Kurt Sutter, Elgin James, and Wendy O'Brien in the room. And uh, they say start. And so I do my first one uh, with the serious one, and then we do the second one. It's the funny one. And I, they said, do you want to sit down? I was like, yeah, I'll sit down. I don't know any better. So I just sat down, and I do the lines. And at that time, I don't know, I blacked out. Like, I don't remember it. <laughs> I remember coming to and everyone laughing, and I'm laughing. And I'm like, all right. Shook their hands, and I left. And uh, eventually I got the tape and saw what I did. It was like I fucked up the line, but I added something to it. Which I didn't fuck it up. I added more to it for some reason, which is usually you shouldn't do. But whatever the case, it worked enough where, like, by the time I got home again, boom, I had the job. And so we flew back to L.A. and started filming the first yeah. pilot. So oddly enough, I mean, this is just weird the way the world works. Like, you're... This is my brother's Elgin's show. You know what I mean? And yeah. he had told me, like, this is what I'm doing next. He's, he's telling it to me for the first time, you know, and he's like, I'm, I'm making a show. And... He never, well, you know him, so he never like says that anything is going to be good or big or successful or anything. He just says it matter of fact of like what's going on. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, it looks like, I'm, and it's always, a, there's always like a, almost like an out of like, yeah, I'm working on this show right now. It's, have you heard of Sons of Anarchy? Yeah. It's it's gonna be like kind of something like that. Like that was like the information yeah, that you know, that's funny. He's not like, bro, he landed this thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. you know, he never says anything like that because he's too like humble to to brag. Yeah. And especially to me, because me and him, we always like understate whatever's going on. Like yeah. whatever's going on, it'll be like, oh yeah, we did this and you know whatever. So I I knew about the show as it was coming out, obviously, yeah. as it was even get before it was even getting made. But that's like wild. Oh, dude, so I'm eating lunch, and I don't know any better. I didn't know there's a place to eat, so I grab my plate, and I'm, I just go sit on, like, a tire. He goes, hey, uh, Rocco, you can go eat inside. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay, cool. And so then he started talking to me a little. He goes, you're you're a uh, military, right? He goes, yeah, my, my brother, he's, he's kind of well-known in the military. I was like, oh, yeah, cool. Yeah, me too, kind of. You know, I was like, so what's his name? Jocko, I was like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> I was like, shut the fuck up, Jocko. I was like, yeah, I, I fucking know exactly who your brother's like, what? And I was completely blown away by it. But like, I was like, all right. And then I didn't even know the gravity of who he was. Yeah. You know what I mean? I just knew yeah. he was a really cool dude, really nice guy. And he's just there. And and because I, I don't know film very well. Yeah. I'm learning like, oh, he's the co-showrunner. Yeah, you what, don't really know what that yeah, means. Yeah, like, what the fuck is that? Is yeah. you, oh, that must be the guy that well, runs around and gets stuff. Yeah, <laughs> crazy <laughs> me. Again, I brought my wife to one of the days of filming. Yeah. And I just had her sitting there. Right, again, no fucking clue. And he goes, hey, uh, Christy, come sit down. And he, put, he puts her in his chair. And I'm like, cool, whatever. And then she's sitting next to fucking Kurt Sutter. She looks at him, she goes, I was like, I don't fucking know what to do. Like, I'm about to get fired, I feel like. Because you're sitting next to the fucking guy, the main guy here, right? And eventually, it was just super cool. And... It was he was one of the dudes who just welcomed me in, and we became really close. And still, he's one of the guys that, you know, I, I go to for a lot of things. He's just a really good all around guy, and it's just kind of well how it's all connected. Yeah, it's freaking crazy. Um, that runs for five seasons. Just ended. Yeah. And uh, well, again, is it spoiler alert? Nah, enough people have seen it by now. Okay, but like, well, there's two two good stories about spoiler alerts. So, did you ever see Little Birds? I didn't yet. Okay. I, I got to see it. Well, then spoiler alert. So, oh, I guess I don't know. So, Elgin and I are driving to the screening. It's not totally done movie. So, just to catch everyone up, Elgin made a movie called Little Birds after he got out of prison. And he made this movie. And 
he's like, hey man, my like my movie's it's getting a screening tonight, which means they actually get feedback from an yeah. audience before it gets released to make sure they understood it, to make sure that it made sense, make sure. So that's what I'm going to. So I go up to LA and I'm at his house, we're chilling, and then he's like, right, yeah, we gotta go. So we get in his car and we're driving down there. And I go, so what's this thing about? And he's like, oh, and he again, like total like understated. He goes, yeah, it's just about like these girls. He goes, it's kind of about like us, like growing up and getting crazy and like, just wild things happening, and I go, cool, he's six. But in this case, it's two girls, and I was like, okay, well, that's a different take. And he goes, and um, he goes, and they they run away from Nyland, which is again the weird how everything's so connected. But that's like desert training for the SEAL teams. He's like, yeah, they run away from there, and they end up in L.A. and they're and he goes, and shit goes sideways. And I go, like, what kind of shit goes sideways? And he goes, uh, you, you'll 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 see like that. And I was I was honestly never been mad at him, and I was like, dude. Like it seemed like a punk move to be like you'll find out type thing, like oh you'll see. I was kind of like I didn't say anything, but I was like, bro, the, uh, I was like, oh he is Hollywood now. Like in my mind, like I had like some. And then sure enough, I get in there and I'm watching it, and the movie, like what the part where you're like it, it is it is it is uh, it's shocking, right? Like it goes from it just takes a turn where you're just like holy fuck what is going on and it's awesome and i was so happy that he didn't give me a heads up as to what went down but yeah so so that was going on um and then he eventually got into this thing and yeah uh ends up doing five seasons of this thing oh and so that's the other thing was when the when the finale was coming for mayans and again this is spoiler alert kind of but he's like, yeah, everyone's fucking dying. <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean? He's like, he said to me, he goes, you know, a lot of these stories about crime and about gangs and stuff, they spin it in a way where everything kind of turns out kind of good, you know, and yeah. like people make it and people get it, blah, blah. And he's like, and that's just not realistic. It's not true. He's, and he knows. Like, yeah. so she's like, it's going to be a realistic ending. And yeah. then I was tracking it on uh, Twitter. And people were just like, holy Bro. shit. Like, oh my oh, God. God. Yeah. Yeah, dude. So I was a writer this last season, mm-hmm. you know, and I was there in the writing room for all of this, just being able to kind of, one, learn from Elgin how he does things, and and two, just helping conceptualize. Because I was there from the beginning to the end. So I was able to kind of like, oh, this story. I was helping out with a lot of kind of story details. And uh, when I heard like the plan, I was like, oh my God. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's like, I'm holding on to this. And like, my wife's like, she's a fan of the show too. So she's like, what is that? I was like, I, I can't even tell you. Yeah. That's like, that's how fucking wild this is. But like, the way Elgin sees the world in writing uh, was inspiring for me because I would be, if I'm seeing it this way, he'd say, but that's what everyone expects. Mm-hmm. See it this way. Mm-hmm. And it was just, it just made me that much better of a writer in the sense of like, how to construct the story. And it just proved like the way minds was, how many people were hurt, the millions that were hurt, good. (laughs) It's like what the purpose was, was if you don't watch a show and you don't have an emotional response to it, it's like, did it really like, Mm -hmm. was it that good of a show for you? Everyone who was emotionally invested into the show was heartbroken Mm -hmm. and as it should be. Yeah, Yeah. and that's the real Scenario that you end up with yeah. if you're doing shit, it's gonna catch up with you yeah. over time. That's the way things work in the world. Yeah, you know, there's no fairy tale endings. Yeah, it's freaking dope. Uh, so so you wrote one of those. Yeah, and and then that leads you to be able to write uh, more opportunities to writing. 
hopefully, you know, the, the goal is to <clears throat> continue down the, the road of the Hollywood sign, the Hollywood scene as a writer and an actor. Um, I like writing more than I like acting. I love acting. I think it's fucking dope. But um, a guy with tattoos on his hands and neck doesn't get too many opportunities mm-hmm. to do specific roles that I think would be fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I'm 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 not oblivious to that. Um, but I can continue to construct my own world and tell the stories that I want to be be told, and so that's my goal. And I knew writing this book would potentially lead to hopefully, I'm hoping uh, a border patrol series as well. And all the beautiful nuances of the things that could happen on the border could be told uh, visually. That's what my goal would be. But there's long things, a lot of things in my life that I've experienced. I want to turn into stories, um, and so, you know. With, with everything going on in Hollywood right now with kind of the hiring, uh, the writing strike that finally ended and then the acting strike that's still currently happening right now. I'm hoping to come out on the other end of that uh, and be able to continue to work in the space, uh, continue to work with people that I've worked with in relationships like Elgin and so on and so forth. And so, yeah, we're trying. We have a lot of projects out there that are getting looked at now and hopefully something gets picked up. Uh, you know, I've still, I, I got a lot of stories from my life that, that I'm able to turn into little scripts and, and I guess like compartmentalize them as well and, mm-hmm. and turn them into something special hopefully. And so, yeah, we're, we're, we're trying, trying to make a run at it, man. Yeah. Uh, so you got the writing stuff. Um, and then what else you got going on? You got, you got veteran, right? Yeah. Veteran. Tell a, us about veteran. Yeah, veteran's a company that we started. It's just kind of a positive outlook on the veteran, veteran community that, that just, I felt like it needed to be done. There's so much negativity. There's so much focus on the negative sides of veterans that, uh, the word veteran to me was a better approach to trying to hopefully motivate and inspire veterans to do more, to be more right to, to that they can do more. And so, you know, when I did that, then I'm like, okay, well, what can I bring on with that? Well, for me in my life, uh, I've kind of gone through a big wellness push. You know, I, I'm, I'm so, for four and a half years now, just under four and a half years now, uh, I've done many different modalities of healing, uh, different from therapies and stuff like that. And so uh, I became kind of a guinea pig for, for other veterans to just see, even men, just to see that we can heal our past, we can heal our past traumas from childhood as well as military and law enforcement, and we can we can strive to be better. And in the same aspects of veteran, we created uh, Light Diffuse Wellness. And so it's a kind of a, I have accountability group where people can join and we just kind of hold people accountable, but as well as the, the mentorship side of excuse me, the, the wellness side is we did a men's retreat and we introduced different modalities of healing. We introduced some stuff that was like plant medicine, non-psychedelic, mm-hmm. but we also did What's things. What's a plant medicine that's non-psychedelic? Uh, compo. We did a thing called compo. We did. What's uh, that? Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's the venom of a, of a, of a frog, uh, you know, of a Amazonian frog. Is this like frog. the toad? Is yeah, the, the toad, toad, right, right. What Mike Tyson and Joe Rogan were talking about? Uh, the toad? There's, there's different ones. Okay. There's different ones. So this it's one, a toad. Yeah, this one. You, you, but it's not psychedelic? Non-psychedelic. Right. This one, this one for this trip, for this retreat was we chose to go non-psychedelic but still plant medicine. And so they introduced the, the, the venom to your, it's, I think it's the saliva. So what right? do you feel when you do it? Uh, just overwhelming heat, but everyone's experience is slightly different. Mm. Everyone's experience overwhelming is, heat. It's like a, yeah, yeah, it's like a very, okay. uh, very heat therapeutic kind of. It's almost like a internal sauna, <laughs> but okay. th- everyone has a different effect of it, right? And and introduced with that, there's we did um, two other ones. One was introduced to the nose. It was like a, a tobacco, and then one was uh, eye drops into the eyes, and three different versions of uh, of plant medicine that was not psychedelic, but mm-hmm. they all had some kind of effect, and and. Uh, guys left there feeling uh, clarity, right? They felt uh, they were able to 
to, I guess, manifest some emotions that they've been harboring for a long time. Uh, but also in that same weekend, they did Wim Hof. They learned how to do Wim Hof sessions of breathing, mm -hmm. right? They learned uh, things about um, uh, Matt Larson came out and taught uh, about moral injury. We had a an EMD uh, EMDR uh, counselor there to talk about that and hopefully introduce EMDR that. is it, like it, the, the lights yep, in the head face. Yep, yeah. yep, that helps with the kind of the frontal cortex and processing trauma. Uh, we had a long list of different things as well as community. Right, we just the goal is to introduce. I guess to dip the toe in the water of wellness and for them to kind of continue to pursue it on their own. It's a place where like men can feel like they can be one vulnerable if need be, but to uh, open expression of, of some of their own traumas and being a part of a community that, that welcomes it as well. And so yoga, breathing, all these different things. How and many so, dudes were there? Uh, that one was 30, 30 participants. And how long is it? It was three days. And I'm telling you, it was life changing. Mm -hmm. A guy like my brother, who's a he's a battalion chief in the fire department in Chandler. He would never be open to any of this stuff. He's kind of stoic, and he left there like, "When's the next one? Like, I, I gotta try it." And where Where do you do it? We did this one in Dallas. We, we kind of we, we're scheduling one in California here soon. We're scheduling another one in Dallas in April. Uh, it really just depends if we can find the facility to, to to host it. You know, I have a long list of the the wellness leaders that I've you know, been introduced to myself going through different programs. Uh, and so now I brought them all under my, my little umbrella and I bring them in to, to teach their portion. Mm -hmm. It's dope, dude. It's, so you've it's, done one so far. We've done one so far, but we have a continued, so we have like the, the, it's the, the accountability group. Those guys are still in that world got too. It, so it. as these guys, I can introduce them single. So like we have guys going to do ayahuasca, right? We have guys connected to the, the Heroic Hearts Foundation to do ayahuasca. We have guys who are doing sessions with the same healers that did the compo. We have um, American Yogi, uh, ex-SF dude who does yoga. He's the one doing breathing and stuff like that. We also, all these guys are still mm -hmm. introduced into the same world. So um, yeah, we're just kind of bridging that gap for the guys. Okay. And then you also have a podcast. Yeah, the Vinny Rock Podcast. Vinny Rock. Yeah, the Vinny Rock Podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Vinny Rock Podcast and what's going on with that? We I did it for about four years and then mine's got really kind of took over and I wasn't able to. So now we just, I, I bought all the cameras and I have a producer coming in to help us. And so now again, we're just bringing dudes in mm -hmm. and, and interviewing them. A lot of focuses on wellness, a lot of focuses on just successful careers. I hope to inspire, motivate and entertain. Mm -hmm. you know, and so it's just kind of a cool spot to, to hear me interview people and also have my opinions on it. When you're working at Mayans, when you're on TV doing these shows, did you know what it was like? Well, I guess you kind of knew from article 15 of yeah. like what was going down and that you have to do the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over again? Yeah, no, it, w when you do YouTube, it's not like that. Oh. Yeah, when you do YouTube, it's just like, turn the camera on and go. You mm. know what I mean? And, and even if we fucked up, it kind of, we use like it. Whatever. Yeah. yeah, and acting was crazy. Acting, real Hollywood style acting was like, the military in the sense of hurry up and wait, but also like, holy fuck, this Mananas. Yeah. And it's like, you do the scene. If it was a scene of us three, Right, you do your takes, you do yeah. your takes, you do my takes, you do the wide takes, and then you'd go in and clean up. Yeah. And you're like, what the fuck? So how many hours, seven hours for one fucking scene? Like yeah. our scene we did when you were, yeah. it was just like over and over yeah. and over, and you're like, what the, the fuck? first, I was on Billions, and uh, I didn't know any of this, right? <laughs> I didn't even think you had to actually memorize the words, right? So they sent me a script, and I was like, cool, whatever, dude. Like, I'm gonna say what I want, like, yeah. what up? You know, I'm fucking Jocko, what? <laughs> and so I get there and I probably only had, I don't know how many lines I had, but it wasn't like a lot, but I'm watching like the scene before me 
And I'm like, oh God, they're doing the same thing over and over again. Oh, that means I gotta say the same thing. That means other people gotta respond in the way. And I didn't know that at all. So I'm sitting there trying to memorize the lines, my whatever, seven lines, like, and then we, you know, same thing. We we have a, a scene in Billions and it's like, I'm on this, the opening like running scene or whatever, but it took like seven hours. Bro. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, dude, this is crazy. Yeah. And then I went back again, which I knew what to, what to expect, but yeah, it's weird that you, that actors in those shows, man, you're doing the same thing like 20 times. It's emotionally exhausting. Like not emotionally in the sense of like crying, but it's just like you have to think and process and, and, and you know, you have to emote whatever emotion they're asking for and you have to do it over and over and over and then they say cut and you go hang out with your guys and you're talking and bullshit and then you go right back to back on target. And uh, you don't realize how tiring that shit is for your body until you're done with it. And the day's over and you're driving your car and you're like, God, I'm fucking smoked, dude. Like I didn't do nothing. <laughs> I sat on like the, the truck bed of a car and said the same lines for like seven hours. I'm smoked. It's so weird. <laughs> so JD, the, the star of Mayans, yeah. right? So that's when I was on Mayans. It was us yeah. and, and a few other guys, but he was kind of the main guy. Yeah. He, he and I were talking, right? Ezekiel. And as we're, <laughs> as we're standing there, right? So he and I have a lot of FaceTime where they're not filming, but we're just standing yeah. there set cameras. We end up just talking a bunch. Yeah. And so I'm kind of getting his life story and stuff. And uh, great dude, super cool. Yeah. And But then he's like, yeah, you know, I was getting in trouble. And I think his dad was a Marine. His dad yeah, was a Marine. His dad was a yeah. Marine. And so he had like that going in his life. But then he was kind of getting in trouble, you know, just being a kid. And then he's like, yeah, you know, he says when um, I, I was in, I think it was in high school. And like I got put into this acting class. And like the first time I, I like got on stage, man, I knew that like, this was for me. And I looked back at him, I was like, that's how I felt when I first got a machine gun in my hands. <laughs> it was so, dude, he laughed so hard because it was just such a contrast of bullshit. But uh, yeah, what, he's a freaking good dude. He's um, a great dude. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's weird though, like when you think of what an actor does, man, they're just doing the same thing over yeah. and over again. You gotta be a patient person. Well, dude, imagine an emotional scene. That's a hard. I, I, yeah, I don't know. It's hard because you have thirty people in this room, mm-hmm. and they're watching you go take after take after take, and you have to keep giving the mm-hmm. best performance you possibly can. Because for me, every time you have a chance to do a performance, you're like, give it your all, because mm-hmm. you don't know who the fuck's gonna, the next casting director's like, we want him for the next movie. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, so it's always a tryout, it's always an interview, it's always an audition. You know what I mean? So every scene you get is like, give it, dude, give it everything, because then the other side of it, which one do they take? Yeah, we don't know yeah. which one they edit in, and it might not be your best take. And you're like, fuck. You know, yeah. whatever that is. So every time you get the chance, you're trying to give it everything. And fuck, dude. It's like, <laughs> this is fucking impossible. And how long? So I've done, like I said, like I did Billions, I did NCIS, and I did my yeah. set. That's four days on set, right? Oh, yeah. And, but how long, or like when, when you start filming Mayans. Yeah, it's about five months. Is it five months? Are you in, how many scenes are you in? It like how de- many dates? It oh. all depends on the writing. That's the hard part for like, so me being the family man, like I would fly home every weekend because we don't film on weekends, Mm -hmm. but I would be there sometimes on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, sometimes be Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, sometimes it'd be just be Wednesday, sometimes I don't even have nothing that whole week. It all depends on my character and how much is written, but I know for a fact we're filming for five to six months. Mm -hmm. So those five to six months is like, it's dedicated to Mayans, and for the most part, I was in like almost every episode, Mm -hmm. every season, Mm -hmm. that I was there almost one or two days every week. 
What about for JD? Is he just, he's like five days a week? No, nope, he's the same. He's the same. He might have more, but for the most part, like if we, it might be a heavy week where it's the cartel focused. Well, JD's not uh, any cartel okay, stuff, right? It. it might be. Oh, and they stack it that way. Right. So they're going to have all the cartel guys. Right. They're all going to do a bunch of scenes yeah. all in the yeah, same so time. Like, uh, my scenes guy. were with the, with this actress um, named Erica, Erica and she, um, you know, our scenes were our scenes. And so we'd have two days in a row, just our scenes. Mm. And no one else was even working those two days. Got it was it. just me, her, and, you know, our, our CM Punk. Right. right. And so we would have two days dedicated just for our stuff. And that would happen often. So if it was like a JD heavy week where he was doing his own stuff, like, we would, yeah. But damn, that must be like. Dude, five, six months of work. Uh, you, I'm excited the last day. Actually, I'm not good at saying goodbye. So, like, even on the last day of filming, I was there from day one all the way to the last one. We said, cut, boom, grab my stuff and start driving home. Like, I'm out, dog. Yeah. I, don't, I don't, I'm tired. Like, six months of this shit, playing a character, emotionally invested into the character, and my character having a lot of emotion. Like, you're like, I'm over it, dude. Like, I'm tired. I need the break. I need the break. And now, like, we don't even have it no more. I'm like, fuck, dude. I miss it. I miss it. Uh, all right. So, you got done with that. You got light the fuse. You got. Uh, veteran Vinny Rock, you got music too. Did you think <laughs> I, I was I gonna find yeah, this? Yeah, I don't talk about that often. Hey, this dude over here making music. Bro. Hell yeah! I'm so, actually going home after this to to go work on another song. I got a producer coming to town. So, what do you play an instrument? I don't. I just I write. I write. You write it and then sing it. you sing it. Yeah. You got um, a song called Leftovers. You got a song <laughs> called Keys. You got a song called Lonely Road. Uh, so you write this, yeah. the lyrics, right? And then for leftovers, for example. So, wh who's the dude that's going to come and make the music? How's that work? Uh, that's my producer. Um, his name is Jay Denton. He he just he owns Endure. Uh, he's just a really cool dude that we got connected with, and and he develops all the music for it and helps put it into music. You know, I write I write the concept of the song, and sometimes we just co-write and finish it up. But it all comes from something. All the songs mean something, right? I'm not. I, I just write whatever I'm dealing with or something I want, like if I want to write something for my wife. Um, and so he, he comes in and helps me finish it up. So mm -hmm. we're a good team. And then is he playing the, the Yeah, he plays all the instruments, yeah. And then you, you roll in there and throw down the vocal track. <laughs> <laughs> it's embarrassing, Damn. dude. I hate that on my bio. People like, and music. I'm like, no, dude, don't even mention that. Because I originally did it for myself. It was like my own like. Oh, that's why you put it on YouTube? No, eventually he was like, it's really good. I'm like, uh, all right, fuck it. I'll put, there's one song on YouTube. Uh, well, they're on. No, there's more than one song on YouTube. I was watching them last night. Were they? Yeah. yeah. On YouTube? Yeah. yeah. They, they're good, man. They're, uh, I was, I was, it was interesting to me because there's no, uh, there's a very limited thread of the musical style. Yeah. It's like one song sounds like this, one song sounds like something else, the other song sounds like something else, and you... You know your voice is obviously the same through yeah. all of them, yeah. but it's pretty interesting that you're able to go this mode and go that mode yeah. and go that other mode. Your voice, again, no offense, you don't have like a ton of range, right? Yeah. You're doing what you're doing, yeah. And this is coming from someone that has zero range. Yeah, so yeah. I stay in my zero. pocket. Yeah, I stay but, in my but pocket. It's cool that you can take what you do yeah. and you can put it in this kind of song and that kind of song. It works out pretty good, man. <laughs> you Credit. got me sweating, bro. I'm nervous. Credit, bro. <laughs> I'm embarrassed. Um, so you got that going on. And what else? What what am I missing? I don't even know. The yeah, I don't know. The book. That's the book. it. I just I, I like to write. We, you know, we that's, just we just, hit the, we just, we just the, talked we, about the book. We talked about the book for a couple hours. hours. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I just like to write, uh, and I just found a lot of like therapeutic value in the writing, and then it's just kind of turned it into a career, and it's been kind of cool. What's your process for writing? 
I'll ask a Tim Ferriss question. Yeah. Um, so for writing the book, I, I first established which chapters I want to write, or kind of like the, the broad strokes of chapters, and then and then I'll knock out one chapter at a time, and I just write like my heart out to all of it, and then uh, you know you'll go, I'll go back and say this doesn't fit, so I'll save that in the extra file in my computer, and I just keep writing, and then I'll read over it, and I, I don't really read as much as I do. I, I I highlight and speak, and I hear it. And I hear the flow of it, and if it feels like it doesn't flow well, I know there's something in there I need to change, and so I go back and change it. But uh, I try and write from the heart, man. That's kind of everything. All the songs, all the, all, even the scripts I write, I try and write uh, something that, that's near and dear to my heart of, of some kind of empathy or emotion. And do you write at the same time every day when you're writing a script? Yeah, I usually it's either early in the morning before the kids wake up or late at night when they're all asleep. It's kind of like my time to focus. And what's the kid count at this time? Uh, we're at eight. Yeah, we're done. We have eight kids, and we're done. We're done. Quitting, huh? <laughs> I don't know if that's quitting or, or, no. or trying to be sensible about the whole thing. Jesus. Uh, what What else? So anything else? Did we miss anything else? I mean, I, I know I got your music. We know we got Light the Fuse. Like LTFwellness.com. Got better. And by the way, everything can be found at uh, on the interweb at VincentRoccoVargas.com. Yeah. So that's what. But did I miss anything else? No, I don't. I don't. I don't think so. Well, if you, if whatever I miss, we'll come back and do it. It'd be you know we could do five more podcasts about little things that I would dig into from the book and from your life. Uh, where so the book is borderline defending the home front, and where can people find you? They got Instagram at Vincent Rocco, and by the way, you spell Rocco wrong. R O C C O. <laughs> Not like Jocko, J-O-C-K-O. I know. If I, I felt like it was too close to the way you spell it. <laughs> uh, Vincent Rocco Vargas. You're on Facebook, Vincent Rocco Vargas. And your YouTube channel. That's where you got, not only can you watch your uh, Vinny Rock podcast, but you can also listen to the smooth tones <laughs> and comforting music <laughs> of, what do you call your band? Just it's Vinny just Rock? Me, I just call it Rocco Vargas music. I don't know. Rocco Vargas music. Yeah. Uh, it's good stuff, man. It's good stuff. Uh, Echo Charles. Yeah. You got any questions? Plenty, but mm-hmm. I'm gonna keep it kind of simple. Um, so, you ever do you explore AI tools like for the creative process at all? Uh, no, not as much. Um, I've used AIs to like construct some kind of like um, like if you're gonna post a photo, and I use the AI to help create that sometimes. But for like the business side of things, but not yeah. my personal stuff. Yeah, because like you know, like songwriting, for example. Yeah it's becoming more and more where you can you know like if you like writing right you can be like hey if you know how to talk to the ai yeah. like you know to do the prompts or whatever um you can be like okay I, I you can creatively write your song and then ask the ai to kind of do everything else and those tools are becoming more and more I'll have to check that robust out. Yeah, yeah. I, I used ai to help edit a paper you know what i mean like, yeah, a, yeah. like a college paper yeah. before because i'm like god I had to clean this up. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. The the tools are getting more and more. Like there's a lot more. Um, I do find though, especially if you're like a, if you've been a creative person for a long time, you kind of you really notice the lack of the human element yeah. in the creation. So That's what I've tell. heard is the the big difference right now. It's like it's. L- like I guess a lot of the writing strike was because of AI mm-hmm. and yeah. people were using that in script writing and supposedly, but, but yeah, I I tried that out for a script. I wrote a script about like a dad and spanking their kids. Mm-hmm. Something that I, I'm, I'm working on is kind of like this short to kind of like display the change of, the things have changed, right? Yeah. 
And I went to AI to have them write it too, just to see. Yeah, see and I'm... it was close. It, yeah. it definitely lacked a lot of the, like the empathy and the heart and emotion, but it was fucking close. And I was yeah. like, damn, there's yeah. some things that they put on that script that was just exactly what mine would have been. Right. It's pr- I, pretty crazy. I, I've run some tests with like leadership questions. Yeah. And, and what's interesting for me is since I have so much content out there from books and podcasts and interviews that it can get a really good uh, assessment of the way that I think, right? Yeah. And I would ask it, I've asked it just like the fundamental leadership questions. And what's interesting is kind of like you said, it'll, it'll give a really, it'll give a good answer. And not only does it give a good answer, it also always gives like these really good, well-crafted caveats, things like, and we have to remember that all leadership situations are different. So you have to consider that when you are applying these tools. So, it, and it'll do that for everything. Like you ask it for an exercise program, it'll yeah. be, you also have to consider that everyone's different biologically. It, yeah. So it's really good at, at covering its ass. Yeah. yeah. But on top of like the good answer and the good caveat, it always misses like a critical component where you're like, yep, this isn't. You're not there, bro. You're not there, AI (laughs) robot. You're not quite there. You're close. You're in the ballpark. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'll tell you why. Because usually, like, you know how you get a real creative person that's, like, an anomaly, right? Where it's, like, you know, these guys who stand out, Elgin James, like, there's something about them that's really unique. Mm. AI doesn't work like that. Mm. AI works the opposite. It's, like, it aggregates everything, everything, all recorded and analyzed and be like, okay, now, to answer your question, given everything that the AI knows and has learned and is going to continue to learn with all the information out there, so it's the opposite of anomalous, really. It's, like, let me... Just like how you said it gives caveats, it's for a reason yeah. because it has it, all it the information. Yeah, you know. You know what would be interesting is could you come up with a prompt not to go freaking full yeah. freaking Lex Friedman where you at nerd out, out yeah. on this stuff, no, no, it's but real. can you give it a prompt yeah. where it's like in a leadership situation, what would you do here based on Jocko Willink's principles narrowed down to eliminate obvious yeah. answers and give a unique yeah. Uh, scenario for this answer. Like, could yeah. you prompt yeah. it hard That's enough? That's where that it figures it AI out? does well if you're really good at knowing how to prompt yeah. it. Yeah, and then the more people get good at prompting, the more it can learn for itself. Mm-hmm. So, and that goes for any kind of computer thing. Like, think of of CGI, right? Mm-hmm. We got like all the simple stuff is like figured out. It's like super easy, right? Like mechanical water. stuff. E- even water is actually more complex than like mm-hmm. a steel uh, kettlebell. And then you got a machine or something like this, right? Like a refrigerator or something like that. An alien then, robot. Alien ro- robots, yeah, <laughs> they can do them good. But when you st- when you try to do really like highly specifically evolved stuff, like a human face talking mm. and getting sad and mad and stuff, stuff where like however many years of evolution like tuned us to understand and recognize or whatever, the AI is like fumbling even now. It's really yeah. hard. But it's going to get close. Of course, oh, it's, it's going to get closer scary. and closer and closer and closer for sure. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's but that, that's, that's my whole point where now if you're like, hey, I can't really play many instruments, really. You know, I know a couple guys who can and, you know, whatever, yeah. but I can write real good and that's really my passion. So when I make music, the writing is really what's going to kind of spearhead my whole creative endeavor. I'm going to use AI for all the other stuff because really, I mean, you know. I just need a guy who can play guitar. Yeah. I don't need freaking Jimi Hendrix over here. I just need a guy who can play guitar because the writing is the, the front-running element, right? Mm-hmm. So you go, AI, play a guitar in this style and just the best you can, right? Yeah. And then you finally tune it with the AI, but you, the thing you have control over creatively is the writing, and it can kind of mm-hmm. build from there, you know? You ever listen to the band The White Stripes? Yeah. Yeah, so I was listening to 
Jack White talk about the white stripes, right? And basically he's saying, listen, you go to a, a regular, like a modern studio for music to make an album if you're a person. And for instance, they take a snare drum and they like hit the snare drum a hundred times and they find the one that like whatever on the computer showed like the most rounded resonance and all this other stuff. And that's the one that they use for the whole drum track. Whole drum the track. perfect drum hit on the snare. And they do that for the cymbal, and they do that for the crash, and they do that for the keyboard, and then they do that with the person's voice. And so what you end up with is a thing that is perfect. It's a thing that's perfect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when you hear it, Look, the nor- a normal person, when they hear it, they go, oh, yep, sounds great. That's why pop Britney Spears, every one of those snares, everything in her voice, everything is perfectly done. And you know what that kind of makes me think of? A cubic zirconia. Do you know what a cubic zirconia is? Oh, it's a, yeah. fake a fake diamond. And you know how they can tell it's fake? Too perfect. Because it's too perfect. No, yeah. And so there's a certain, well, for me, I get a feeling when I listen to like really highly produced music, I'm like, this isn't a human and this doesn't have any emotion to it. And that sort of was Jack White's point of like, you can f- you can feel it, man. Like, even Meg White, she's gonna hit the drum a little different on that verse than the other verse, and it makes a difference. And the way he's playing guitar, and the way he's singing it, and his voice is breaking, it's like all those things are going on, and that's why Led Zeppelin sounds like Led Zeppelin. Or Black Sabbath, you're like, Black Sabbath sounds like Black Sabbath. They cut their first album in one shot in eight hours. <laughs> By the end of their careers, they were doing like, nine months to record an album and like everything had uh, so so just things change and you get more away from the raw and more into the highly produced highly refined and for me it loses value absolutely right especially from an artistic standpoint and that's my whole point with the ai where sure it's going to get better and better and better and better but it's almost like it gets better but at the same time can never get perfect ever it's like if i get halfway to you every single step like halfway, if I get halfway to you, then another halfway to you, I never really get to you. That's what it seems. Yeah. That's what it feels like in the creative stuff. Yeah. Because like I said, like uh, a real talented artist in one way is very individual. So when AI works on everything, it's learned from everything yeah. else, you know? And then, so it's like doing a big insight study mm-hmm. to see who's like the most creative. Yeah, there's also gonna be a point where that AI is gonna generate things that are its own. And that are gonna be unique. Here's and what they're th- doing that with art right now. Like you know, like yeah. every, remember when everyone was posting pictures of their freaking selves? Hey, I oh, generated yeah. self. Hell yeah. <laughs> that was just like oh, the yeah. ultimate in uh hey, Yeah, I guess so. Look at the perfect hey, version of me. That's what I it is. Decided to get in the game with the AI pictures of myself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> In case anyone was wondering what I look like if I was freaking it's fucking Terminator, bro. 240 yeah. pounds of, you know, blue twisted steel. <laughs> Hell yeah. But they're pretty cool, though. Yeah, that, yeah, that yeah that's what cool. I'm saying. There's yeah. a uniqueness to oh, them. Yeah. There's well, a uniqueness that you're talking about a lack of uniqueness. There's a uniqueness that's for real that's coming in when you randomly generate. What about freaking yeah. artists that throw paint at the freaking wall? Yeah, but right? that's, it's still and coming like, from oh, a person. It actually has meaning because. <laughs> yeah, because it's coming from Shut a person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, but that, that's it is true. So the, the computer generated stuff it's like it's cool and it's fun and okay so the whole i'm going to do an ai generated uh version of myself right the thing that's fun about that is because it's yourself still you know Mm. and this the ai's kind of translation it's fun to see the little translation and then of course the perfect version of yourself i get that part too but like i said it's like a person is imperfect and it, so there's a difference between That's a perfect. That's what I said too, right? Exactly. Oh, no, you're, 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 exactly, exactly right. right. In fact, he can be technically and, better, and but I, 
the per the imperfection is part of a greater perfection. Yeah. So so you can't okay. If I want to be a highly individualized person, it comes with a bunch of imperfections. Yeah. All the way, like almost on an infinite level. Where the computer's just trying to replicate those imperfections, and bro, you can tell. Guess what? This I almost cut you off. I had to restrain myself because oh, yeah. I really wanted to. Restrain, but bro. when you were talking about Elgin writing, right? Yeah. Elgin, when he's writing, when he's directing the direction of the story, the AI generated solution would be that thing that you're talking about that kind of like, yep, yeah. this is the standard yeah, story. Yeah. We know what's gonna happen. Mm-hmm. We know this is gonna move the emotions this way and move the emotions that way. Yeah. It's gonna set up this ending, the blah, 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 blah. And he's like, no, don't do that thing. He has a, a look on it that's not a cube. The cubic zarconi, he do, no one's watching it. Yeah. Yeah. Or let me rephrase that, because here's the thing, man. Plenty of people watch yeah. cubic zarconians. Like, uh, remember those TV shows back in the day that, that, that were like, uh, Hallmark specials, remember those, right? Yeah, my my mother-in-law, yeah, like moms, moms moms are watching them, but it's like a, it's like a story that everybody knows, the the whole story. And hey, do you ever watch? Do you ever get on on Facebook on the algorithm? You'll get like watch these like six-minute movies about like I don't know. They'll be about like I I I watched one of them one time and I was like, okay, I see what this is. It was like a guy and he's like sweeping up Mm -hmm. and. A guy like drops something, and he, it, it, the guy's the janitor, but then he ends up being actually the owner. And oh yeah, yeah, it's like that kids, kind of thing. Kids have that, yeah. There's, yeah. There's, anyway, yeah. I but know but what that's you're like about. those are just generic. Those are like AI generated stories. Like write a story about a lesson from yeah. someone, that, and it's like an AI generated story. And yeah. people still watch them. A lot of people watch those, yeah. but there, there's there's the lacking element. Like you can go to the club and you can dance to Britney Spears or one of these pop people, yeah. but then you go to a white stripe show, you're, you're it's like, different. yeah, it's different. Bro, the cubic zirconia things or whatever, they're still shiny. They're super yeah, shiny. Yeah. And people buy them. Oh yeah, they're shiny. They look, they sparkle mm-hmm. on their, oh, they do all that stuff mm-hmm. for sure. But if you care, like, a, you know, you're a creative person, you care about other stuff than how much it shines. Mm-hmm. Just like you care about music more so than how many albums it sold or how many plays it got on the freaking radio station or the club or whatever. See what I'm saying? Yep. And that's what I, anyway, at the end of the day, I think that's going to be a massive challenge for AI to replicate. Yep. Yeah. I think it's going to be interesting. Because well, it seems like if it takes enough cracks at it, it's going to figure some shit out. Uh, well, it's a freaking one of the, I mean, let's say it's probably the best, well, one of the best tools ever created, even for a creative person. Because it's like a little helper, yeah. you know, like any like creative like project when it when it has a bunch of people. Some people are better than others. Sometimes you just need somebody to go run and grab that coffee and bring it back, you know? So mm-hmm. the AI can kind of take care of a lot of jobs. Yeah. Well, meanwhile, if as long as you have creative control, it's like, hey, it's, it can be a good tool. Yeah. Well, we'll see where it goes. Um, so. That's my only question, by the way. I have a lot of border <laughs> pro- Actually, yeah. I have a lot of border patrol, uh, good, but bro, we don't, we'll, we'll, we'll do another one. Yeah, hell yeah. Meanwhile, you can see. Rocco's got a lot of stuff going on. Some other stuff going on, JockoFuel, JockoFuel.com. We got all kinds of stuff going on at JockoFuel.com. We got energy drinks, we got hydrate, we got greens, by the way. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you take greens? I don't, but I will. Oh yeah, we're gonna hook you up. Yeah. We'll get you on some greens. I know why you don't take greens, because they freaking suck most of the time. Yeah, because <laughs> most of the time they taste like crap. Yeah, I'd rather eat all the vegetables required than <laughs> take most greens, for real. <laughs> not this, but not this one, for Not this one. Yeah. Uh, the greens are legit. Everything's legit. Um, so check it out. JockoFuel.com. Get a subscription to what you take all the time. Like if you take time more all the time. Just just get in there. Also, 
this stuff's available in stores, Vitamin Shop, GNC, Military Commissaries, AFES, Hannaford, Dash Stores, Wakeford, ShopRite, HEB, down in Texas, we're there. And we appreciate our people in Texas. We also appreciate our people up in the in the Midwest going to Meyer, killing it. By the way, so thanks to all of you, Harris Teeter, Lifetime Fitness Shields, small gyms out there. If you're training jujitsu and you have a jujitsu academy, or you got a CrossFit gym, or you got a powerlifting gym, and you want to sell some of the goods, or you got a bodybuilding gym, hell yeah, there you go. <laughs> Speaking of which, the pre workout. Oh, the, yeah. this is important to mention if. People don't know the pre-workout is not like the old school freaking ephedra, you know, risk your life for the pump kind of pre-workout. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's yeah. good. It's not risk your life for the no, pump. It's get it, get the pump. Get the That's pump. good. All day. Sometimes yeah. though, like let's face it, sometimes you need it. You know, oh, yeah. my, my my daughter the other day, mm. she'd been training kind of a lot. And she said, you know, look, just because you're training jiu-jitsu doesn't mean you're not lifting. Yeah. It doesn't mean you're not getting your pull-ups in, yeah. but she told me yesterday, she was like, oh, I was tired yesterday. I was like, oh, that's a bummer. And she goes, I had to take the pre-workout. I was like, oh. She goes, <laughs> how'd it work? She was like, freaking awesome. So you can be t- like that, yeah. and you can still get your shit done. Oh, yeah. But get in it, there. It's like a slippery slope in a good way, by the way, where it's like, okay, <laughs> let me just take this pre-workout when I'm like just kind of tired. Then it's like, oh, damn, that was kind of a solid little boost. Yeah. And then the day you're not really that tired, but you're like, I could kind of is I this how people get addicted to crystal methamphetamine kind yeah, of? It, it seems like a similar pathway. Yes, right, for right. sure. But at least we're lifting, you know. Yeah. I mean, you can, and and at least it's healthy. Yeah, I was going to say, and if you won't end up uh, dead. Uh, dead. Yeah. yeah with no teeth. Well, you know. And you know, sores, open sores on your face. Well, oh, yeah. Right. You know, hey, you took <laughs> right? pre-workout before, right? Like yeah, the old you say, you know, Jack 3D and Exactly all that shit. right. Yeah. Okay, so oh. when pre-workout freaking exploded onto the scene, it was like, bro, wild, wild west. Hey, let's put was, some meth in there. Yeah, freaking Ephedra. They had to ban a bunch of stuff. Say, yeah. hey, you can't put that in there anymore because guys oh, are dying. Yeah, you want to order up. the shit that was banned because yeah. you had to like, that shit's good. Yeah. yeah. That must it, be the good shit. Yeah. <laughs> if it's illegal, it's <laughs> yeah, good. Yeah. Bro, I'm telling you, yeah, it's crazy. So like taking pre-workout still, I think even now, still has kind of that stigma where it's like. Yeah, I stopped messing with it because I was nervous about because the heart thing bro, yeah same exact thing yeah. I, that's why i stopped i was like bro the, the, but if you say I, you got some good, good shit i could use some good shit we, yeah. do, you, do you like it's got 200 milligrams of caffeine so that's two cups of coffee yeah, two maybe cups two of and a half cup, cups of coffee it's not crazy mm. you know some of these things they're freaking out of control yes uh and you got to be careful but even for me like i don't take pre-workout normally mm-hmm. so from i don't need to take a whole scoop i can take a half a scoop yeah, and all of a sudden i feel like i'm on cocaine yep. and i've never even done cocaine before <laughs> <But> like i feel <laughs> like that must, drug. Be, that must be what it feels like <laughs> i heard somebody asking theo vaughn the other day like what's your favorite what do you say what's your favorite kind of pot or something like that and he's like probably cocaine <laughs> <laughs> i was like bro that guy's freaking awesome i met him at a ufc event yeah he's oh, funny, freaking funny. hilarious uh okay also originusa.com True. hey you, you guys just picked up a ufc deal yes we did Dude. i like that shit man. <laughs> it's freaking outstanding uh, so pumped so cool to see um if you didn't catch this news uh we partnered with the UFC. We partnered with the Ultimate Fighting Championship. Yeah. That's freaking wild, Insane. right? I, I watch mm. every single weekend, man. I love it, and I'm glad you guys are part of that. And, and and let me tell you straight up, the Dana White, the team at UFC, they wanted to partner with us. Not not saying they like. I'm, I'm not trying to make it sound out of balance, but they could partner with anybody, right? Yeah. 
they they get to decide who they partner with. Yeah. It's not so the fact that they looked at our company, they love what we're doing. They're patriotic. They support America. I mean, Dana obviously supports American companies and things being made in America. So it was just awesome that it all came together. And yeah, super stoked. OriginUSA.com. I forgot we used we use Origin shirts for better and for the light diffuse wellness. Hell yeah, everything yet. Hell yeah, for the same reason. Yeah, just got us freaking made in America. Yeah, uh, geese. You said you're, you're starting to train jujitsu again. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I just signed up again. Yeah, so we need to get you a gi. Oh, maybe a couple geese. Oh, or you a no gi guy? No, no, no. Oh, I'm, okay. I'm a, I need to learn the gi, yeah, dude. Yeah. I've done enough no yeah. gi that yeah. I'm, I've been hiding from gi. Oh, I need yeah. to get in the gi. It, it definitely when you if you don't do it or if you haven't done it it's really really annoying yeah like no you can I, see you yeah. train with a wrestler that's never worn gi before their, their, their whole life is frustrating yeah you know, i need it i've been careful. avoiding the gi for so long i need it um so, so we got everything at origin what else do you originusa.com jeans, jeans boots jeans boots all day all yeah. day gis workout gear the whole nine yards man all made 100 percent in america bringing manufacturing back to america so that's awesome the hoodies are nice the hoodies are oh, deluxe yeah. The hoodies are de- the hoodies are de- deluxe. Oh, yeah. Freaking good to go. Big right, made right here. What else? It's true. Jocko store. Jocko oh. store called Jocko store. Oh, nice. Discipline equals freedom. Good deathcore. All this. It, it's you know it has a what do you staying power. Mm. See what I'm saying? The name it's for real. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you want to represent dif- discipline equals freedom. That's where you get it. Also, we have the shirt locker. Rock, I don't know if you know about this. Shirt Locker is a new shirt every month. I saw Different that. designs. Yeah. Anytime you see like something like discipline equals freedom-y, kind of, but not quite as serious or maybe a little bit more creative, if you yeah. will. By the way, not but AI generated. Not AI generated. That's the key because nope. if it was AI generated, we know what it would do. We would, we do it's actually yeah. interesting. People will like give, I, that's a term I use now. Like if someone answers a question or someone makes a statement about me, I'm like, oh, that's an AI generated like opinion yeah. of me. Yeah. Like it's like AI generated v- opinions of what to do at the border. Like, yeah. oh, this is the talking points that they read, and right. bop, 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 bop. like right. here you go. Here's the here's the you know answer. Well, and then there's a caveat that says, of course, there are some details. On my <laughs> right. Yep. So don't it's get true. an AI generated it T-shirt. It is not AI generated. Get no. an Echo Charles generated T-shirt I'd up say, in this piece. I'd say it's, I'd say it's generated by. The community, mm-hmm. I would say, the people that are on the path. Mm-hmm. You know, they all have their own influence on these specific designs. Every month, by the way, oh, I nice. didn't so, say that. There yeah. you go. Boom! That's at Jocko Store. It's called the Shirt Locker, but it's at JockoStore.com. Now that name, Shirt Locker, S H U R T Locker, yep. that came from the people. Came from the fact. community, cool. exactly. Like, right. what do we call this thing? Someone's like Shirt Locker. Do nailed it. Yeah. Send it. Yeah, yeah exactly. And yep. yeah, so there you go. JockoStore.com. Primal Beef. Primal Beef. Get yourself some grass-fed. And fruit and grain finished. Yep. Got that. I had. I had. So normally I'm a ribeye guy. What about you? Ribeye. Yeah. yeah. Ribeye, hundred percent. Right. I, I would say, but I did get the New York strip. That's what I had, and bro, bro. And how's how's this? To um, and I text Sean Glass yeah. as this is happening. Yeah. So I got the I got the New York strip. <laughs> yeah. uh, I had three of them. I only had one left from the from the primal, mm-hmm. and then the other two from a different company. I'm mm-hmm. not gonna say. But I was like, okay, let me put Sean Glass to the test here. Look, I'm not gonna go tell everyone if he if he loses or whatever. So I do him. I prepare him literally exact same way, literally the exact same way. And I can already see before I cook him. I'm like, I already see the difference already. But whatever, you know, that's that's no proof. Mm-hmm. The proof is afterwards. You know what I'm saying? Cook him up exactly the same way. By far, too. Yeah. By far, primal yeah, beef. Yeah, that thing better. Is good. So I normally look. I'm not like a 
okay, I'm a snake snob, a yes. steak snob. Yeah. Like, you give are. me a ribeye, bro. That's yeah. what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, had that had that New York, which normally New York doesn't do it for me. Yeah, it's kind of like whatever's cool. But yep. dude, this New York it. was money, bro. Agree, money tastes good. Huh? Mm-hmm. So there you go, primal beef, primalbeef.com. Get yourself some, get yourself some meat. Also, check out coloradocraftbeef.com. Those things freaking tasty. Mm. So we got options for you. Look, you can't live on milk alone. Well, maybe you can. Well, <laughs> probably can. But you may need to supplement your supplements with steak. <laughs> yeah, so go idea. to primalbeef.com. Go to coloradocraftbeef.com. Awesome people making awesome steak for us out here. Subscribe to the podcast. We got jockounderground.com. Uh, check that out. $8.18 a month. If you can't afford it, it's okay. We got you. We want you to be here with us on the underground. So Go to jockownderground.com. Check out the little alternative podcast that we do. Mm-hmm. Got a YouTube channel, Jocko Podcast. Is that it? Yep, official, I think. Jocko I Podcast think. official. But you know, you're going to see it. We got uh, jockofuel.com. They're putting their own spin on things. They're yeah. putting a bunch of really cool. They got Danielle Kelly. Yeah, yeah. Dude, Danielle Kelly. Girl tried to can opener her. <laughs> In one, you know what I'm talking about? I know what a can opener is. Yeah, so a girl's trying to can opener Mm -hmm. Danielle Kelly, and Danielle Kelly just like maneuvers and gets the girl's back and chokes her. Salute to Danielle Kelly. Uh, They got stuff with her. Bo Nickel, by the way. Mm -hmm. Dope. Yeah, dude. Dope. Watch him his whole college career. Yeah, yeah, he's freaking legit, and he's. That's good work. Let's just come and take over the board. But, you know, he's Jocko Fuel. Go and so he's getting after. He's also sponsored by Jocko Podcast, by the way. Did you know that? Mm-hmm. I Jocko did. Charles? I did know that. Yeah. Okay. Just just making sure you. No, know no, no. I'm in the know. Uh, so yeah, check out those YouTube. Origin USA has the YouTube thing, and don't forget, you got you got Vinny Rock hey. YouTube channel. Yes, you can check you. that out. How often are you posting something on there? Uh, we're trying to go four four uh four times a month, four episodes. We're mm-hmm. still we're still getting in all all the guests going on. I got a um a brain. I uh, went to a brain clinic for TBI, and mm-hmm. Dr. G, she's going to be on on the 20th. I'm excited about that. And then Flo Grover, uh, the Medal of Honor recipient, oh, he's going to be on. right on. He's going to be on soon. Hey, I'll yeah. connect you with him, dude. He, 100%. He, he's, he's just dope, dude. Yeah, really sure. good dude. For yeah. sure. Yeah. Bro, remember I said, like, when you went into the recruiter, and the, the recruiter saw you, and he's like, sees you like, I'm just waiting for my ride. He's like, you look like a steak. Yeah. Imagine when dudes like you and me walk into like the TBI clinic. They're yeah. like, oh, let me see your background. You're like, oh, I did this, this, and this. Like, you look like a steak, bro. <laughs> yeah. They want to get their hands on you and figure out what the hell is going yeah, on, dude. what's rattled up in there. Uh, so check out those YouTube things. We've got Psychological Warfare. We've got Flipside Canvas, Dakota Meyer, speaking of Medal of Honor recipients. He's got cool stuff to hang on your wall. FlipsideCanvas.com. Check that out. Books. we got a bunch of books. Number one, of course, Borderline, Defending the Home Front by Vincent Rocco Vargas. Get that. It's coming out on Jocko Press, by the way. It is. It's kind of a new thing that's going down. This is the first book on Jocko Press, different from Jocko Publishing. Yeah. How is it different? It's different because we're in league with St. Martin's Press. Oh. So we're we're helping them and they're helping us Mm -hmm. in order to get mass distribution and help on... It's 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 a coordination of efforts. Yeah. So I have a great relationship with St. Martin's Press, and eventually, you know, some of the books and some of the people that I talk to and know, I know that I couldn't deliver what they might need for a book. Mm-hmm. And this is one of those books. I mean, this book is everyone should be reading this book. If you live in America, you should be reading this book. 
Um, if you live overseas, you can still get information from it as well because you actually, you actually have content in there. You have Spanish content in there, yeah. like a whole section about how to actually legally uh, become a citizen. Be- become a citizen. So you got all kinds of stuff. So that's what Jocko Press is. It's sort of a an imprint of St. Martin's Press. So hmm. that's a new thing. We got a few more books coming out in the near future on that that I think people are gonna be excited about. But this is the first one, dude, number one. Yeah, so I was excited about that, honored. Let's honored. rock and roll, man, honor's all mine. Um, so that book, then, you know, I've written a bunch of books. You can get those books, you can check out those books. Uh, you know what they are. Check out those Warrior Kid books, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Ashton Front, we solve problems through leadership. Go to ashtonfront.com for details if you wanna come. Next up is Dallas, I'm leaving for Dallas. That Same. event will be over by the time this comes out. But it's been sold out for months. We crammed in, we reorganized seats, we did everything we could, but it sold out. So if you wanna come to one of our events, go to echelonfront.com, get some details. If you need help inside your organization, we work with companies, we work with the largest companies in the world, and we work with a lot of very small businesses and everything in between. So if you need help inside your organization with leadership, go to echelonfront.com. We also have an online training academy. Leadership is the most important factor in business, in life, in family. Everything that you're doing is leadership. So learn how to lead if you want to improve every aspect of your life. Go to extremeownership.com. We have a curriculum that has been developed over the past 17 years that will help you learn how to lead in all situations. Also, if you wanna help service members, active and retired, you wanna help their families, you wanna help Gold Star families, check out Mark Lee's mom, Mama Lee, she's got an incredible charity organization. If you wanna donate or you wanna get involved in that, go to americasmightywarriors.org. Also check out heroesandhorses.org, Micah Fink, my brother, I don't know what he's doing right now, but you know that there is big sky Montana activities happen. Dude, the last time I talked to him, he's like, yeah, I just got, I had to go down to Wyoming and brand 1,200 freaking cows out on the ranch. Yeah, I mean, he's just getting after it, dude. I wanna go next time, let him know. Hey, if you really wanna go to his thing. I would love to. Do you know what his thing is? It's 41 days, they go out into the mountains, like, I've heard living off of horses. Yeah, I would love to. I I wanna do it, I I wanna do it when I'm like, I wanna be older though, because I, it takes 41 days, bro. You know, that's a lot. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. I don't, I don't know about that 40, time 41 either. days is not on the calendar right now. Um, but at some point, yeah. So check that out. Uh, heroesandhorses.org. Also, Jimmy May's got that. Beyondthebrotherhood.org. Helping guys transition out of the military. Um, if you want to connect with us on the, on the interwebs, well, you can do that. Uh, VincentRoccoVargas.com. Instagram, VincentRoccoVargas. Facebook, Vincent Rocco Vargas. <laughs> YouTube, Vinny Rock. And uh, Echo is at Echo Charles. I am at, what am I at? I am at Jocko Willink. Just watch out because the algorithm's there and you know what that algorithm's gonna try and do. Um, it's, gonna try and, it's gonna try and crush you. So there you go. Um, Rocco, you got any closing thoughts? Anything else? No, man, I'm just excited for people to kind of check out this book. I think it's gonna be one of the biggest books for Military who transitioned out of the military looking for a new career, I think it's gonna be good for the retention of the Border Patrol as well as the recruitment for the Border Patrol and just for, for the average person wanting to really understand what the Border Patrol career field is so they have a better foundation of what immigration entails, so. Yeah, well, I'm glad you wrote the book. Thanks for coming on. Uh, thanks for sharing your lessons. 
And thanks for all the things you're bringing in the world today. You know, the 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 art, the books, the movies, the music, the podcasts, everything you're bringing in the world. Thank you, and um, of course, thanks for your service to our great nation in the army, in the Rangers. Thanks for protecting our freedom overseas, and thanks for protecting our borders here at home. And thanks to everybody out there in the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, and a special appreciation today for the Rangers. Living that life, that Spartan life. Rangers lead the way, and we salute you all. Also, thanks to our police, law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, dispatchers, correctional officers, Secret Service, and all first responders. Thank you all for your service here at home with a distinct salute to our Border Patrol. Thank you for what you all do every day to protect our border and our way of life. And to everyone else out there, you don't really know what you're capable of. You don't know. You don't, you don't know what your limits are. And you know what? You don't always end up on the right path. You don't. Sometimes you have to shift gears. Sometimes you have to change directions. And that takes courage and that takes commitment. It takes courage to walk away from what you know and commitment to succeed in the unknown. But like Rocco, like Vinny, if you work hard, if you push yourself, if you give it everything you got, you can not only chase your dreams, but you can catch them and make them a reality. So if you have something that you want to do, go out there and get after it. And until next time, this is Rocco and Echo and Jocko out.